Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The Mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? And I'm joined by two of our most popular guests, most popular co-hosts, most popular performers here on the show each and every time. First, let me introduce the popular wrestling humorist, Scott Cornish. Scott, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be here at the Showcase of the Immortals, the 605 <laughs> Super Podcast. Also with me, I guess the humor part will start later. Uh, also with ah, me here right. on the show is another very, very popular co-host, the man behind Hardway Art, none other than Howard Baum. Howard, welcome back to the show. Hey, hey, hey. And there he is. How's everybody doing out there in 605 land? And you know what I say, Brian, any show that you can do in your underwear is tops by me. I mentioned to you guys that I had some audio of some recent things that have popped up that I thought were humorous, so we should play them here and talk a little bit about them. First one we'll play kind of relates to you, Howard. Of course, you've really taken off in the top 10 with this new character, Lord Apnea Hayes, who has become very, very popular on the show. Well, of course, the real Lord Alfred Hayes did voiceovers for the WWF, and this emerged, I think Alan Blackstock tweeted it out on the anniversary of WrestleMania 2. But here's Lord Alfred Hayes announcing the celebrities, or at least some of them, from WrestleMania 2, the ones who will be attending WrestleMania 2. Update takes another look at some of the celebrities for WrestleMania 2. The irrepressible Joan Rivers. Olympic boxing coach Lou Duva. The elusive burger man Herb. <laughs> former world boxing <laughs> champion Smoking Joe Frazier. TV's diminutive old-fashioned lady Claire Pella. Radiant actress Susan St. James. The enigmatic yet resolute G. Gordon Liddy, brilliant young actor Ricky Schroeder, Chocolate Thunder, Daryl Dawkins, Cotton Club's incomparable Cab Calloway, shapely and beautiful Kathy Lee Crosby, slightly evil but immensely intriguing Elvira, musician and singer extraordinaire Ray Charles, television superstar Robert Conrad, football's all-time great Dick Butkus, the eerie but explosive rock star, Ozzy Osbourne. Uh. And now this, from our newest celebrity. Hi, everybody. I'm Tommy Lasorda. In Los Angeles on April the 7th, at the sports arena, I will be the ring announcer for the great match between Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. Be there. You're going to really enjoy it. WrestleMania 2 will undoubtedly be professional wrestling's biggest ever extravaganza. For update, this is Lord Alfred Hayes. Well, well done. I, <laughs> I love that you get to see an encapsulation of the given celebrity through the rainbow glasses of Lord Alfred Hayes. Like, that's his vision. That's his encapsulation. That's the thumbnail. But I like how some of them are declarative based on what they really do, who they are, an existing nickname like Chocolate Thunder. But others are editorial, like uh, explosive yet dignified, <laughs> or whatever he says. Elusive like, Burger Man. Oh. <laughs> That's the best. That's the best. I didn't even catch that the first time. Elusive Burger there's one, Man. 
there's one that's just so banal that it that it slips right by and you don't even think <laughs> about it. And that's brilliant young actor Ricky Schroeder. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs> even Ricky, even Ricky Schroeder has heard that and went, "Oh God, you got to be kidding me." <laughs> Shapely yet beautiful, Kathy Lee Crosby. The uh, statute of limitations is is up, or or I think it's in fair use now. So I'm going to change my nickname to slightly evil, but immensely intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> the enigmatic yet resolute G. Gordon Liddy. <laughs> well, check this out, guys. You're, you're not going to believe the good timing of this, but, you know, I fell down like a rabbit hole the other day of Lord Alfred Hayes. And it turns out how that you know how the uh, Army Archer always used to do the red carpet from like the Golden Globes and all that back in the day, the seventies yeah. and eighties, right? Well, everyone knows that, but very few people know that Lord Alfred Hayes was his stand-in right next to him backstage on a B-roll. Lord <laughs> Alfred Hayes was called in from whatever territories he was working. I remember the year he came in, he was working for Geigel in Kansas. The call came, you know, at that time of year. So he flew to L.A. to stand next to Army Archer. And I have rare B-roll footage of wow. Lord Alfred Hayes in the 70s and 80s on the red carpet, if you guys want to hear it. The hell you and I edited, I edited my own version together, so time is not really a problem. It's like eight lines long. Okay, let's see. Oh, here it is now. I have it all queued up. Hello, yes. testing. Is this thing on? All right. The procession is starting now. I see him emerging now. Television Jew Gabriel Kaplan. <laughs> Dangerously obese Ebony Crooner Barry White. Chlamydia riddled octogenarian Dr. Ruth Westheimer. <laughs> the troubled yet perky star of television's Joni Loves Chachi, Miss Erin Moran. TV pitchman and functional alcoholic Broadway Joe Namath. Oh, the diabetes man, Wilford Brimley. Well, you're actually just saying real things that these people are inflicted with. All right, let me unpause for a minute. Doomed to live forever as a seven-year-old Gary Coleman. <laughs> and the last one. I think this is the last one. Uh, plastic, uh, plastic surgery pioneer and pop that coochie girl, Charo. <laughs> So yeah, I dug in my archives and found that. I think that was some amazing uh, I like that he announces time capsule footage there. A la Karnak, I like that he announces the last one. I think this is the last one. <laughs> it breaks. It breaks the fourth wall left and right. You know how oh, it is. Uh, <laughs> how lucky for us you had that B-roll queued up just like that. It's so lucky. I was like just looking into like weird Lord Hayes footage last night and everything. It all came together. I got the phone call. Didn't you say the 10 605 uh, bad phone lit up? I go, oh, time to fool the world again. I thought you said you edited it down to 10 seconds. <laughs> it, was, it was eight lines. I guess I <laughs> filibustered a little. What can I tell you? Before we change the subject, I do want to give special credit to not to Lord Alfred Hayes and that WrestleMania 2 clip, but to Tommy Lasorda. Who can resist when he says to the uh, audience at home, be there, you're going to really enjoy it. Tommy <laughs> lasagna. Well, that struck me too. But the thing of it is, in those days, like you're a major celebrity, you didn't have to oversell it. So it's like he's in all these cheesy '80s things. So he's like, "Hey, I'm saying it's good, so be there. It'll be good." Like you know, he didn't have to oversell because they were confident. The celebrities in those days, they didn't have to like beat yeah, you over the head with it. Different levels of celebrities. WrestleMania one, right? Liberace, right, right. Muhammad Ali, <laughs> Mr. T at his peak. 
Cindy Lauper, just about <laughs> right. week. WrestleMania two, you have Herb. <laughs> by the way, elusive burger man. By the way, elusive burger man. Yeah. In twenty, here's a twenty nineteen update. He remains elusive. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the uh, Where's the Beef lady? Wasn't she there? Clara, Clara Peller. Yeah, it looks like was... it looks like they didn't have the endorsement from her restaurant because they do not mention the burger chain that made her famous. Right. That was so funny. But they do sneak in the term old fashioned. TV uh, fashioned lady, and he gets her name wrong. Her name was Clara. Claire Peller. <laughs> he had a habit of doing that. Like, he always called Mean Gene, Mean Gene Ocus. Am I the only <laughs> one who, like, caught that? Or was I having a, a seizures during this period or something? He's like, Mean Gene Ocus. I thought it was, I thought it must have been some kind of inside, inside joke or something. Let me play this. Uh, speaking of inside jokes, or maybe outside jokes. I'm going to play a couple other things here. This recently went around. I remember when this first aired, and I'm going to have to get Mark Carluzzo on the show because he's in the background in a couple of these clips, and he was there, and apparently there was a Vince McMahon-Dennis Carluzzo run-in, which I got to hear about. But Andy Richter from the Conan O'Brien show, when it was on Late Night, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, when it was best, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Andy Richter went to the CAC, the Cauliflower Alley Club, when they had their convention here in the Northeast. I'm guessing it was somewhere in New Jersey. I don't remember exactly where. And in the midst of this, Andy Richter encounters Jimmy Superfly Snuka. And we've talked in the past here on this show about Jimmy Snuka and his way of speaking, his way of not just promos, but just speaking in general. And it makes no sense. And this is an example where he makes absolutely no sense. And Andy Richter is stuck there. And I'm going to play this because we have a comparison right after this, the audio from 1983 that we're going to play. But let's play this first. A man from the islands, from the South Pacific Islands, brother. Uh, uh, Illinois, is that a South yeah, Pacific Island? South Pacific. Now, I'm, I'm here tonight to, to sort of check in on, on how the wrestling world, uh, just to get some opinions about the political uh, You better take it easy now, world. brother. Slow down here. Well, I'm here tonight to try and figure out what the wrestling world is thinking about the presidential elections. Do you have any thoughts on the presidential elections? You know, brother, the most beautiful thing about this whole thing is that you meet all the wonderful people in this place. But when the time do comes, when the re-election comes, it'll only make it a much more better spirit for everybody that's here. For all of us that's want to know what's going on, the most beautiful thing to me is, is that I love it and I'm enjoying it. And that's why I'm here talking to beautiful people like this and you wonderful people out there in TV land. This is one of the greatest things at all times, first time that we all involved in it, it makes it all together. It takes all of us takes all of us to make the greatest man in the world. Andy I think the question was, who do you think is going to win the presidential election? <laughs> and he got all that. Not making too much sense. Before I get you guys to tell me your thoughts on that, let's play a little bit more audio here. This is back in 1983. Or actually, it may have been even early 84. 
Robert Dubord presenting Jimmy Snuka with the 1983 Wrestler of the Year Award as voted on by the fans. Listen to Jimmy Snuka here. Try to follow it like it's supposed to make sense. And welcome to Victory Corner. Throughout 1983, the editors of Victory Magazine held a special contest in which the fans were invited to write in and select the most popular wrestler of 1983. This week, it's my special privilege to award this trophy to the fans' overwhelming pick, Jimmy Superfly Snuka. Jimmy, on behalf of Victory Magazine and the fans, my congratulations to you for being selected 1983's most popular wrestler. Thank you very much, sir. I just want to mention one thing and tell the wonderful people out there in TV Wonderland that I want to thank you very much and so kind deep down in your hearts to have that feeling to fulfill myself and you people for representing such a thought on the beautiful mind, deep and so wonderful that it's so hard to try to even explain more than I could ever give to you. Is this is my loveness and the faith of my belief is what I can give you is to thank you for your kind honor, which in maybe I might not have a belt around my waist, but it's just a thought in mind with the beautiness of the kindness from the heart will tell you who you really are. And I want to thank you very much again, ladies and gentlemen, and I hope we all have a beautiful 1984. Thank you. I love you very much. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Now back to ringside. You know, I think I finally have figured out the key to the Jimmy Snuka interview. As a child, I made the mistake of attempting to follow and make sense of it, like as with The Ultimate Warrior. But I found out that really, in hindsight, he's a genius because he's using the ancient technique of cut-and-paste poetry, favored by the mid-century poets and David Bowie and people like that. You take a bunch of lines, you mix them up, yeah. and it comes out as a finished result because it all sounds right, except in his case, it doesn't sound right at all. Yeah, take a, take an hour or two and see if you can rearrange it to the way it was supposed to be originally. <laughs> but uh, is it is it fair to ask the question, how did he live in the States for over 50 years and never <laughs> master the language? <laughs> I, I don't mean that as an insult, but... <laughs> At what point did he pick up on the term that comes up in almost every Snooka promo, TV Wonderland? <laughs> that is my favorite. Oh, but the loveness inside and the belief. Oh. <laughs> he said the believe, not the belief. The believe. The, the believe. believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I was actually too coherent. Uh, that is the unspoken question, isn't it? <laughs> the greatest man who ever lived. Andy, even Andy Richter's like, uh, what? <laughs> he's so taken. He's so taken aback. Andy Richter, he can't even believe it. He's like, what? Like Snooker should be. I'm almost speechless. <laughs> it's crazy how he, he picked up nothing. That's literally only in the people from Hialeah have I seen such determination to stick to your homeland. <laughs> well, let's play a little bit more audio here before we wrap this up. This one, I think we maybe even talked about it on the show way back, me and Bix. This one's still mysterious. I believe it, would it be from 85 or 86? I guess 85. 86. Is it 86? Okay, early 86. I'll explain why later. <laughs> okay. It is Dan Spivey versus Paul Christie at Madison Square Garden. And it's on the MSG Network. 
Howard Finkel's in the ring, and he has an announcement that he's going to make. And uh, here is his announcement right here, right now. But I will lead singer that he's in for Van Halen, ladies and gentlemen, Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar getting a special introduction here in Madison Square Garden, the uh, lead singer with Ivan Halen. Yes, uh, very talented <laughs> youngster. Big nice wrestling stuff. fan. And a tremendous wrestling He actually knows me. Let's go up to our ring announcer. Okay, I don't know what was going on there with those two at the <laughs> end, but this guy jumps in the ring, looks nothing like Sammy Hagar. Now, obviously not everyone knew who Sammy Hagar was, <laughs> even with MTV being very popular. Looks nothing like Sammy Hagar. It looks like a Dana Carvey going through a Miami Vice phase. <laughs> well, now you fucked me over because my line was, I was going to say, <laughs> it looks like Dana Carvey doing any money at best. <laughs> See, that's good. That's fine with me. <laughs> but you know what's funny about it? How he runs around imagining how Sammy Hagar would act if that was really Sammy Hagar. Yeah, the jump into the handshake is the classic move of a goof. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Jump into this handshake. I jumps in. <laughs> How's it going, New York? Yeah, I like how there's also no vetting in the showbiz world. Like somebody went through the proper channels and claimed that they were Sammy Hagar, got to do a run-in. Well, the other side of the story, I guess, if you look at the clip as as often as I have, <laughs> is that um, there was a guy that uh, longtime viewers of uh, Madison Square Garden and Spectrum Cable would recognize. He was a kind of a music industry insider named Cal Rudman. He even did a lot of backstage interviews. Killer Cal Rudman. And he had a background in the music industry. He did what was known back then as a top 40 tip sheet. People would pay him for this newsletter where he would tell them what records to play, if you can believe it. But he was a big booster, a big fanatic of uh, the WWE. And they used him as a backstage interviewer. He was absolutely horrible. But uh, there's something fun, funny about his uh, his appearances and so on. Anyway, if you watch the beginning of that clip as as uh, Finkel is making his introduction, the clip you played cuts off at, at the very beginning. <laughs> you hear Finkel say, he is from the rock world. <laughs> <laughs> and that is supposed to be very current because he then identifies him as the new lead singer mm. of Van Halen. And this guy rolls into the ring. But before that, if you're watching the clip, he is ushered up the aisle by Cal Rudman. (laughs) There's a mystery as you watch the thing going, how did this happen? How did he get people to let let him into the ring? Well, it looks like as you're watching this tape, Cal Rudman walks him right up the aisle as the introduction (laughs) is going on. He goes in, reportedly clips either his wig or his chin or something on the bottom rope cable. And then he appears dazed after that. He does his little thing with Finkel and Paul Christie, who's a, a character worth uh, worth examining in the future. <laughs> Meanwhile, Paul Christie's thinking, I'm going to get my picture with Sammy Hagar. You can see he's trying to shake his hand. <laughs> Sammy's like hand. concussed. He doesn't know what to do. <laughs> right. Uh... Yeah, the other guy's dazed. It appears that he can't keep his wig on. 
and, and he gets the one line out, and then he just stand, literally stands stock still. Paul Christie, I think he comes out to shake his hand or tell him to get the hell out of the ring. You know? but, but, and then he goes out of the ring, immediately gets a bear hug from Cal Rudman, who smiles and ushers him right back up the aisle. So Cal Rudman is at the, uh, is at the heart of this, uh, whatever the fuck this was. You know, I can't remember too much Cal Rudman after this point, if this is early 86. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if this was the breaking point? Like, Cal, did you bring a fake Sammy Hagar to the middle of the Sacred Garden ring? <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. I I watched I watched that show, uh, clips of it on Madison Square Garden, the entire card, because I wanted to see, is there anything else? Do they talk about it a little more during the match? Or No, that, of course they don't. And it's just that one little brief, bizarre, surreal moment. Except that I watching the rest of the show, I realized that I was at Madison Square Garden the next month. I missed the the appearance of uh, <laughs> Imposter Sammy Hagar by one month. <laughs> I was on the next card at the garden. First time I'd ever been to the garden, but uh, oh, that thing! I could watch that thing over and over. And I wish <laughs> that guy would either speak up for himself, or somebody would get a hold of Cal Rudman and ask him if he if uh, <laughs> if he wants to come clean on that topic. Well, let me play one more thing here. Speaking of Cal Rudman, and speaking oh. of the Magnificent One, because we do have Howard on the line, this is after Backlund versus Morocco. Morocco is right behind the oh. curtain doing a promo with Rudman. But this is <laughs> Cal Rudman screaming, call security, like 50 times in a row. There's wrestlers all around trying to break up the fight. There's other people just standing there watching the fight. And there's Cal Rudman just freaking out in the middle of it with his microphone yelling, call security. Let's... <laughs> to the floor, you can't punch him, you can't hit him, you can't touch him. I can't understand why Becker was upset. Morocco had hit him. Arnold Stolen shoved down. Let's go, let's pick up uh, an interview if we have it with the magnificent Morocco. Fucking you feel? Yeah. I feel good. Yeah. I knew me and the captain all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> we had the strategy. Yeah. We knew he couldn't handle himself. Yeah. We knew Back was going to get mad. Yeah. He can't go. See, when it gets really rough, yeah. when you got a dude as big and bad as me, yeah. Bobby Backer, you can do step tests all night long. You can do workouts all night long. You can do whatever you want to do all night long. But you ain't, huh? Captain. All right, Captain. That was for you, brother. We had a, We knew on the films. We knew what it was like. <laughs> the captain's my man. What are you going to say, brother? What are you going to say, brother? They got all the big money coming down. Oh, my God. Hey, what's going on? Call security. Call security. Call security. Call security. Get out there. Put him off. Put him off. Call security. Wait, security. Hey. Come on, hold it, hold it, hold it, call security, security, we'll be back, we'll be back ladies and gentlemen with more pro wrestling hopefully in the ring. Couple things here, first of all, Cat Rutman by the end of it appears to be trying to forcefully hold Bob Backlund's hand on him because there was no reason Backwood would be trying to hold him in there and Rudman's trying to find a reason to stay in there and scream call security. They show Vince Sr. May even be Barnett over there. You can't really tell for uh, sure. 
But you see people just standing there while this is all happening. Uh. <laughs> and the other thing is he does this annoying thing when he interviews people. He's asking you a question, and as you're answering, yeah. he keeps going, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Man, he loves him some Morocco. He is so enamored of Don Morocco. If anyone wants to like Google some interviews, yeah, yeah, uh, that guy, yeah, yeah, that guy was something else. <laughs> you yeah. could like practically see the hearts coming up, like little live feeds, like yeah. love, love, love yeah. coming out of Cal as Morocco talks, <laughs> and he's like Morocco is healing it up, or any other heel like Blassie, they're all healing it up, and Cal's like, yeah, yeah, he's like laughing all the way through it. He's the Northern David Crockett, apparently. Oh. David Crockett's better than him. I think Cal had a charm though, because he was so clueless. You knew you knew Crockett yeah. was going to stick within a certain framework, but Cal Rudman was so clueless, anything could happen. David Crockett was wrestling stupid. Cal Rudman was like stupid. Like you oh, didn't what? know what was that's. I mean, uh, rumor is he let a fake Sammy Hagar into the garden. I'll tell you, and and I watched uh, I watched the uh, WWE Hall of Fame ceremony the other night, and then uh, saw some clips of the uh, G1 show from Madison Square Garden. They needed Cal Rudman to screen call security at both of those shows, as it turns out. <laughs> but the security hasn't improved all that much from then until now. I'm trying to find the clip, uh, the one that I recently saw, I know you saw it, Scott, where I think it's Rudman interviewing Albano and Bulldog Buzz Sawyer. Oh, my God. And he's oh. just, he won't give the heels anything. And he's just smiling and joking around and goofing. And you can see Buzz Sawyer's like trying to act like an yeah. effective mm -hmm. heel. And Rudman is just walking all over him. It's amazing Buzz Sawyer didn't kill him right there. It really is. But I can't find the clue. Might I interject? Cal Rudman looks like he is oozing over a French poodle puppy. And it's Buzz Sawyer doing his entire snarling, frothing at the mouth, 1986 UWF routine, busting at the seams. And Cal Rudman is like, isn't he adorable? Yeah, look at him. He's like literally petting Buzz Sawyer, touching him. Oh, yeah. Everything he did was wrong. <laughs> just get up in the heels faces grinning at him trying to yeah exactly people like blassie and albano why what what did he ever see that made him think yeah that's what you do <laughs> right right because you would just think like you know organically it would just transfer to you like you stand there you're not really part of the show you're just like human mic stand facilitate the interview but he just didn't get that note world famous don't tell me don't tell me i know i realize i'm standing in front of you in front of the, in the camera mr cal rudman sir how are you how are you my pleasure to see you once again my extreme pleasure to I conduct know, this I know, I know it has to be yeah. what would you like to ask me what would what would everybody like to know about the magnificent one we would like to know about your battle with jimmy snooker jimmy snooker at great length discussed the battle how five wrestlers jumped on him and he threw each one out of the ring as they came in and then they came back in he denies knowing that he threw the little skinny referee aside so you have chief jay strongbow with your referee tonight he's a tough son of a gun isn't yeah, he's a tough son of a gun he's not as a rugged isn't he yeah, he's tough he's what was going on in your mind <laughs> he's got it all outstanding sarcasm right off the bat he can really he can really knock him down and boy and bowl him over can he well, he was doing a lot of bleeding, but then again, so are you. So was I. Yeah. Tell me about it. It doesn't matter. Didn't you come back? Didn't you come back and try and stop me from bleeding? I said, get out of here. Yeah, you did that. Didn't you try to do yeah. that? Because yeah. it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother Can you hurt this face? Can you bother this man? Jimmy Snooker. What was he talking about? Boars and, yeah. and wild pigs? Yeah, well I, well, I guess you're a pig. He said in the Fiji Islands. 
when they get the spear, they break off the limb of a tree and they get it straight and sharp and you gore the boar and it's bleeding and it keeps coming. So I guess that's you. Oh, I may be a pig. <laughs> you can ask some of the ladies I've been with. Sometimes I, sometimes I may be a pig. I don't know. Sometimes you can't get enough. And that's exactly the case. That is exactly the case with Mr. Snooker. Because you see, when it all went bad, and I wasn't talking about his mama. Let me get to us. Just Captain talking. Albano, for you ignorant people that don't know. Be nice to the people there, you're saying. I love you people. Believe me. But what I was talking about, I was searching his soul. He's just standing around. He's been watching all the great wrestlers, all the great performers. Yes. Never once. Never once did he ask for the magnificent one. Never once. And he threw his head into the ring. I had to go get him. So when I come to the spectrum in Philadelphia, when I go to the Garden in New York, when I go to the sports arena in Los Angeles, wherever I go, whatever it takes, Mr. Cal Rudnick, it doesn't matter who it is, I want the best. I want the toughest. You saw him knock me down. You saw him knock me down a number of times. You saw me bleed just like a pig. Just like a pig. Like a mean boy. I got back up and tore into him. You have just heard. Bye-bye. From the magnificent one. <laughs> will be right. Now, this whole time, Cal Rudman is just smiling at him. Sometimes he turns to the camera <laughs> with this big smile on his face. He's totally in love with Don Morocco. Pouring cool water on his heat by the second. He's like, oh, be nice to the people. Come on, Don. You're a nice guy. Morocco just needs a little, just a little time to get warmed up. And uh, he can't even get that done. I mean, he, he, <laughs> he eventually gets there, but it isn't uh, too many right. uh, of uh, Cal Rudman's. My God. <laughs> Cal Rudman is mic blocking him the whole time. He gets <laughs> right in there. He's like, they're like right on each other <laughs> at one point. And Rudman's just looking right up at him. He's like, yeah, tell me, tell me. What are you going to do? What <laughs> Uh, like he's coming out to him. He's like, tell me, yeah, what else, Don? And then what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Morocco's just clearly having fun with it. Killer <laughs> Cal, this ain't, this ain't pillow talk. This is a promo. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, I think that's enough Cal Rudman for this week and maybe ever here on the Super Podcast. <laughs> but, Cal, Rudman is, Cal Rudman is still with us, so I think it's, it's worth uh, pursuing to see if we can get to the bottom of this uh, imposter Sammy debacle. That is one of the big mysteries still out there. How did who was it and how did it happen? Imposter Sammy. <laughs> no one like how did it get that far along the line? No one there checked? Yeah. You know, it had to be a two phone call tops deal. Like somebody to somebody and somebody to somebody, period. Because there couldn't have been more than two people that knew. I have to say, fake Sammy <laughs> got a pretty good pop. When they said, Sammy Hagar, like, you didn't hear any boos. There were no, like, David Lee Roth fans screaming. He got a nice little pop. Well, that, I think it's just people wanted the rub. I don't think people even knew who Sammy Hagar was. They just yeah. knew the name, and, like, they were just happy to see some movement. See, I don't think Paul Christie wanted to attack him. I think Paul Christie <laughs> wanted the rub. Like, oh, another celebrity. This time he's in the ring for my match. Yeah, because you know the thing with wrestlers, like anything, anyone that's a star in wrestling or any legit form of entertainment, they're all over it. 
Like the big show will like uh, pee himself over meat and carrot top or somebody legit. <laughs> you know, like they're just they want the rub. Well, guys, as we move on with the show, it is time to tell everyone about the 605 Super Podcast sponsor, our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E-U-R. Of course, Ramsor is not just a record label. It is also a management company. Let's play some music right now in the background while I tell you a little bit for a second here. What you're about to hear is the sounds of, and I want to tell you a lot about this, Amethyst Kia, she's a new artist, aligned with Ramsor Records, aligned with Ramsor Management, and actually what you're hearing right now is something from a really cool project called Songs of Our Native Daughters with Amethyst Kia, like I said, with Rhiannon Giddens, Layla McCalla, and Allison Russell. It is on the Smithsonian Folkways label. You can check that out right now. But you're going to be hearing a lot more from her because you're about to hear her voice. When do you hear this voice? I think it's about to come right now. I won't jump the fence and wash my face in the creek. This song right here, Black Myself, which is on the aforementioned album Songs of Our Native Daughters, was written by Amethyst Kia. And you're, like I said, you're going to be hearing a lot, lot more about her. She's on YouTube. She's on Spotify. Or you can go to amethystkia.com. Let me spell that name for you. A-M-Y-T-H-Y-S-T. And her last name, Kia. K, excuse me, not key. K-I-A-H. Amethystkia.com. Once again, she's on YouTube, Spotify. And you're going to be hearing a lot more from this artist. What a fantastic voice. Somewhat reminiscent of Odetta. For those of you out there who are old folk fans, you may remember Odetta. A big influence on Bob Dylan, actually. But once again, the song, Black Myself, Our Native Daughters, featuring Amethyst Kia. And of course, with, alongside, Rhiannon Giddens, Layla McCalla, and Allison Russell. Check this out now, and we'll be bringing you more news about her in the future. And like... I better turn the music off now or I will never stop because it is really good. But with that, let's go to our next segment. I had a great opportunity to speak with my friend and yours, Mike Mills from Booking the Territory, all about one of the legendary players of high school football. I guess you could even maybe say college football because he kind of had that one great season and then poof, gone. And that is Marcus Dupree, who had a background in wrestling or at least an involvement in wrestling. Let's find out about that right now. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today a man that you know as the man behind Booking the Territory and, of course, my co-host on the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Podcast put out each and every week by the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. He is your friend and mine, previously heard as David Crockett in Pandemonium Theater, Mike Mills. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. I always love coming on a 605. I've done a couple of co-host stints and uh it seems that you wanted to ask me a few questions today, so I am here to answer. Yeah, you know, I've been intrigued lately. I just read the USFL book, and he was on my mind, and he came up recently on the Jim Cornette drive through I believe, Marcus Dupree, who, to anyone who follows college sports or high school sports, maybe the greatest high school football player, one of them, this country's ever seen, just dominant. You go back and you watch those clips, and he's a monster. And, of course, he was someone that every school wanted. He went to Oklahoma was gone pretty quickly after a pretty spectacular first year. And there's an ESPN documentary, the greatest, what is it? The greatest star who wasn't, I believe, or something like that. And I'm intrigued by the guy. And I was even more intrigued when I read that he had gone into professional wrestling. And I realized I didn't know too much about that. I saw it written on, you know, you never know what you see on the internet, but I saw it written somewhere that he had wrestled for the USWA and wrestled in different places. 
And I was just curious about any information we could find out about his wrestling career. And you kind of hit me to the fact that you either were around him or knew people that were around him, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely correct. So what it was was, and to, to go back a little bit too, I heard you and Jim talking about it on a drive-thru. That's what actually got me to thinking about it. And I guess we ought to set like a timeline of of things because one of the things you asked was after he was done with football, I think you asked uh, Jim, you were like, wow, you know, with his ties to Oklahoma and Bill Watts and everything, I think uh, you had mentioned, did he ever get a shot in the UWF in like 86 or 87? Is that correct? Or I'm well, kind of no, misremembering. It was more, was he ever talked about? Was he ever around? Just because A... Obviously, Bill Watts was really tied in with Oklahoma with the wrestling program, and he name-drops Barry Switzer all the time. Steve Dr. Death Williams was on that team. Marcus Dupree would have been there around this time, right? And you look at where he's from. He's from Philadelphia, Mississippi, went to play football at University of Oklahoma. Then he joined the USFL New Orleans team, the Breakers, before they went to Portland. So right there, I mean, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Louisiana, those are three of the states of Mid-South Wrestling. So I just figured because he was such a high-profile athlete, maybe he was around. Maybe Bill Watts talked about him. Maybe they tried to recruit him. Maybe, who knows what? Maybe they were just ranting because they heard Dr. Death talking about what a pain in the ass it was that he wasn't on the team anymore, that he just left Oklahoma. (laughs) That was my question. Yeah, so, okay, so to set the stage, basically, I'm thinking like, you know, he from from what I know, he wasn't involved in wrestling in the mid 80s um, through through 1991, because I don't know if people realize this during that time. Again, from what I know, he had gained some weight once he had gotten away from football. This is after the breakers. And he then got back into shape and went out and got a tryout, I think, with the L.A. Rams at the time. And he played for the Rams for, I believe, a year, year and a half before he eventually got cut. So during that time, I have no idea if he got involved with wrestling at all there, I guess there's a chance. Uh, but to my knowledge, I have no idea if maybe he even, you know, tried to uh, try it out anywhere or had anybody take him under his wing or whatnot. The, where, where I found out Marcus Dupree was still, or was involved in wrestling was in the mid nineties with an independent promotion. So to set the stage a little, Indies in the mid-90s were nothing like the Indies they are today. Completely different ball games because basically you had the territories either had died out or whatever was left, whether it was Memphis or if you want to include Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I would say, even though Smoky Mountain did some good business at times, the territories were on life support. Is that a fair way to say it, Brian? Yeah, I mean, that's a very fair way. It's a very nice way of saying it. But yeah, they were <laughs> at a minimum on life support. Yeah. Right. They had a minimum on life support. I mean, it was like, you know, the the end was the end was near. So you had the territories on life support. So therefore you had in various areas like in South Louisiana, South Mississippi, or even in your neck of the woods in New Jersey, you had all these indie promotions that had kind of popped up and on these indie promotions, they would have uh, stars on them. So, like, I think the example you gave was there are promotions up there that use Jimmy Snooker all the time, or you named a couple other people. Yeah. Where I was at, the promotion that I started with uh, was called UWF, not any, not no affiliation with Watts' UWF, obviously, or, or any Japan UWF or whatever, but it was called UWF. Uh, the guy that ran it, uh, I remember when I met him, he had referenced Marcus Dupree as them kind of working with him. And I believe from what I was told, he worked like a show 
with them. And then if I'm getting the story wrong, this is just how I remember it. Then he kind of like disappeared and, and wasn't working with them anymore. But the name Marcus Dupree for me as a lifelong football fan, I was like, Marcus Dupree from Oklahoma, you know, played for the breakers young kid. But I was like, man, that guy was a beast. I mean, Marcus Dupree, literally that 30 for 30. He is the best that never was. I firmly believe that he was a train. He was a beast. He was a locomotive. The guy was fast. He had moves, but he would run you the hell over. So when I heard Marcus Dupree, my ears went up. I was like, oh, man, Marcus was was so he was training to be a wrestler. And the guy was like, yeah, we did this spot with him where he was like a referee under a hood. And I'm getting all the details wrong. But my point is he was involved with wrestling with this promotion. And this would have been around 1995 or so. So fast forward another year, uh, I, again, was involved with wrestling, was kind of getting trained. And this is right around the time when I kind of had my first match. I am at a quote-unquote rival promotions card uh, at the time. Now, again, you and I kind of talked about this. The indies in the 90s, especially the mid-90s, I'm assuming it was like this almost everywhere, but it felt like there were rival promotions where it was like, you work for this guy, you can't work for this guy, that guy's a jerk-off, he's an idiot, just a bunch of catty fucking bullshit. Excuse my French, Brian, but you know what I mean. Um, Can you somewhat relate to that up in the Northeast at all? Yeah, I think it was very similar. Wherever there was a regular scene was probably very similar. So what we had going on up here in New Jersey, for instance, was probably very similar, but with different a different cast of characters to what you had going on in Louisiana, where you had one or two guys on top who were on top many years ago, and they were the veterans, and the rest of the card will be filled up with younger guys, wrestling school trainees, guys who may have a little bit of a local name, but that's really it. And thanks for saying that, because I kind of missed one of my points, which was the organization that I worked for, they were using guys like Gentleman Chris Adams. That's where I got to meet him, Iceman King Parsons. Uh, Ron Simmons was even on a card at one point. So lots of guys from that, you know, 80s and early 90s that were quote unquote stars from, you know, from the the places they were at. And then, you know, it would be a bunch of local guys like myself and whoever else would be on the card. But again, one man gang worked for him, so on and so forth. But anyway, I'm at this quote unquote, I guess, rival promotions card. And little do I know that they, according to the guy that I knew who was running the UWF, they they did the exact same spot that this other promotion did, you know, a year or six months before, however long it was, where, you know, they got this guy, he's under a mask, which I have no clue why that storyline would make sense. And maybe they did something before that, but I wasn't at that card. So Marcus is under a mask and he ends up helping the baby face get the win. He unmasked and everybody's like, hey, it's Marcus Dupree, former, you know, Oklahoma star and star from the, you know, USFL New Orleans Breakers. And the crowd goes nuts. And there's probably 600 people in this building when this happens, um, you know, which was a nice draw for that time in, in the Indies in the mid 90s. So anyway, uh, Marcus at that point was he wasn't I don't want to say he was he definitely wasn't in like uh, playing shape as far as his football days, but he was pretty damn jacked. I mean, he was a nice size guy. wasn't wasn't really cut, but he was big. He, he had some nice size on him. Um, I think I remember him kind of um, either being on a car that I was on. It's so long ago, or wasn't on a car. It just was a car that I was at where he kind of. I think he may have wrestled once, and um, I didn't. Re- I mean, he did basic stuff, so I can't really say if he was great or good or whatever. But that was kind of the last at least in the 90s that I ever remember hearing about Marcus Dupree related to wrestling. So if anybody else knows anything about it, it, it would be news to me. The only other thing that I know beyond the 90s into the 2000s from what I heard was 
I believe at least somewhere in Mississippi, I'm not sure if it was Philadelphia, Mississippi, where he's from or, you know, somewhere around that. He actually, I think, was involved in promoting a show or two. So I believe there was like a card where, you know, he was kind of like the promoter and he brought some guys in and maybe he even worked it. I don't know. I never saw the card, never saw any video footage from it. But I remember seeing in the days of MySpace, I believe it was where Marcus was like, um, he was on the, you know, the old flyers that they would have back then, uh, may have been on the flyer, but, uh, he, he, you know, he, I guess promoted a show. And that was the last that I had heard of ever Marcus Dupree being involved with wrestling. Now, the thing is by the mid two thousands, he probably was getting a little older and maybe it wasn't going to work out for him. But I mean, in the mid nineties, he was still relatively young. And I'm guessing if he could have got the proper training and wanted to stick with it, I'd see no reason why an athlete like him couldn't transition to it. Uh, because I mean, he was just a, he's a big guy. He was obviously pretty agile and he was a heck of an athlete just from his time in, you know, playing, you know, sports, pro, uh, football, whether it's pro football, college football, whatever. But uh, that's uh, what I know about Marcus Dupree related to wrestling. And again, you and Jim piqued my interest when you all brought him up. And Jim was like, I don't know whatever happened with him. So he did have a small stint in wrestling, whether it was the Indies or whatever. But uh, that's Marcus Dupree. One last thing before we go, Mike. Uh, obviously, the Saints were really bad for a number of years in your childhood. Really bad. Really, oh, really bad. <laughs> and you had Mid-South Wrestling. You had the dog. So what was it like in New Orleans for you as a kid when the USFL did start and the New Orleans Breakers did become a team? Did New Orleans accept them? Did they like them because the Saints were so bad? And was it a big deal when Marcus Dupree was signed to the New Orleans Breakers? It was a huge deal when Marcus signed with the New Orleans Breakers. I actually remember they had like a, I don't know how to call it a parade because that wouldn't be the correct term, but they had this um, like big old signing thing with them down in front of the Superdome from what I recall, where I want to say they had him like this horse and carriage and they, you know, basically laid out the red carpet for him. So it was, um, it was, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty big deal when Marcus Dupree signed because he was a guy from the South, you know, he went to Oklahoma, although I wouldn't say Louisianans relate to Oklahoma football because we have LSU, but it was a big deal. Then he had name value. And, and I mean, Brian, think about sports in general, whether it's pro wrestling or pro football, you got name value. That's a big deal. Would you agree with that? I would. And he had a lot of name value because again, he was such a heralded high school player. There's a great book that I have called the courting of Marcus Dupree, where the actual scouts moved to Philadelphia, Mississippi. I mean, one of them had to leave there with him. And they weren't going to leave that town. They stayed there. They got to know him, his family. They did everything they could when he was in high school. I mean, he was a young prodigy like football has never seen before. And again, the, the greatest that never was, because when you see the footage of him in high school and then when he briefly played in Oklahoma, it's dynamic stuff. And I think maybe as much from going to high school in Mississippi, that would have probably meant just as much. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong or right in New Orleans at that time than it would have that he played for a little over a season with Oklahoma. Yeah, I, probably so. If if not if not the same if not more at least equal to because 
you know, uh, he, he just was that dynamic of an athlete. And I mean, the thing was, he, you know, we talked about this at one point, you and I, where he, he was in that Fiesta Bowl. That just in itself almost made him a legend where he went home, didn't do anything, gained weight. And then he shows up at the Fiesta Bowl and runs for over 200 yards, I believe it was. So he had that name recognition and name value. Going back to what you said about the Saints, yeah, we had some lean, lean, lean years. Actually, terrible years. What am I saying? Lean. So Mid-South Wrestling, JYD was like a pro franchise to us. And JYD was like the athlete that we enjoyed. You and I have talked about this on one of the first times I was on with you, where JYD came in first place when they did a survey for uh, the top athlete in the area back in the early 80s. And the choices were I believe Pete Maravich, I know Archie Manning was one, and JYD was another. And I believe it was JYD who won, you know, that. So we're talking about he's up against pro athletes. Now, I guarantee you did that today. You're not going to have the top wrestler in the WWE or Ring of Honor or wherever be anywhere close to compared to, you know, your top athlete on your franchise in your hometown. So it was a, it was a, you know, football in general was a big deal. And even though the Saints weren't good, people loved the Saints. I mean, they were, they were the lovable losers, but we still loved them. They were our team and JYD was that athlete. So uh, when the, when the breakers came in, it was weird. Cause at the time that was, I believe the last year that the USFL played during the springtime. So we had spring football. And actually, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I want to say I've read an article where with Marcus Dupree, and I believe uh, they also had a guy named Buford Jordan who would actually go on to be a saint and have a decent career in the NFL too. Uh, They, I want to say they were one of the top teams in the league in attendance, they drew really, really well in the Superdome. They actually got off to a, from what I remember, they got off to something like a seven and two start in that one year that they were in New Orleans. Uh, Cause the breakers were the nomads of the NF of the USFL. They went from Boston to New Orleans and Portland, the three years that the USFL was in business and um, they drew well and, and the people rallied and got behind them. There's actually some footage of it on YouTube. If you wanted to ever go watch Marcus Dupree uh, play for the breakers is there's, there's tons of USFL games actually on YouTube. So name recognition, why it was a big deal. I remember it, you know, Marcus came in and, um, just, it was a big deal, man. I mean, it was a, it was, I want to say the USFL probably was like one of the last pro sports leagues that I think actually had a chance to do something, but they messed up. They should have never went to a fall schedule. So I know you didn't ask that, but in relation to in relation to pro sports, though, uh, the Saints were a big deal. It's just a big a deal as Mid South was during during this time period and like that eighty two time period. Of course, Marcus Dupree would end up having a problem with Barry Switzer at Oklahoma, which is why he didn't go back. He didn't appreciate being criticized for his weight and his training in the press. I happen to agree with him that his head coach should not do that. With that said, he probably would have had an issue with Bill Watts. And Bill Watts' way of managing talent, too, if Barry Switzer was giving him a big problem. But with that, Mike, as we wrap this up, Mike, let the listeners know how they can hear you on Booking the Territory. Well, you can go to wherever you get your podcast from, including the 605 Super Podcast, and just search for Booking the Territory, and you will get our two shows every single week. One is on Thursday night, the other on Sunday. One of the shows covers the old 605 show. 
Um, we're not trying to steal anything from you, obviously, Brian, but it's on the TBS <laughs> show. Uh, the, the 605 show, or as we call it, NWA Saturday Night on TBS. We basically go week by week through each and every episode. We started in late 85, and we are up through uh, basically, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but just say Starcade 87. We're around that time. So a uh, good two years we've been into that. And then the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Recap Show, where you joined Doc and I right when we were launching that show at the very beginning of it. Well, now we are up to the point where the gangsters, as Bob Cottle likes to say, comes in uh, as the gangsters come into the territory. And Bob Cottle just has a funny way of saying their name. So, again, just search Book in the Territory wherever you get your podcast or go to tinyurl.com slash bttpod. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mike504Saints. And uh, hope you enjoy the shows and enjoy BTT. Brian, as always, I love doing the Mid-South Show with you. And I always love coming on the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership. And we are back on the Super Podcast, and I'm very happy to say right now here with me is a good friend of mine and, of course, a friend of the show. He was recently a co-host, and the reaction was overwhelming. Mike Sempervivi. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you. You know, when you said the reaction was overwhelming, I was hoping it was in a negative fashion. Well, I was actually hoping Jim Valley was on the line. Oh, that's... (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The other Brian Brian likes him a lot more than me, too. (laughs) Well, 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 I'm sure everyone likes both of you guys together. But hey, I wanted to talk uh, for a few minutes because there's a couple things going on before we get to our next segment. And Cauliflower Alley just happened as you and I are recording. And I have to talk about this because it cracked me up and it was completely not surprising. Have you ever heard Mike stories about Marty Funk? I have. The wife of Dory Funk Jr., who has been married to him, or at least with him since the early 80s. I don't know when exactly they got married, but I believe they got together when Dory was in Florida as the booker in 1982. And Marty, I think, is either his manager or his agent. You know, it's tough when you're the wife or the spouse of someone. What exactly are you beyond that? But she acts in the role of either his manager or his agent. And whenever Dory Fung Jr. gets booked anywhere, whether it's in Japan, whether it's for an indie show, and I know there really aren't that many indie shows now because he's an older gentleman, She's there with him. She's there, and usually she's the one dealing with the promoter, and not even usually. I've never, all the times I was around them for Dennis Carluzzo or Jim Cornette, I never saw Dory do any of the dealings. It was really Marty that did the business dealings and Dory who did the wrestling dealings, and I assume that's the way Dory liked it. You know, that's the only reason I would think that happens. Dory said, you know what? I like it like this, and more power to him. But Marty, over the years, has garnered a little bit of a reputation for being difficult. And I have to say, She was always very nice to me, and I was around her several times, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Terry Funk's Ranch in Amarillo, many, 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 many times for Dennis Carluzzo. Always nice to me. However, I have witnessed shit, and I have seen her drive people completely crazy. And I also know stories firsthand, verbatim, about her and some of her behavior costing Dory Funk Jr. money, costing him opportunities that he had and lost or would have had. So Marty is somewhat of a notorious character, but again, a lot of people, myself included, I never had a negative experience with her, but I did witness stuff. Now, I haven't been around her since the late 90s. So Dory Funk Jr., just recently this past week at the Cauliflower Alley was honored. I think, do you remember what the exact award was, Mike? Oh man, it's the, like the legacy. I know he was presented by Nick Aldis. I will find it as we go along here. 
Well, Dory Funk Jr. is there. They're honoring him. Like you said, Nick Aldis, the current NWA champion there to honor one of the legendary NWA champions. Really a transformative title run. It was kind of the end of that era of those, you know, Thez and Kaniski. And Dory Funk Jr. really injected youth into it. And think about it. From there, it went Harley. Originally, it was going to go Briscoe. But it went Harley, then Briscoe, then Terry. So, I mean, it really started the kind of youth movement, which ended up with Ric Flair a decade later getting the NWA title. And ironically, you say that, too. It was the Luthez Lifetime Achievement Award that he was actually getting. And you know what? He's someone who deserves that award. Absolutely. So congratulations to Dory Funk Jr. So the Funks are there. And I heard this story from several people, including people who were there when it happened. I heard this story I'm about to tell within a minute and a half of it happening. Now, before you go on, (laughs) it it can be noted that several or at least one of the things that you have talked about with with Marty in the past has taken place at CAC. CAC seems to be a place where Marty Funk has been um, unleashed or (laughs) has has had the opportunity to to try to book things maybe that other people don't know about or or try to put Dory in in situations. I mean, has she she's done this at CAC before, correct? I actually don't know. I don't know their their background, their history with CAC, but I will find out. But on this specific occasion, with several people there, (laughs) all of who seemingly got in touch with me within seconds, including with pictures of the evidence, what happened was Here they are, Cauliflower Alley Club, the Cauliflower Alley Reunion. Really, when you think about it, Cauliflower Alley is wrestling social club. You know, you go there to mingle. You go there to reunite with people you haven't seen in many years. You go there to talk to people you may have only corresponded with on telephone or via letter or, you know, nowadays on the computer. That's what it is. It's wrestling social club. And by and large, anyone you talk to who goes will say, I met this person and this person and this person. Everyone was wonderful. Everyone was terrific. Rarely do you hear, man, that person was an asshole. You know, rarely do you hear that. So a fan goes up to Dory Funk Jr. And he says, Dory, I just want to say I'm a really big fan of yours. And it's a pleasure to meet you. And Dory is very kind. He's a very, very nice man. And the fan says, I actually have a DVD I made. And from what I was told, the DVD was, I guess, a good selection of Dory's major matches in Japan from the JWA years, and then the early years of All Japan. So this would have taken him into, I guess, the mid-70s. Dory, I don't know if he had the matches already or not, but either way, he was very, very thankful, very, very kind, said, thank you so much. The fan then said, I have a trading card of you. Would you sign it for me? And it was one of those old Norm Keitzer wrestling all-star cards. You know the ones I'm talking about, like 1982, 1983? Oh, yeah. Sets. Really, I, by the way, I'm still looking for a whole set. If anyone has any, they're looking to get rid of. Get in touch. I have some, but I'm missing. For some reason, I have like Buck Zumhoff. I don't need that card. <laughs> Someone hooked me up with Ric Flair. But anyway. That's when you wanted to pull the, the, the Cal Ripken out of the pack, but you kept getting that Greg Nettles over and over again. I know, I know the feeling. I don't have any of the good ones. Here, you know, real quick, here's who I have. Killer Khan, Jack Briscoe. The Grand Wizard, Freddie Blassie. I have two Ken Lucases. Super Destroyer, The Grappler, Buddy Rogers. See, that's a good one. That's a good one. Gorgeous Gino, Sheik Adnan El Casey, Colonel Buck Roby. I have a couple Les Thorntons. Brad Ringens, Jerry Blackwell, Ray Stevens, Mr. Wrestling 2, Bobby Duncan, Dino Bravo, Mr. Olympia, Ricky Morton, another Ricky Morton, Salvatore Balomo. Who is this? Buddy fucking Rose, Antonio Inoki, Jimmy Snooker, Tiger Mask, The Crusher, Buck Zumhoff, Spike Huber, 
Cowboy Scott Casey, another Buddy Rose, Matt Bourne, Sergeant Jacques Goulet, Luthez, Iron Mike Sharp, Bob Sweetan, and Candy Divine. So does, now. does Goulet have the glove on? Uh, hold on. I just, I'm trying to get these back in order. Let's see. Sergeant Jacques. No, it is just a scary, blurry photo of his face with his hat on. <laughs> so I have some of these cards. I don't have the Dory Funk Jr. one. And I can tell you these cards aren't easy to come by at a reasonable price because they are hard to come by, especially in a really good condition and mint condition. So this fan had a Dory Funk Jr. wrestling all-stars card. And he says, Dory, we assign it. And Dory says, yeah. And he signs it. Seconds later, Marty Funk shows up, grabs Dory Funk by the arm. Again, this is what I've been told by multiple people who witnessed this. Grabbed Dory Funk by the arm and said, don't do that again. And then turned to the fan and said, can I see that card? And she crossed out the Dory Funk autograph with a sharpie. (laughs) So there is now a Wrestling All-Stars card autographed by Dory Funk. However... The majority of the Dory Funk Jr. autograph in Sharpie is crossed out by Marty Funk in Sharpie. So I heard that. I said, come on, it can't be real. And then I was sent the photo of it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I, I, I want that card now for my collection. Forget about my Wrestling All-Stars collection. The collectible of Marty Funk destroying the autograph. That's what I want. <laughs> that's I want a video of that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to get my hands on that. If anyone uh, has a copy, of that, please, I'd love the original. But uh, I heard this story and I said, you know what? I got to talk about this on the air. And then yesterday, as I was getting ready to uh, to record this with you today, I was told that due to an incident, and I don't know all the details on this yet, where Marty Funk either shoved or put her hands on or hit in some way Gerald Briscoe. That Marty Funk has been banned for life from the Cauliflower Alley Club. <laughs> Marty Funk is now a member of the same club as Hangman Bruce Pobans. <laughs> yes, that's What the fuck? I, why isn't that filmed? <laughs> I say 2019 for heaven's sake. I, I just so where this is this now makes her Far past Makoto Baba, does it not? Or or does it? Where does she stand on the scale of, of Makoto? And maybe maybe Dory Funk learned uh, about the boss lady, the dragon lady, the good cop, bad cop, you know, fr- from Baba in the relationship with Makoto that he had. Maybe he's setting that up, and that's what he has set up with Marty, and it has just been now taken to a... A degree where no wrestling promotion was lost because everybody stood up and walked out, but where you will never be able to be accosted by Mike Lano at a at a bar, <laughs> which maybe actually maybe the the biggest benefit to her being banned for life from us. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, listen, Mrs. Baba was successful. She was a business lady. Anything you want to say about her and yelling at people or treating people badly or loving Johnny Ace or whatever it may be, she made money. I mean, she literally was giant baba's partner in a way that a lot of people pretend that linda was the vince yeah that's exactly right yeah so i mean that's the difference there but yes from what i understand as of today marty funk is no longer allowed at the cauliflower alley club and i gotta say i can't blame them if she is doing that to fans who ask for autographs and get them it's one thing to say no you can't have the autograph it's another thing to say give me that autograph and ruin it yes that's insanity that's well, fucking I, crazy. And you just, you can't be putting, even though it's uh, the cauliflower 
cauliflower uh, alley club. You cannot put hands on anybody, not not in this day and age. And I don't know why she would have put hands on Gerald Briscoe, but I mean, it doesn't sound like there's an excuse like a Chavo Guerrero. He was drunk excuse. No, this just sounds like Marty. So, yeah. so it's drunk uh, on something else. Uh, yeah. Oh man. Uh, and see, you don't want that. Oh, no, you don't want that. And uh, we'll have more about Cauliflower Alley in the future here on the show. I'm sure we'll have to do a few segments because so many people were there and there are so many stories I've heard about. Apparently, and we're not going to go into this today, there was a confrontation between Dr. Miglano and Haku, a very angry Haku. And there was also another moment where David Schultz yelled at Miglano to sit down and shut up and buy his book. So <laughs> we'll have more stories about CAC with the many, many listeners. Of course, we had a very, very big contingent of 605ers there. And thank you to everyone who attended. And of course, thank you to Jace Nakarado, our community director here at Arcadian Vanguard for arranging everything. But Mike, before we move on with the show, I want to play something for you. And I was really happy to recently rediscover this. I went through some stuff and I found my entire Mid-South VHS collection. And I have a pretty significant collection of this stuff. A lot of stuff that's not in circulation. A lot of stuff that's not on the WWE network. A lot of the stuff that WWE simply doesn't have. And right around this period of time, I also got a converter and I got a VCR. I got my first new VCR in 25 years. I don't know. I don't even remember the last time I got a new VCR. And, and I, when I say new, it, it's new to me. I'm sure it's been used before, although it's in mint condition, but I got a VCR and then I got a converter and I said, you know what? I'm going to convert some Mid-South stuff. And I found some stuff I hadn't seen in years. The last Stampede match from the Superdome in New Orleans. I don't think that's out there. I know the Houston one is, but I found the Superdome one. I found Bill Watts versus Killer Carl Cox in the KTBS studios in, I believe, 1976 North American wow. title match with a run-in by the spoiler and Dick Murdoch and so much other shit. And then I found this. This promo I'm about to play for you. Now, I've talked in the past about the tape parties I used to have in the 90s at various events. This promo was always a big, big hit. And what this is, is 1983, April 1983, Hacksaw Jim Duggan in Mid-South Wrestling. This is right before he turned babyface. And it is him doing a local promo for Biloxi, Mississippi. Good luck finding more Biloxi, Mississippi local promos. If anyone has any, get in touch with me. I could use them on the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review. This one has survived. And I have this, and I'm going to put it on YouTube. For anyone who wants to see it, you can go to the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube channel, and you can see this original localized promo, which has been lost to time. And it is amazing, Mike, that this got on the air. I want to get your thoughts on this on the other side. But I want you to pay attention to a couple things. One, you will hear laughter in the background. The boys sitting there waiting to do their promos, Start laughing at this promo. Also, you will hear an audible cough in the middle of the promo. Someone sitting there laughing coughs. Now, in terms of did this promo get on the air, I can't say with 100% certainty that it did. However, I believe it did, and it is a finalized promo. It is a completed promo. All the graphics are on the screen, and you'll hear in a moment. This is a full promo. It just happens to have some hijinks in the middle. So, Mike, if you're prepared on your end. I am indeed. We are now going to check out this promo. This is Hacksaw Jim Duggan, April 1983. I guess actually the promo may be from March of 1983, right before the April show here. But let's listen to this, and we will talk about it on the other side. Tonight, beginning at 7.30 at the Mississippi Gulf Coast Coliseum, we can guarantee lots of excitement all the way down the wrestling program. In the main event, Tiger Conway Jr. and Mr. Wrestling 2 will do battle with Kamala the Ugandan Warrior, 
And, listen to this, General Scandor Akbar himself. Hacksaw Butch Reed from Atlanta. We'll tangle with Super Destroyer, also from Atlanta. You'll see Tim Horner meet the Black Ninja. But listen to this. It's not over yet. Chavo Guerrero meets oh, Hacksaw Duggan. Go marching in! Oh, when the Yanks go marching in, I'm proud to be in the number. When the Yanks go marching in. A singer yet. Everybody plays music going to the ring. Everybody wants to come down and shake their body and howl at the moon. Well, maybe Hacksaw Duggan wants some music. And what would be more appropriate in Biloxi, Mississippi, than the Yanks come marching in? Now, to talk about my problem that I've had for quite a while. <laughs> South of the border problem. A Mexican cockroach. Chavo Guerrero. A little team. A hacksaw dug an exterminating company. You can't find us in the yellow pages. It's a new listing. But if you get a hold of us, you can see that we spare no expense. I went out and not only got myself a sprayer, but a deluxe sprayer. It's a double barrel, twin action deluxe spray. I came out here before with a big cylinder and tried to get all the cracks and crevices around here. It didn't work. Why? Because this one Mexican cockroach doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the mat. He's always flying around. Well, that direct spray just doesn't get the job done. <laughs> you got to get a fanny action in there. Just like shooting ducks. You got to lead them. Chavo Guerrero, <coughs> look what I've got for you. Deluxe Super Action Hackstar Duggan Exterminating Company property. That's this stuff right here. You can screw this off. I got a special solution to put in here. Made it up special with hot taco sauce. That way they fly closer where I like them. Because when they get in close, you don't have to use the whole spray. Just jab them. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Oh, when the Yanks go marching in. Oh, when the Yanks go. Entertainer and great athlete, too. He is indeed a rough individual. Come on out tonight, 730. Well, Mike, what did you think of that? That was that was a 1980s promo, and in fact, not as bad as I thought it could end up being. <laughs> <laughs> Susie started talking about Chavo Guerrero, but that what a, I I wonder if it just was one of those things where Bill Watts was in the best mood he could have possibly been in that day, and they probably wouldn't let that fly some other time, but they just went. Ah, the hell with it. It was good enough. And, you know, yeah, there's some coughing and such in the background, but the hell with it. We'll roll with it. <laughs> if it was a promo for New Orleans or Tulsa, he may not have rolled with it. No. <laughs> but Biloxi, Mississippi, I guess he was like, eh, let's do it. And except for except for the cough and except for the, the background and Reese are breaking up there a little bit, which was almost impossible for him not to. And, <laughs> and he saved it as a pro at the end by an entertainer and a great rough wrestler. You know, <laughs> so, so I think it may have just been that. But, you know, always with the thought that nah, who the hell is recording this sort of stuff? This will never see the light of day again. Except you found it. <laughs> except I found it. That's right. I, I can't wait to see what else I'm going to find going through my stuff. But 
that's one of the things I love about this is Reeser. Because Reeser, at the very beginning, when Duggan comes in singing, he goes, hey, singer yet? You know, he's like taking the piss out of it in a way. And then Duggan just does his whole promo, cracks up the room, cracks up Reeser, who has a giant smile on his face. And by the time Duggan gets to the word hot taco sauce, Reeser loses it. Even Duggan cracks. Even Duggan cracks at that point. And then he sings and walks out. And that's a good difference between the WWF Duggan and the promos he did there and the Mid-South Duggan or Dugan, maybe I should say. And the promos he did there, which were always fun, not necessarily always this off the wall and uh, somewhat racist, I guess. But it's it shows you how funny Duggan was in Mid-South, even with the seriousness. Absolutely. I mean, he was always a cartoon character like a lot of good professional wrestlers are. I mean, they're they're walking human cartoon characters, and that's what he was. But you watch the Hacksaw Duggan that came into the ring to face Buzz Sawyer, you know, at the at, at Dick Slater at the Crockett Cup, and he gets in, he stomps, he says ho, he puts out his thumb, all those same things that he would do into the WWF when he was there. But he wasn't the walking cartoon character that they turned him into. He was his own character. He was still this athlete, this rough individual, this ex-football player, this badass. And when he went to the WWF, he was just a goof with a board, <laughs> you know, and that's he just that's the difference. And they 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 take the piss and the starch out of a lot of people, whether it be the Butch Reeds and they turning him into the naturals or the one man gangs and turning him into a keem or whoever it was that, that came up from the, the, the Mid-South and from the UWF and the new characters and that Vince touch that they got when they went on there. You know, not the least of which being Ted DiBiase turning into the million dollar man, although it couldn't think of a better thing if you wanted to, to actually have a WWF type of character thrust upon you. It might as well be the million dollar man. I think DiBiase made out in that one. But most of the other people, they took these these characters and then they turned them into caricatures. And that's the the biggest legacy of what WWF did and, and the downward spiral in many ways to what we've become today. Do you remember there was a brief time in, I want to say, late 89, where Dr. That Steve Williams started kind of morphing into Jim Duggan? He started doing the hoe in the ring with the thumbs up. And then, like, even some of the promos, I remember specifically they did one little package. It may have been, I want to say it was at the start of a Clash of the Champions. He was wrestling maybe the Samoan Savage or someone. And it was him in an ambulance as Dr. Death trying to revive someone. Yes. But he was doing all the wacky Duggan stuff like, oh, we got to get like the face and the way he was talking and he was doing the hoe. And I know they were best friends in Mid-South, but it's weird how in 89, all of a sudden, Dr. Death started incorporating a lot of Duggan stuff. And then he didn't. And then he went back to being Dr. Death again. Right down to even saying tough guy and like stomping the foot. I mean, he <laughs> it was like everything. And again, yeah, for what reason, I don't know. Other than I guess Duggan wasn't there, so it's I guess he was in technically in Crockett now, so this was a new place for him. So okay, we'll just go ahead and do that. But yeah, I don't know, but you're exactly right. It does it does stand out. Well, Mike, before we wrap things up, I know the listeners know that you are the host of Wrestling Observer Live or the co-host some days. Let the listeners know once again how they can find you on there and of course how they can stay in touch with you on social media. Yeah, co-host every day when I get a chance to host it. We try to turn that sucker into the Mike Semper Vivi show. Boy, boy <laughs> that would be nice. But yeah, with Brian Alvarez every single day, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, noon Pacific, 7 GMT. 
uh, Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 Pacific, replays on Saturday. You can listen to that show through Sports Byline USA. There are some over-the-air affiliates. You have to just kind of check around to see which ones they are. But for the most part, how we listen to anything anymore uh, through apps and TuneIn.com or the TuneIn app is one of the easiest ways you can do it. I believe iHeart is another one, but TuneIn is is very simple. They got a Sports Byline feed up there that's easy to click on. If you have a satellite radio. The show is live Sundays 6 to 8 on the Dan Patrick Network as well as Fight Network. Uh, it was it used to be Channel 93. They moved everything around. Now. I, I think Dan Patrick is 211. i got to double-check on what the other one is. But it, it's available on there. And then replays of, of, of Observer Live from the week are also available on Sirius uh, on Saturdays as well. I just got to check the, the listings for that. Go to sportsbyline.com or, or wrestlingobserver.com. You're going there anyway to check out uh, Dave's newsletter, of course. So uh, there's a little link there uh, talking about uh, Observer Live. So just click on that for uh, more details. And for me, at SemperVivi, S-E-M-P-E-R-V-I-V-E. Know your Latin, everybody. Uh, always alive on Twitter there. Uh, that's the easiest place to get a hold of me. I've given up on Facebook, although... Becoming a closer member of the 605 community, I may bring that back just so I can start to vote on the top 10. Hey, hey now. I like what you're talking right now. I guess we're going to have to have the top 10 on the next episode. But as we move forward with the show, Mike, let's now go to our next segment. I had a conversation with Ricardo Coleman. You'll find out more about him in a moment here. All about the junkyard dog and Mid-South Wrestling, and I think everyone's going to find this very, very interesting. A lot of us give our opinions. A lot of us opine about why we think the Junkyard Dog had problems in Mid-South Wrestling. Why we think the Mid-South Wrestling crowds went down in New Orleans. Ricardo was there. Ricardo grew up in New Orleans. Let's now hear him and his perspective. Let's go to this conversation I had with Ricardo Coleman. I am happy to welcome to the Super Podcast today, Ricardo Coleman. And we're going to talk about the Junkyard Dog and Mid-South Wrestling and much, much more. Ricardo, thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. I invited you because you sent out a series of really, really interesting tweets, I don't know, maybe a week mm-hmm. ago or within the last week as we're recording here today. And I guess you had heard several things, including a recent episode of The drive Through, where one of the questions that came in for Jim Cornette was about the Junkyard Dog and the Junkyard Dog's leaving of Mid-South Wrestling, and we had an extended discussion about that. And we've talked a lot about it in the past, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've heard, because I know you listen to various shows, Different wrestlers and different people around give their take. And that's what you did on Twitter. You gave your take as someone who grew up in New Orleans, someone who knows what the fans were thinking and going through at that time. And I wanted to talk to you about that here today on the show. But before we get there, give a little bit of your background. Who are you and when did you start watching wrestling? Okay. um, Well, um, I grew up uh, here in New Orleans. I'm... uh, a professor of uh, English as a second language at University of New Orleans and Delgado Community College. I began watching wrestling, I think, when I was six years old. And I got into it because everybody was talking about some guy named the Junkyard Dog. And, you know, being a kid, uh, you know, you don't really know all the details and you don't care about the details, but you do know that there was a lot of excitement surrounding this guy. And uh, it was around the time of the blinding angle. And um, I grew up in the Florida projects. So I grew up in uh, uh, public housing. And most of the people that I knew that grew up in public housing, they went to the matches on on Monday night. And they ran weekly. And 
again, there was just this buzz in the neighborhoods about JYD and about uh, this whole angle where he had been blinded and he couldn't, uh, you know, he missed the birth of his daughter. And, you know, it was a really emotional thing. So you said there was a lot of buzz about it. You started hearing about the Junkyard Dog. It's 1980. It's around the time of the blinding angle. You're hearing it Mm -hmm. in the projects where you're growing up. What about at school? How big was JYD and wrestling at school? Oh, my God. Everybody wanted to be JYD to the point where you had people picking each other up, giving them the thump. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so you can imagine walking down the halls uh, or being at recess and uh, suddenly, you you know, you get scoop slammed or power slammed in the dirt. But uh, I mean, it was the talk of the lunchroom crowd and people were, you know, even amongst kids, we were pretty angry about it because, um, I mean, he was our hero. He really was. He was. He was a hero, but like I said, at that time, I just got into wrestling, so I really didn't know what was going on, and so I started watching the weekly shows, and it was on a little nothing happening independent television station here, and the more I watched it, the more I got excited about it, and of course, when you go to school, you know, that's all anybody's talking about. We're going to talk a lot more about the dog, obviously, but Who else really struck you from Mid-South Wrestling? When you start watching and you start learning who the different wrestlers and the different personalities are, who else really stuck with you? Well, uh, Cowboy Bill Watts, of course. He was um, almost like the uh, kindly father figure type. And um, so whatever he said carried a lot of weight. Um, Undoubtedly, Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff was a guy who you looked at and he looked like a living action figure. Right. Yeah. So, that's a good way to put it. And, and right. And so even uh, even though I mean we didn't know it was a work, we knew it wasn't totally on the up and up. But we believed in Paul Orndorff. We believed that he could kick anybody's ass and he could do anything he wanted. So you guys were smart. That's what you're trying to say. Because uh, <laughs> you knew because that's the truth. He would have kicked anyone's ass. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, I mean, you just looked at this guy, and he was just—you know—he he just seemed to be in a rage all the time. He just seemed to be a really um, a guy with a short fuse. And so you believe that if you approached him or if you crossed him, you would probably end up in a bad way. You would probably end up at Charity Hospital. In the projects itself, I mean, you didn't start watching until you're six. In terms of the name Junkyard Dog starting to spread and people talking about him and, and everything, yeah. try to go into detail with it. I know it's a weird question because how do you say, you know, tell me about what it was like to be there and hear that. But really, you know, when we <laughs> when we look back on the Junkyard Dog, I'm sure you're very well aware. People talk about just how big he was in New Orleans. People talk about the chance. People yeah. talk about that he transcended wrestling. He was at another level. Just how true is yeah. that? At that point in 1980, how true was that? In terms of the local athletes that you had in New Orleans, mm-hmm. where was the Junkyard Dog? He was pretty high up. You know, um, people often talk about uh, the newspaper survey, which uh, talked about the most popular athlete in New Orleans. I mean, in my part of town, Archie Manning was okay, but Pistol Pete was pretty popular. I would say that Dog was probably on the same level as Pistol Pete Maravich. And Pistol Pete was held in high esteem here. As far as where he was in terms of visibility um the local newspaper never really covered wrestling and if they did it was you know it was usually a disparaging article or you know it was really really jokey jokey ha ha but i remember an article that they did on the dog and i actually pulled it up 
where they just they did a straight interview with him and it, it wasn't jokey jokey, it wasn't disrespectful. And that was a big deal. You know, it really made him look legit, like a legit athlete. Um, I mean, of course, of course, we didn't think anything he could be anything else. But I mean, it was it was a big deal. When did you first attend a wrestling show? I'm assuming at the Municipal Auditorium. And also, do you remember the first time you heard the chant, the who that chant? Oh, wow. Um, I think it was about eight. And uh, of course, it was on a Monday night. And the first time I heard that chant, first of all, I want to clear something up about that chant. That chant didn't start. I don't think that chant started with the dog. It started with the St. Augustine uh, High School football team. And it carried over into uh, all the sporting events around town. And so Mid-South, those shows, I mean, people looked at it as a sporting event. And so they did it at St. All Games. They did it at Saints Games. And so they started doing it at the matches. And the first time I went to a show, I mean, it was um, uh, the auditorium. It's a 7,000-seat building and um, very, very elegant-looking building. But by that time, it was pretty old. But the sound acoustics in that building were tremendous. The first time I heard the chant, there were so many people in there, we, we had to sit in the aisles. And it felt like the floor was vibrating. It, it was incredible. And when he came out, I mean, the people lost their fucking minds. I mean, can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever been to a show where, uh, you know, Hulk Hogan made his entrance, but it was on. It was about the same level. It, it was, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. And that chant, it uh, rung in your ears for about three or four days. You talk about it being seven thousand people. You know, we know from watching the Mid South Wrestling Show each week. We do obviously. Me and Mike Mills do the Mid South Wrestling Television Review. It's such a diverse, I love that show. It's such a diverse audience. It's one of my favorite things. I've said it on the show. I love the inclusiveness in that audience, even though mm-hmm. you may think Hank, the guy in the cowboy hat, you know, maybe he's a Klansman <laughs> or something, but he's sitting next to an African-American uh, lady. You know, there are kids, right, there are adults, right. every race. It's really such an interesting audience. That's Shreveport. When you went to the municipal auditorium, what was the makeup of mm-hmm. that crowd like? Uh, I would probably say maybe 80% black and uh, 20% white. Again, most people would say, well, wow, you know, that, you know, that, that would probably uh, lead to some problems. But there was never any problems on that level. It was cool. It was cool. What about kids to adults? Oh, well, um, lots of kids went to the matches. And um, a lot of them would be... I don't know. Most of them wouldn't be in the front rows, but uh, three or four rows back, you would see a lot of kids in the audience. It was a, it was very much a family event in those days. I always went with my family, and I know a lot of other people who did. Mothers, fathers, kids, everybody. And it was weekly. It wasn't a once-a-month thing, once-a-quarter thing. It was once a week in New Orleans. Once a week in New Orleans, like clockwork. Were your family also wrestling fans? Oh, absolutely. Yes. My mother, not so much. Uh, my dad, he was uh grandmother, cousin. Uh, I got a lot of scars from my cousins because we <laughs> go outside to try. Uh, <laughs> you know how it goes. Don't yeah. try it at home. And as soon as the show was over, you were in the backyard <laughs> trying it. But, but yeah, they were huge wrestling fans. And um, uh, one thing, it was cool to go to my grandmother's. And, I mean, she had cable. And so we could see Georgia. 
So Georgia was cool, but it just, you know, the production was different. It was a lot better, but it didn't compare to Mid-South as far as the action. Were you watching Georgia by this point that we just talked about in 1982? I only got to watch it maybe a handful of times uh, when I went over to my grandmother's. Because Bill Watts, you know, on the Mid-South show, he starts making comments in 82 after Orndorff leaves and goes to Georgia, after the Samoans leave and go to Georgia, about how you may be seeing guys you used to see here on Georgia TV, well, the competition's easier there. You know, whatever he would say. You know, Right, right. Yeah, he, he, um, you know, he would make these little comments, but most people in New Orleans didn't have cable. I mean, it, you know, it, uh, cable came to New Orleans in, in different phases. And so the part of the town that my grandmother lived in, uh, which was New Orleans East, I think they got cable first and then the rest of the city. Um, but most people in New Orleans didn't have cable until maybe 1985. So I think he may have been directing that more to people in other places who had more cable TV penetration, but not so much in New Orleans. Do you remember when DiBiase turned heel, what you thought about it? Oh, my God. <laughs> so we were watching the show. I mean, they made the announcement that uh, it was going to be DBIC against JYD. And you immediately, you felt torn because we all love DBIC, okay? But we love the dog. We revered the dog. And so something had to give. And so when they had the match, you kind of had the feeling that something was going to happen. Uh, either there was going to be a run-in or something was going to happen. Uh, they raised the stakes so high that you just felt like it was going to be a bad outcome. And so when he loaded the glove, the reaction at home was a lot different from the reaction of the crowd. Because if you remember the crowd, they didn't really react. They didn't really know what happened when Dog went down. Yeah, they were stunned. Yeah, I think they were stunned. When we watched it at home, I mean, are you fucking serious? I can't believe he did that. It, it was just, it was a lot different. A lot of TVs got broken that day, I'm sure. Unfortunately, while so many of the Mid-South shows from this era do survive, the local promos, you know, especially pre-83, in most cases don't. What were those right. local promos like, though? I mean, we talk about the relationship between the dog and New Orleans. It wasn't just watching him wrestle on Mid-South TV. It was what he would mm-hmm. say standing next to Reeser Bowden. So talk to me about those promos and how they connected with the wrestling fans. But also, what about DiBiase's promos when he finally turned heel? <laughs> well, uh, the local promos were uh, as much a part of the show as anything else. I mean, this is where you really got to see how the characters developed in Mid-South. And so you would have these larger-than-life uh I hate to call them characters, but I'll just say wrestlers um, who would do these crazy interviews and they really got over what their motivations were, who they were, why they were doing the things that they were doing. And not to mention they were fun. And then uh, when you had Reeser and Reeser was, um, I mean, well, we all know what Reeser is. I love uh, Reeser. I'm a big Reeser Bowden fan. I do. (laughs) I am. I love Reeser. You know, but Reeser, I mean, he wasn't exactly Mr. Excitement, but <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Because he this allowed the wrestlers to shine even more because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to get himself over. He just held the mic, and that was it. He just let the wrestlers do their thing. Now, one of the things 
that's really missing. That you see, when you watch the Mid South shows, they're good, right? We we love them, but those local promos give a lot of context, and it it just it gives the it gave the shows a lot more flavor, right? So you know now most of those local interviews are gone, and you really miss something when you watch those shows. Now, as far as DiBiase, he was, what can I say? He was Kylo Ren. He was uh, Darth Vader. <laughs> you know, he was he was evil. And it really looked like he fully embraced being evil. And it came out in those, in those interviews. I mean, he was menacing. He was dark. And um, as good as he was, as good as two shoes as he was, but when he was a baby face, he was completely immoral as a heel. Just the kind of heel I love. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get to the dog a little bit, because one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today was you sent a series of tweets about mm -hmm. the dog's drop in popularity. I guess that's the best way to put it. Starting yeah. in approximately 1983, not that he became unpopular or anything, that's not what you were saying, but you no. were laying the groundwork for everything that we talked about that happened in 84. What the fans yeah. in New Orleans were hearing, what they were thinking, mm -hmm. what they were seeing. So I'm going to open the floor to you right now to start talking about this. But when did things start changing with the fans and the Junkyard Dog? Uh, I think it sort of started when he came back. Well, not when he when the Staggerly angle was over. And you started to notice, you know, he was wearing jumpsuits on TV. And I mean, you started to notice it a little bit. When he came back, he was moving a little bit slower in the ring. Then he really started putting on weight. I think, I don't know how much weight he put on, but he had to put on at least 30 pounds uh, at some point in 1983. And his ring work was just, it just wasn't the same. If you remember a dog from 80 to 82, he was explosive in the ring. And, and he had um, bursts of energy. That's a great way of putting it. He was explosive, right. yeah. Right, he was he was explosive. I mean, he was doing uh, uh, that side Russian leg sweep that he would do. I mean, it was lightning quick, and um, he just showed a lot more passion. But by '83, uh, it just seemed like uh, he just he didn't care anymore. His interviews started to get really repetitive. Uh, you know, every dog needs a bone to chew on. Well, <laughs> you know, the first time you hear it, it was great, but I mean, after the 700th time. You know, it's it's kind of old. So, uh, my friends, and they were kind of like the canary in the coal mine. They were saying, "Man, you know what's wrong with dog? I mean, he's getting fat." And then they changed the ring music. Now, so let, me, dog, let me stop you cool. there because a lot of people forget okay. that when he went to the yeah. WWF after his first year, they changed his music to grab them cakes, and his popularity dropped right. because another one bites the dust was the perfect song for the Junkyard Dog. It was perfect. Yes. But in yes. 83, for a brief period of time, there was another change, and they went to George Clinton's Atomic Dog. Right. And I think that was a huge mistake. I don't know who made the decision on that. I guess it hadn't been watched, but uh, I guess they were just trying to repackage him a little bit, kind of freshen him up, because he had been there for a long time at that point. He had been, I think he had got there in, what, 79? So I guess they just wanted to freshen him up. But you have to understand something about 
I can't speak for other cities, but I can definitely speak about New Orleans. New Orleans is is a very, very traditional town in a lot of ways. They People here don't like a lot of changes. So once they like you, uh, or once they, they, they start digging you uh, in a certain way, they don't like it when you change. And so that extends to grocery stores and brand names. You know, they're very, very loyal to brands. And by that time, JYD was a brand. He was a franchise. And so when they changed that music, I think he lost a lot of his star power. It, I mean, especially with me, because along with the weight gain, which cosmetically, he didn't look like that real-life black Superman that he was. He started looking like the uncle <laughs> that, you you know, you go to see. That's a good right. way to put it. That's but, a great way to put it, yeah. Right, right. And so, you know, JYD wasn't anybody's uncle. He was, again, he was the real-life black Superman who was going to save the day. And he started to look less and less like that. Well, let me stop you real quick, because... You brought up earlier how when Bill Watts said something on TV, it carried a lot of weight with you, your friends, and everyone else that was watching Mid-South Wrestling. In 83, Bill Watts did try and explain and justify JYD's weight gain, that he was trying to bulk up to help him in the matches. Did that explanation not carry any water with you and your friends? How can I put this? Hell no. Uh, (laughs) we, We just, no. And, you know, we love Bill Watts, but we just were not buying it, you know, because also around that time, again, I grew up in, in public housing and in the part of town that I grew up in there, there was uh, two public housing complexes. I actually went to school in the Desire housing project and Desire was known for the drug trade. It was huge. And at this period of time, this is when. Not only is cocaine out there, but obviously freebasing became a big thing, and crack is about to roll right in. Absolutely. Uh, Freebasing at that time was what people did. And so rumors were going around that dog uh, or people that uh, were hanging around with dog were buying, and, and he was using. And so then it started to make sense. I think... You know, New Orleans is like uh, the biggest small town in America, you know, just as I said in the tweet. And so word got around. And I don't think I don't think people, uh, you know, were clutching their pearls was like, oh, my God, the dog is uh, doing drugs. But I just think it was a part of a perfect storm of things that led to him losing that star power that he had had. You understand? I think his ascent was a part of a perfect storm. And I think his descent was also part of a perfect storm. Right guy, right time, but also the ring music being changed, the the bad ring work, the drugs. So all of those things started to lead to his decline. And it started in 1983. What would you say was peak dog? Ooh, I would say... I would say the the, uh, the DiBiase feud, the DiBiase feud, and the angles that led up to DiBiase turning was peak JYD uh, when he was teaming with Mr. Olympia. Mr. Olympia was pretty popular in those days because of his association with JYD. I mean, just by being in the ring with JYD as an opponent or as a partner, you were seen as a star. And so it doesn't get any better than that. 
And boy, did they hate Olympia when he <laughs> turned on the dog. Oh, my goodness. The <laughs> tippy-toe bandit. He was he was known as the tippy-toe bandit. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, uh, he didn't make any friends with that term. <laughs> so going into 84, there's a few different things I want to ask you about here. Let's start with, and maybe a little out of order, but let's start with the famous mm-hmm. match, the infamous match with Wrestling 2 for the North American title at the Municipal Auditorium. A yes. lot of people have said that specific match, that specific finish, was partly responsible for killing New Orleans. What are your thoughts about all of this? I don't think it was one incident. I think, you know, what the tweet tried to, you know, what I tried to lay out was that it was, to me, it was a series of things. Uh, as we know, 1983 was a down, was sort of a down year for Mid-South. Um, I guess particularly the last six months. And, you know, New Orleans was, um, you know, again, the bloom was starting to go off of the rose a little bit. Uh, so I don't think it was just one angle, you know, that uh, led to New Orleans uh, being less profitable as a wrestling town. Uh, it, it may have just been the uh, final nail in the coffin. We talked about the earlier Superdome show with Dog and Michael Hayes, which, of course, drew that big house. The other really, really big Superdome show was the one for the last stampede. The Midnight Express with Jim Cornette versus Bill Watts and, once again, Stagger Lee, a masked <laughs> junkyard dog. Talk about that. How did that angle and the Midnight Express working with Watts and Watts going to bring the dog back and the dog can't because he lost the loser leaves town, so they have to get Stagger Lee back. How did that get over with you and your friends? Well, it was great. Um, first of all, we hated Jim Cornette. Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> but... We 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 absolutely hated Jim Cornette, and we wanted him gone. We wanted somebody to put him in his place. At the same time, we I mean we actually recognized how how good the Midnight Express was. So uh, you know I always liked the heels a little bit. So you know I, I definitely had love for the Midnight's, but when they beat up Watts, it was shocking because. Nobody put their hands on Cowboy Bill Watts, right? Nobody in those days, nobody got a chance to put their hands on Bill Watts. So to see him, you know, left laying, it was a big deal. And to have the dog involved, dog really wasn't the focal point of the feud for us. It was more about the the the, the issue between Cornette and Bill Watts for us. And dog, it just seemed like to us he was along for the ride. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you get to attend that show? And how many Superdome shows did you get to attend? Uh, I only attended about four. I did not attend that one because, well, we were pretty poor. So we just couldn't afford to. But lots of my friends did. And so they would come back and tell us what happened at school. So coming out of that, the Junkyard Dog returns as the Junkyard Dog. Obviously, the weight gain is still happening. And Mm -hmm. he's still popular. And in August, he leaves. What is that like? Because not only is he gone, but Bill Watts starts giving some really interesting commentaries on TV about the dog and why he left and why he was worried about Butch Reed. What are you guys thinking when all of a sudden the dog's gone? By that time, by that time, a lot of, uh, a lot of people that I know had stopped watching wrestling. So by the time that he left, I'm just not sure that uh, as many people cared as much as they would have had he left in, say, 1982. Besides that, 
Dog uh, had been traveling around to different territories at that time. He had been in Florida. He had been in the Carolinas. Uh, he had been in Dallas. So we got to see him on World Class. So he was gone most of the time. So when he left to go to the WWF, it was a loss. Don't get me wrong, because, I mean, we love the dog, but the impact wasn't as great on us as it would have been had he left two years before. Had he left two years before, I think it would have been devastating to us personally, because at that time, we're talking about this was peak JYD. So So the dog leaves, and you get the beginning of a group of guys that are brought in, funneled in, and funneled out to try to replace (laughs) the junkyard dog. And it's clear that it's as simple as we need another black superhero. And there's a string of guys from Sonny King to Master G to Brickhouse Brown to the Snowman. (laughs) There's so many guys bring in and try to give the dogs push to. Did any of those guys connect locally in New Orleans? And what did you think? Did you see it for what it was, that it was just an attempt to replace the dog? Absolutely. Um, Listen, think about this. My friends and I were talking last night about things you had to do when you were little. So would you rather eat Fruit Loops or Fruit Wheels? And what I mean by that is, do you want what's real? Do you want the real JYD? Or do you want some counterfeit version of a JYD, a JYD-like character? And so that's what we saw Master G as. We saw the snowman. I mean, they had him come out in long tights, long boots, and a beard. So we could clearly see that they were positioning him to be the new JYD. But we, um, not for one second did we buy it. And so I think some people may have felt played. They may, they may have felt like, okay, this guy thinks we're stupid. Or, you know, there's no way that this guy is going to show up looking like JYD, being positioned like JYD, and we're supposed to accept it. We wanted, if we couldn't have the real JYD, I mean, they should have just gone with somebody else. Well, that's the question. You know, going with someone else. Could you have just elevated Duggan or Magnum more? Could you have done the Butch Reed babyface turn a few months earlier? What would you have done? What do you think? Well, isn't that what they were doing with Magnum? From what I understand, they were going to go all the way with Magnum until he decided to go back to the Carolinas. And, I mean, we bought Magnum because, much like JYD, we had seen him grow. We had taken that journey with him. So Magnum would have been good, especially in the way that they presented him. They presented Magnum as somebody. Um, Duggan, Duggan um, was bigger. Uh, do you remember when Duggan left for a little while to go to Florida? Yeah, the beginning of 84, I think. Okay, so when Duggan came back, I would say Duggan was approaching, I'm, I'm not going to say on a pop culture level, all right? Because Dog was different. Dog was featured in commercials. Dog was uh, in the newspaper. People on the streets talked about Dog. Duggan was starting to gain a lot more popularity. And if he had, you know, if things had been right, if they had pushed him even more than they pushed him, he could have been pretty big. You needed to, to go in a different direction. And I don't think they understood that. You know, that's another guy. You talked about it earlier with the dog. That's another guy mm-hmm. that you'll lose a lot of what made him click by not having all the local promos is Hacksaw Dog. Oh, my God. I mean, Duggan was just wild. Uh, you didn't know what he was going to say. I don't think he knew what he was going to say. 
And that's what made it great because uh, not only was he dangerous in the ring, but he was dangerous on the mic. And you believed everything that he said. You believed with this guy. If he said he was going to get somebody, you believed him. Let me say this. Mid-South was a place where there was a lot of guys who you just believed in. Uh, Again, you may not believe everything in wrestling is on the up and up, but you believe in these guys. And so Mid-South had a lot of guys who you believed could kick ass for real. Duggan, when he would do the interviews, would just stand there, hands on the hips. And it was primarily like the WWE Duggan turned up about 150 uh, decibels. And not as silly, not as overtly silly. Even though he could be funny, he was a serious yeah, tough guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, sometimes he would get a little bit silly uh, when he turned babyface, but when he was a heel, no, you know, he was deadly serious. The WWF had a very difficult time getting into Louisiana because Bill Watts had the athletic commission on lockdown. And at that time, I think they only issued one uh, license for a wrestling promoter in the entire state. So he was set up, but they did get in there a couple of years later. When did you first start getting WWF TV with the dog? When did you first start getting it? Uh, About night, probably the summer of 85. We started getting WWF. Um, There was a new, independent TV station that was competing with uh, the station that uh, Mid-South was on, WGNO. And one of the first things that they put on was uh, Superstars of Wrestling. You see the championship wrestling of Superstars of Wrestling. And it was, I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't Mid-South. I didn't realize that. So you guys went an entire year almost without seeing the dog on local TV. Unless you had cable and could see um, you know, see the TBS show or uh, the USA Network, no, you didn't see JYD. So what was it like for you when you see him on TV again for the first time after a year? It was actually nice um, because I think Cornette always says, how can I uh, miss you if you never go away? So that time, uh, that I guess that year in which I hadn't really seen JYD, it was nice to see him again, but it was something different about him. I mean, he, he still wasn't in shape, and I couldn't understand why he was dancing so much in the ring. Um, <laughs> so that was different. Right. He would pull kids in the ring, and he was dancing. And One thing that struck me, when he was presented in Mid-South, again, he was presented as somebody. But even more than that, he was presented as the man. Okay. So in the WWF, I guess you can call it ecosystem, he was just, I mean, he was an important part of the show, but, I mean, he wasn't competing for titles. Um, he wasn't competing in any big deal situation. So it, it was just different in the way he was presented. Well, you know, it's weird when you go back and you look, they kind of quickly figured out what he was and what he could do because they brought him mm-hmm. in, he instantly got over, and then... Pretty quickly, they start trying to put him in tag team matches on TV so he could hide his weaknesses. They got in the Intercontinental title match at WrestleMania against Valentine, didn't win. And then, again, tag team matches on TV and eventually gets that Terry Funk program, which was the best thing he did there because Terry Funk was on fire. But it was certainly a different way to use the dog than you were used to. Right. I mean, he was, again, he was um, in the mix of everything. 
he was, I mean, you didn't, you couldn't go a show without his name being mentioned. So they pushed him to the moon. You get to the WWF, again, he's just, I mean, he's a, he's a valued player, but um, he's not the man. And we want, if we couldn't see JYD as the man, we kind of looked at it as, well, I don't know what happened to the real JYD, but this ain't it. Ricardo, looking back beyond the junkyard dog, are there any other contributing factors you think to the downfall of Mid-South wrestling and wrestling in general in New Orleans throughout the 80s? I don't buy the economic argument because people were still going to Saints games. People were still going to concerts. But I think, I think the product was always good. It was just that when he decided to go national, when Watts decided to go national, as far as New Orleans was concerned, it was as if we were losing our hometown team. You know what I mean? They stopped doing the shows weekly. They moved to the Lakefront Arena, which brought in a totally different crowd. Um, the what was that crowd? Let me, let me stop you right there. What was the totally different okay. crowd? The crowd, um, the, the, the makeup changed from being maybe 80 to 85% black to maybe 60 to 70% white. That's a big change. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's a huge change. Yeah. And it wasn't it it wasn't uh, you know, because of any anything that happened. It was just here in New Orleans, people don't uh locals don't really move around as much. I mean, um when you live in one part of town, you stay in that part of town. And so the lakefront arena was out I mean, on the lakefront, it was on a college campus and people just didn't make the trip. It wasn't as easy and, and municipal auditorium was easier to get to. So the crowd makeup changed, and it was just a different feeling uh, in going to the matches. Not as many families were going. It was just different. I think once they went national and they weren't doing the weekly shows, um, the people in New Orleans kind of moved on too. Because, again, New Orleans, once something gets over big here, we embrace it. We, and we embrace it forever. But if it changes too much, we feel betrayed. That's New Orleans. Ricardo, this has been great, and I certainly want to invite you back on the show again in the future to talk more Mid-South Wrestling, because I've had a real fun time talking to you about all this stuff. But to end this segment, to close the book, how would you summarize the Junkyard Dog's legacy in New Orleans? Well, uh, again, I've, I've said it before, most people would say that JYD, um, the, the ascent of JYD was transformative. And in a sense, it was. Unfortunately, it was, a, it was a temporary event because a lot of the issues that we dealt with back in 1980 and 81 and 82 um, we're still dealing with. And one could make the argument that things are worse. But for a short time, JYD literally brought people together. Think about this. If he had just been Sylvester Ritter from Waysboro, North Carolina, a certain segment of the population probably wouldn't treat him well, right? But here it was in a 7,000-seat arena, a certain segment of the population who probably would hate him or probably would not like him, they were willing to jump over barricades. They were willing to stab people. They were willing to, in one notable case, they were willing to shoot someone 
to protect a six foot three, two hundred and sixty five pound brick house of unvarnished blackness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty astounding. And if you really look at it, it's pretty cool too. There he is, Ricardo Coleman, with another great segment on this episode about New Orleans. Of course, the first one, Marcus Dupree. This one talking about the Junkyard Dog, and that was a very interesting perspective and a very memorable segment, I have to say, and hopefully you'll be hearing Ricardo again on the show in the future. But on the line right now is one of the most popular people on this show. The listeners love this man. Of course, that's the golden boy, Jerry Gray. Jerry, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. It seems like forever, but I know I was on just the last, probably last show, but I can't wait for each one. Well, Jerry, before we go too much further, obviously it's the one thing listeners keep asking. They always want to know how you're doing, what's your condition, what's going on health-wise. Give us an update. Uh, I'm still in the same situation. It's like on top of the stage four cancer I have now, the AFib, but that's a long story. I don't want to make, you know, take all the time up doing this, but I I just can't go to the emergency room because I take care of my mom too. She's bedridden on a ventilator with a tracheotomy and everything. And so if I go to the hospital, they have to have two ambulances she has to go to. And then every time I go, then they discharge her and then they kick me out because I have to be here. To, in other words, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like uh, every time they're almost ready to work on me, then they say that, well, she's not you know, she needs, she's stable. She needs to go back home now then. So that's what happens every time. So I got to figure something out and they can't put her in any place because she has a ventilator and not many places will take someone like that. They're not skilled for nurses to, you know, handle a ventilator, even though I am. It's kind of weird. I've learned a lot, but that's what's going on. I need to get this test done, um, stress test and find out what's going on because they did a cardio version. It's called on me a couple of years ago for the AFib and put my heart back into rhythm. They shock it back into rhythm and that's probably what needs to be done, but that's just the getting the figuring out how to do it without leaving my mom. She can't definitely be at home at all, even like for one minute. So that's what's going on. I'm just that on top of the other, all the other issues everybody knows about. Well, I guess it's a good time to remind everyone, if you want to help Jerry out, if you can help Jerry out during his time of need, the link, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. All of the money raised goes directly to Jerry. There's no middleman. It helps him with his bills. It helps him with his medical expenses and so much more. As you guys know, you've been listening to him on the show for a while. He's been having a rough time, and Jake Roberts hasn't ponied up any of the money that he owes Jerry. So whatever you can do, if you can help him out, it's a great time to help him out. And, you know, Jerry, on that topic, I wanted to bring something up to you. Someone sent me this link the other day that Brian Blair, who's now the president, I think he's the president. I don't know if it's chairman or president, but he's in charge of Cauliflower Alley. And boy, is he switching out that board of directors as fast as he can. He did an interview with this guy Hannibal. I don't know if you know this guy. I think his real name is Devin Nicholson. He's a guy who apparently was a very talented wrestler in the Ontario area, and he was going to potentially get a WWE deal, and he lost the opportunity to because the story is that he caught hepatitis from Abdullah the Butcher in a match where Abdullah cut him, and then he has sued Abdullah, I believe, in Canada, maybe even in the United States. I don't think he's collected a penny of it, Abdullah the Butcher is probably hiding that money somewhere, but he's now doing shoot interviews. And I have to say, 
These are the most mediocre, banal, insipid shoot interviews that anyone has done in many, many years. He clearly, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he was a big enough wrestling fan to get into the wrestling business, has no knowledge whatsoever about anyone's history. I heard from several people at Cauliflower Alley that said they saw him and he would basically say, I don't know anything about your career, so I'm just going to ask you generic questions and then fan questions. He doesn't know anything, but he's doing these shoot interviews that, by the way, like I said before, banal and insipid. It's inspiring me, actually, because I already own my own production company. I already own all my own camera equipment and microphones and lighting equipment. I may just start doing my own shoot interviews, putting them up on YouTube for free, matching whatever offer he pays the guys, and then giving the guys 50% royalties of the YouTube revenue in perpetuity just to show people what real shoot interviews can be like. But anyway, he did this Brian Blair interview, and he was clearly attempting to get Brian Blair to talk shit about me and the Super Podcast because of the way we have wrapped our arms around you, Jerry, the way that we have talked about all of the issues yeah. you've had, all the medical issues. And we have brought up on this show, where's Cauliflower Alley? You've talked about Cauliflower Alley helping you, and we've also talked about other issues with Cauliflower Alley. Some of it may be with old board members. Some of it may be with people currently still involved with Cauliflower Alley. But there are questions when it comes to the finances that need to be asked and need to be answered. But he was trying to get Brian Blair, and by the way, trying and failing, to get Brian Blair to talk shit mm-hmm. about us. And again, let me bring up, his interviews are garbage. And by the way, he's also not allowed to have any involvement with Barry Rose's championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest. In case you haven't heard that story, he put his hands on a fan when he was there last year. So he's not welcome back there ever again. But this Hannibal guy, he did this interview with Brian Blair. Have you seen it? And I want to ask your opinion about it if you have, Jerry, because Brian Blair basically says, ask Jerry Gray how much we've done Mm -hmm. to help him. And that's what I'm doing right now. I want to ask you, Jerry, have you seen this interview? And any thoughts about it? And has the Cauliflower Alley Club helped you? And how much have they helped you? Yes, I did see the interview. And I agree with you about Hannibal. And not only that, that he's always trying to do these work shoot things. And he tried to do one recently. I seen with Haku. It was ridiculous coming in there pushing Haku like he's big bad man. It's like uh, of all people to act like you're tougher than this guy. It's like Haku could tear his whole body apart in five seconds. but that's one part that's so stupid, too, that he does all the time, trying to act like he's Mr. Tough Guy, the toughest guy in the business. He can hang with Haku or anyone. But, yeah, I did see the thing with Brian Blair, and he was just trying to stir it up. Uh, Hannibal was, and Brian Blair's a great guy, and he's really changed the cauliflower alley as far as I'm concerned to help the boys. And, yes, they have helped me. And, actually, the last time what they did was um, they paid the house taxes for the year, this year, and then... Um, the house insurance for three months they helped me with so they've been helping me i mean every penny helps me so i, I appreciate that very much brambler's definitely helped me and the Clyfeller alley has too but uh yeah i don't i don't think uh hannibal hannibal's uh as far as like especially the um the little shoot things he does with all the, the guys he's getting ready to work. He actually, he's the toughest one, but to, to go, I don't know if you've seen that, but to go act like he's going to attack a Haku. It's and push the name it's, and, I don't know who he's like. I, oh it, it's so stupid. It is really just so, yeah. so stupid. But all of his videos yeah. are stupid. Again, he's doing shoot interviews and he doesn't know anything. Plus on top no. of that, it's the creepiest voice in professional wrestling. Let's be very honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, Jerry, I want to ask yeah. you now. I know, I know. What was your favorite <laughs> match in Jacksonville? He doesn't know anything. So basically he just says, 
tell me about San Francisco. He doesn't know yeah. anything, and his interviews suck. Uh-huh. But here he is trying to stir up shit. I may just uh-huh. have to start doing shoot interviews to show people how it's really done. Uh-huh. And by the way, I'll give money That's back it. to the boys for it. Let's see him do that. Yeah. Those videos he shot at Cauliflower Alley, he should be giving 50% of that money at a minimum back to Cauliflower Alley. Is he doing that? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. These are questions that need to be asked, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm asking them. So yeah. Cauliflower Alley so, has helped yeah. you. I got to be honest, Jerry, and you know Brian Blair for a long time. I've heard mm-hmm. from people involved with Cauliflower Alley. I've heard from various people, and they all think Brian Blair is doing a great job. They all think Brian Blair. There's a lot of changes that Cauliflower Alley. Look, Cauliflower Alley is antiquated. Cauliflower mm-hmm. Alley needs a lot of changes. They need a lot of changes. They need to be updated. That thing should be producing revenue for wrestlers all year round, and they're not doing it. And I got to give Brian Blair credit. He's at least trying to make some of the changes necessary. There's a lot more yeah. that need to be made. He but he's trying to make the changes necessary. So, and, and by the way, did we say anything bad on the show? I mean, you listen to all the episodes. Did we say anything bad on the show about Brian Blair not giving you money or mm-hmm. anything? No, I've never. No, we never said anything like that. Nope. So I don't. I don't so Jerry, you're going to be doing a work shoot with Hannibal anytime soon? Um, maybe a real shoot. Even with my stage, uh, I wouldn't be worried about him. <laughs> Even in my health. Well, so. one last, you know, one last thing before we go to the next segment, Jerry. Obviously, we just had a couple segments about New Orleans, and you wrestled for Mid South. You were there in '84. You were back there in '85. It wasn't just Louisiana. It was also obviously Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Houston, Texas. What was your favorite town in Mid-South to work, and what was your least favorite town to work? Uh, there's a couple of favorites. Um, I like the Myriad. This was the nicest building, and like it held, it was huge, like maybe 10,000. I'm not sure, but it was uh, always packed, too. The Myriad in Oklahoma City, and then uh, definitely the, I like the Superdome, of course, and then definitely the least favorite would probably be uh, either Homa was one of them, or La Ranger, I think it was called. <laughs> yeah, so basically southern Louisiana, yeah. all the way down in the bayou. Yeah, that was really down the bayou. Oh, my God. Yeah, those two. What was it like? Why <laughs> Why were those your least favorite? Um, Just for, for the facility for some reason. La Ranger was, like, really – I think Cornette's told a little bit about that's where they had the octons and everything. And in between the thing, they'd be auctioning off guns and everything to kill the heels with. <laughs> uh, you know, they have like a flea market or some kind of weird thing for a wrestling show. And then home uh, was horrible if you were a heel because you had to leave. There was no like back door. Or you had to go out with all the audience when you'd leave or come in or whatever. You had to walk with the audience. So that was the part. And that was like a little jail cell with the bars on the windows and the little tiny dressing room. Was home of the town that you couldn't drive to that you had to take a ferry to? Mm. No, not when I was there. I remember that. I think the one you're talking about, is that the one where uh, Jimmy Garvin and Precious and all that mess happened? With, uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was I was there that night, actually. I was there. Yeah, that was that was a bad one, too. But we only did that once. But I don't know. I can't remember the name of that one. Galliano, I think. Yeah, Galliano. Yeah, I remember Cornette was there. It was like way early into the Mid-South run there in 84. But yeah, that was might have been the one. Well, the story is that from Dallas, they sent up Chris Adams versus Jimmy Garvin, which was a hot feud. Yep. And yep. Jimmy Garvin comes out with Precious, and all the drunk fans, they were pinching her ass, and they sent her back. Yeah. They thought it wasn't safe for her to be at ringside, so they yeah. really sent her back. And then during the match, Chris Adams called for 
Jimmy Garvin a cheat to do something. The babyface called for the heat, calling the spots, <laughs> yeah. called for the heel no. to do something, and Jimmy Garvin said, fuck you, and he wrestled a yeah. clean match. He refused to cheat because he saw what was going to happen. And the funniest thing was when my match, I was the heel. They didn't care. I mean, if you were a second match or whatever, they hated everybody, all the heel. But um, second match, the, the uh, uh, power went out in the building. So it was pitch black coming there wrestling Joseph Oldie. And, I mean, it's just out black, black. You can't see anything. I've never had that happen in my life with wrestling. You know? So it was off for, it seemed like forever, but it was off for, I'd say, at least maybe 30 seconds or a minute. So we didn't, I mean, I couldn't even see anything, couldn't do it. So it's like when they came back on, it was like, we're standing there, okay, let's wrestle again. But I don't know how that happened. That was dangerous. And then and then they locked the doors to the boys in the uh, the dressing room, the heels, because we were so worried about the fans you know, attacking us. So Precious couldn't get back in the locker room. She was banging on it and everything when she did get sent back in. You know? That was pretty funny. We thought it was fans trying to get in. Nobody would let her in. <laughs> Hey, what about Joseph Aldi? That's a name you don't hear too often anymore. Jumpin' Joseph yeah. Aldi. Not the original one, but obviously the one that was yeah. wrestling in the 80s and the 90s and was later a star on his family's IWCCW show. Yeah. He was in Mid-South Wrestling in 84. A lot of people forget that. Was he any good yeah. in the ring? What, what kind of guy was he? What was he like to work with? He was a real nice guy. I remember we would, because, uh, you know, watched him allow that, you know, heel and babyface to hang together, but. He was, we used to uh, meet on the side of the road after we'd, some of our matches and uh, smoke a joint together and stuff. <laughs> he was a real nice guy. And then uh, I can't remember how, what he was, a, you know, a pretty good worker. I can't remember exactly how good, but he was okay. But he was a good guy. Well, Jerry, we're going to move on to our next segment here. And what this is, is we have some classic audio. You may remember way back on the show, we had classic audio from Rod Luck on Philadelphia Radio at the Ribbit. And he had various guests on that Gorilla Monsoon hooked up. Yeah. And now we have some more audio, and we're going to play probably some this week, some next week. I had originally wanted to play this on the show a couple of years ago, and we had a major audio issue where it wasn't coming out in the finished show. Well, thankfully, we have a superstar producer here at Arcadian Vanguard, Lou Kippelman. He's known as many, many names, Sweet Lou, Captain Lou, Lou the Boom. It doesn't matter, but Lou Kippelman, a fantastic human being, and even better a fantastic yeah. producer, he was able to make this so that we could play it on the air. So all credit goes to Lou. And let's now go to this audio. I've been dying to play it on the show for a long, long time. This is audio from April 5th, 1983 at the Ribbit. It's Rod Luck with Nature Boy Buddy Rogers and Rocky Johnson. Let's go to this audio right now. Name is in an hour here from the river. We're at 1709 Walnut. Got a good crowd tonight and looking for more people too as the night progresses. We're here until 8 o'clock. But first of all, Rocky Johnson with us until until around 6.30 or 6.35 in that area. Rocky, I went a couple of weeks ago down to the Spectrum and watched 16,000 people there and going nuts and bananas. And you're beating the magnificent Morocco on the head with his belt. You beat the hell out of him. But the fans, look at this. Got some of the Rocky Johnson fans here. If you've been wrestling now for 10 years, you're a big kid, 6'2", 250, and you stay in magnificent shape. How do you do it? 
Well, the key success right there is uh, I try to work out every day except Sunday. I work out six days a week. I have Buddy here, which is more or less uh, training me, uh, coaching me, got me in a different, uh, whole new routine now. I slimmed down about 25 pounds since when I first came in. I didn't want to call you fat, hey. No, well, <laughs> I try to stay in shape to the best of my ability. And when you stay in shape, a lot of people say when you... Now, with your clothes off, and I... I was going to ask you if you weren't all dressed. He's dressed in a three-piece suit. I was going to ask you to take your shirt off. You got one of the. Will you take your jacket off though, so people can see your body? Hey, if you take yours off. Yeah. <laughs> this place will be a parking lot tomorrow, you bum. Hey, do you, do you lift a lot of weights? Yes, I do. I uh, compete. When I have time, I compete in uh, competition. But can you do you mind though, just your jacket, showing people that that Rocky Johnson? Because people at home can't see it, but uh, but you, while you're doing it, I'll ask Buddy. Buddy, when you do work with a guy like this though is he hard to holy karunga is he hard to keep in shape no he's not <laughs> no rocky's the easiest guy in the world to train he he's he's a very dedicated guy plus the fact he has a superb attitude in anything he's doing <laughs> we got all these guys down here just got out of their law office an hour Ella. call your lawyer if you are one no. Look at this. No, I really like to see it. Yeah, I want to see the body. Here. Come here, wait, let me see it. Come on. We want to see his body, do we? But, buddy, these people that uh, like a Rocky, they're in the gym a lot. they got to be in the gym. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, in fact, uh, well, I have another fellow, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, who, uh, and Rocky, the two of them train together quite a bit. And they're very dedicated. Which you can see right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I want to see just the people here. I'm serious. This, can get your shirt off. What, what size is that chest of yours? I bought a, last time I measured about 57. Well, where do you get your clothes? Well, oh. Omar. Yeah. I say right now it's smoke. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have a wife that uh, makes all my clothes for me. You have a wife that can handle that body. She tries. Very hard. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Christmas. Uh, this is incredible, folks. That is a 57-inch chest. Now, your arms, your biceps have got to be just the biggest I've ever seen. Yeah, I try to keep them around 22 and a half, 23. I don't want them to get too big. It's as big as your wife's waist, for goodness sake. Again, I just want him to sit there like that in awe. Now, he does that by eating Paul Ramirez ribs. Look at that body, man. Eh? 365-4100 to talk with Rocky Johnson. Magnificent body on you, my friend. And and also, uh, Buddy Rogers, we have some phone calls back at the studio. We have some live guests here that want to talk upstairs and downstairs. Let's go first to a guest sitting right behind us here at the River. Good evening. Hello, gentlemen. Rod, sorry about last night. I'm sorry about sorry, the I know, that, I know night. NC State in Houston. I'm not going to talk about it. Rocky, uh, I want to be with you. Good luck in about two weeks from now at Madison Square Garden when you go against Morocco again. I wish you luck on that. Good. I want to thank you very much. I feel that uh, I'll need all the luck I can get. But I'm going in there one thing in mind, brother, and that's to go in there and do the best of my ability. But thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, Buddy Rogers. Now, uh, I understand now, I've been uh, following wrestling a long time. The last few months, uh, I've been going to have tapings in Allentown, Hamburger, and places. I haven't seen Jimmy Snooker that much. Now, is he going to be leaving the area or Oh, no, Jimmy's, Jimmy's around. No, he's not slowing down. He's just taking his time. 
I manage him totally different than most wrestlers are managed. In fact, I don't try to burn a candle on both ends with him. I know he's got a tremendous future. I know that whatever he does in the future has got to be great. And uh, no use pressing him, no use forcing him to do something that might injure him. And I look forward to someday, Jimmy, being the world's champion. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I want to... Uh, I want to mention that three weeks from tonight, we're going to have the magnificent Morocco right here, along with Captain Lou Albano. <laughs> the captain will be at the ribbon, too. Every three weeks. And gentlemen, you hear, you hear this all the time. People are taking their shots at you, their cheap shots, and you're not a sport, you're an exhibition. And how do you answer that, Buddy Rogers? How would I answer that? Well, anytime anybody insults your intelligence, and this goes for anybody, then I would say don't follow the sport, don't have anything to do with it, take a turnabout and get the hell out. Uh, and I would answer it this way, buddy. People that knock it are the only ones that they don't know the difference between a headlock and a paddle lock. So that's why they're out there and knock and they don't go through uh, what we go through when you can, how can you say uh, the exhibition were hurt, injured all the time. Now, did you wrestle as an amateur, Rocky? Yes, I did. How about how long did you wrestle as an amateur? Four and a half years. Did you do it in school, out of school? Yes, I did it in school in college. Both. In college? Yes. Uh, and I wasn't that good, but I was probably, but probably one of the most boring sports to watch, even though I like it a lot. It's amateur. Collegiate, yes, amateur wrestling. I, didn't I agree with you 100%. I remember the Oregon State wrestling coach. Oregon State is one of the finer programs in the country. Dale, I can't even think of Dale's last name right now. Dale Thomas, who said that, uh, that if he could just get college wrestling to have some of the excitement that pro wrestling, it probably would get the rich recognition that was due it. And uh, a lot of the hype that is that is needed to get the sport across is just lacking in college and high school and amateurs. They don't have it. Well, um, if the rules would lighten up a bit, I could. A lot of times, I wrestled amateur in Camden, New Jersey, and I'm a YMCA wrestler. And uh, all my background, I uh, well, I spent my whole life in wrestling, so. I spent eight years as an amateur and 25 years as a pro. Well, you're the only man who ever hold in the world the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, and the NWA uh, heavyweight championships. Right. Will it, will it ever be done again? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. But done again, you know, uh, look how many records are broken swimming every day. That's right. We have a lot of people back at the station who want to talk to you gentlemen. We have, we have Rocky for about another 15 to 18 minutes, and then he's got to get to Long Island. The guy makes it for well, like an unknown guy, and he goes up against one of these popular wrestlers. How much money does he make for a match? Why don't we ask a buddy? Let's ask a Rocky there. Rocky. Well, to start out, a novice wrestler can make anywhere from 20 to 25, 30 thousand dollars per year. Incredible. How about for one match? Like, uh, no, right. there's not under one match. He's under a contract. Oh, you can't base it on just that one match. Now, he might only wrestle one or two times in that week, or you might not see him, but he still has signed a contract with the WWF. 
So I, I, I'm starting out. He can make anywhere between twenty-five and thirty-five thousand per year. Buddy, how about the answer? Okay, bet. Well, um, did you want me to? Answer? Yeah, how about you? Well, uh, I myself, in a period of time that I was in wrestling, I grossed five and a half million dollars, and that's back in the forties and fifties. If I was wrestling today, the caliber of wrestler that I was. I would have probably made thirty million today. Thank you for calling. Again, three six five forty one hundred. I'm Rod Luck. We're at the Rivet. Got a good crowd tonight. Joe Namath at seven. With me right now, Buddy Rogers and also Rocky Johnson. Everybody, we'll come right back. Now we have Rocky Johnson and also Buddy Rogers, and uh, we're going to go downstairs. I understand. Uh, we have uh, wait, wait. somebody at the Rivet Bar that would like to ask a question. Good evening. How are you? Uh, hello, I'd like to ask Buddy, if, you know, about Antonino Rocker. Did he ever lose a match in his life? I was the first guy to beat Rocker in this country. Rocker went on for nine solid years without a loss. Yeah. And then uh, we held a big tournament, and the finals of the tournament was held in Madison Square Garden. That's the old garden. And uh, the winner between he and I was recognized as a Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion. Thank you very much. Thank All right, you. thank you very much. Let's take a call from home. Good evening. Welcome to the Rivet at 96.5. Yeah, good evening, Rod. Uh, buddy, a question for you. Um, I've been watching for a long time now, and I'm an avid fan of yours for sure, but I'm kind of getting discouraged with the officiating that we're having nowadays. Now, I know Lou Super and Dusty Velvama are professionals, but they're just not giving that physical competition that's needed in the squared circle. Is there any way that uh, we can develop some young blood and new talent? And how would someone go about inquiring information to become the third man in the squared circle? Well, naturally, you have to be appointed by the State Athletic Commission, and all commissions are, you know, naturally, you got your Pennsylvania State, New Jersey State, Delaware. Uh, you must go through that commission, but I'm very much in favor of the way you just said that. I, for one, feel that a lot of times the referees are partial towards an individual or they're taking sides and what have you, and I, I thoroughly don't, well, I just don't like it, and I'm like you, I like to be outspoken about it. Yeah, the, the Saturday night, uh, watching on the uh, replay on the Prison Network, uh, we had saw one of the referees was like 100 pounds, and maybe just being tossed around the ring, and they're taking some physical abuse. Well, back, it's in, not necessary. back in my day... If you touched a referee, you knocked him down one time, you were warned second time, school was out, you were thrown out. Well, maybe we need to install that back in, I don't know, but I still think that someone with some substance and you should be in there to develop the physical competition. I'm 100% in thinking the same way you are. Right, thank you very much for calling. Oh, thank you, Rod. We have other live guests here at the Ribbit tonight. Good evening. Your question, please. Good evening, fellas. Uh, Mr. Rogers, how many people do you now have on the contract training or I only items? have one boy, and that's Superfly Snooker. Uh, the Superfly and uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Well, Rocky. Rocky uh, is one of my favorite guys. <laughs> do they work out uh, together? Yes, we do. And would they be tag teaming anytime soon? You mean Rocky and Snooker? Yes. Yeah, they sure will. All right, thank you very much. Let's get another call. Good evening. Welcome to Ribbit at 96.5. Yeah, hi, Rod. How you doing? Fine. Good. I'd like to 
Let's grab another call. Good evening. Welcome to the Riveton 96.5. Hi, I would like to say something to Dr. Johnson. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I think um, it was unfair. I think we should have the belt now. Well, I feel the same way you do. Unfortunately, sitting here talking to you, I don't have it, but I'll say one thing. Uh, I appreciate that and all these people, good people around here that's been backing me up. It's just a matter of time, sooner or later, before I, I will have it. All right, Buddy Rogers, answer that. Um, I hope this is a little boy. Yes, it is. Uh, son, I'd like to say one thing. you got good taste. <laughs> Rocky is, without a doubt, the uncrowned heavyweight champ in wrestling. All right, Mr. Rogers. Yes, sir. What, what are your further plans with Jimmy? What is that again, sir? What are you going to do next to Jimmy? Jimmy Snuggie. Well, I'm going to bide my time, and I'd say within a year, I'm going to shoot for the title with Bob Backlund. And, uh, you know, I... I'm one of these guys, never rushes. I like to take my time and get what I want. And I do believe in due time, Jimmy could be world champion. All righty. Thank you for calling. Let's take another call. Rocky Johnson has to leave in about five minutes. Hi, Rock. Hello. I want to ask Rocky a question. Go ahead. Uh, Rocky, I saw the match between you and Morocco when you uh, hit the referee and he fell down. I wanted to know how come they disqualified you and not Morocco. Well, the thing was, he didn't disqualify me. He disqualified Morocco oh. for deliberately pulling the referee in front of him to save from getting his... He saved his belt that way. He knew he was beaten. He took the referee and pulled him in front of him, and he got disqualified. Right. Well, do you think he'd ever be uh, man enough to fight the fair and not do that? Well, I don't think he'll ever be man enough to... Uh, right, uh, I don't think he'll ever be man enough to uh, fight a fear, but I say one thing I do, I do get a return with him, and when I do, it'll be a whole new different ball game this time. And you're going to have that match on the 30th, I understand. Right, right? the 30th of April, Rocky will be wrestling Magnificent Morocco. Well, I'm sure he'll beat him, and we'll with Rocky all the way. All right, Thank thanks you. for calling. Bye. Again at the River tonight, everybody. Coming up at 7 o'clock, or actually 7 o'clock, five for a couple of minutes marvin Hagler, marvelous marvin Hagler from the rivet by way of telephone though right now he's attending a function at palumbo's benny briscoe's retirement party and uh marvin Hagler will be on the phone with us around 705 joe namath around 708 709 in that area we're waiting for namath to come down from the tavis uh hotel in downingtown where he's rehearsing for the play to go out at city line dinner theater and we'll talk all about that when Joe's here. But right now, Buddy Rogers and also Rocky Johnson, let's take uh, our live guest who's up here at the Rivet. Good evening. Hello, super fan Greg here. I got a remark for both you two. And uh, that is that Rocky Johnson and Superfly Jimmy Snooker are better looking than Bob Backlund, better wrestlers than Bob Backlund, have more charisma than Bob Backlund, or are more popular with the fans than Bob Backlund. The question I have, why aren't either one of these two men champion? Is it that the champion has to be Lily White, or is Vince McMahon looking for a tax write-off? I can answer that. I can answer that. I think, Phil, you get a little heavy there. It doesn't have to be uh, Lily White. The point is, Jimmy and myself, we have to work our way up to number one challengers. Right now, I'm rated, what did you say, buddy, around number five, number four. Well, and I you're rated number one. Well, I appreciate that. I wish, uh, 
everybody else thought the same way, and I was number one. And I think Jimmy's uh, one ahead of me. I think Jimmy's number three, and we have to work our way up like everybody else before we can get a title shot. Okay, then thank you, Rocky. Thank you very much. Okay. All right, everybody, uh, Rocky Johnson has to wrestle on Long Island tonight. A car is awaiting to whisk him away. Buddy Rogers will be with us until 7. Can you please again give a big rivet? Thank you to Rocky Johnson. Thank you, Rocky. Well, let him see that body one more time. Do you mind, huh? Right there? I think they want to take a picture of him over here to hang in Paul Revere's rivet. We're going to come right back, though, to the rivet right after this. Buddy, I have a question for you. Uh, we have talked about, uh, you talked about the rules before, as far as uh, professional wrestling goes. And uh, we all saw uh, the uh, match that Rocky Johnson had against the magnificent uh, Morocco uh, a few weeks ago, actually a few months ago. And uh, it was I was a few weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, since uh, some of the uh, rules uh, have been very lenient, and uh, repeat that, please. Since some of the uh, referees have been very lenient, and since it is uh, hard to tell uh, when uh, some of the bad wrestlers are uh, breaking the rules, uh, why couldn't uh, they institute a form of uh, refereeing that I've seen used on the East Coast and down in Florida, where they have two referees uh, for a single match? Well, that would be strictly up to the commission or the promotion to bring that about. But I do know from time to time, uh, they bring in a wrestler that I feel it would be very unbiased because whoever's wrestling naturally would be an opponent of his. But I mean, and by putting in, what's that? For championship matches. Well, championship. Uh, well, you got Big Sweet Hansen, who's going to referee the match between. Um, um, Paul Beckman. Was it Beckman, uh, I think? No, no. Uh, Morocco and uh, John Studd against um, Rocky Johnson and uh, Andre the Giant. And you got Sweet Hansen going to referee that match. What I'm saying, though, instead of just doing it uh, from time to time as a special ref uh, wrestler, why not, whenever they're going to have a championship match, institute two referees? instead of uh, one. I'm in favor of that. Okay, thank you very much. Thank Paul, you. good evening. interested in a match with Backlund and Jimmy. I feel that it'll take me another six months to a year to get Jimmy in the frame of mind that I want him in. And at that particular time, I feel that Jimmy will be able to beat Bob Backlund. All right. Thanks for calling. We have somebody downstairs at the rivet with a microphone on his face. Good evening. Johnson. But since he left, um, I'll ask you, Vince McMahon always talks about uh, Rocky Johnson being a boxer. He never really talks about if it was ever amateur or professional, uh, you know, what it was and what, what his record was. I, uh, I can't fully understand uh, uh, answer that, uh, but I do know that, he, yes, he did fight amateur, yeah. and uh, yes, he did have a couple of pro matches. How many? Wins, losses, I don't know. I'd be lying. I'm not going to tell you something I don't I, I know. I missed him when he was here. What's that? I missed him when he was here to ask him. Oh, uh, I'm awfully sorry. <laughs> okay, thank you. Sir. All right, thank you.
okay, I want to ask a question. If somebody would like to become a professional wrestler, if there's a big kid out there that's wrestled amateur or maybe just played some pro, pro football, because some pro football athletes have gone into wrestling, oh, yeah. how can they do it? Who do they contact? Where do they go? Well, right now, I would write to the State Athletic Commission and ask uh, them to forward it to the promoters in this area or wherever you're from, and I'm pretty sure you'll get some response. Okay. Hello. Go ahead. Uh, yes, ma'am. wrestle Jimmy Snuka? Yeah, uh, I don't think so. Uh, that'd be one match I guarantee you I wouldn't want to see. I love both these guys and uh, right now at my stage of life they're, they're part of me, both of them and I want to make sure that they both get what's coming to them in wrestling and I'm going to do my best to guide him along that way and that's why i've got jimmy under contract but i don't have rocky but i i do feel that i play a great part in, in uh, rocky's way of living and wrestling okay uh, i gotta ask you very this is probably the most important question of the night you're 62 now you retired 20 years ago you're in excellent shape on the outside but how about the inside how about your virility are you impotent well, um, I say that, uh... Do you have that potency you once had 25 years ago? Hell no. <laughs> How would you like to... 25 years ago? You're out of your mind. How would you like to get it back? How would you like to get it back, old well, I'll boy? I'll tell you, after the program, you tell me, baby. I'm going <laughs> to join you. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell him right now. Right now, what am I talking about? Girl, you guessed it, my friend, and for only 1895. For a case, you can get a case of real. I got one of my trucks. put this in your scalp and no, let it go in or what? No, your hair, your, your hair will multiply in a hair. You rub real in your scalp. Oh, I Believe see. Me. Okay. This is the kind of stuff you don't want to drop on your alligator shoes because you'll multiply overnight. Ten million men in America, buddy, are struggling with the inability to have a healthy sex life. You well, ex-athletes are getting up for the game, but when your days are done, it's well, tough, isn't it? Let's take it this way. It all, you know... You always have to give that credit to a woman. A good woman can maneuver any any man at any time. I gotta tell you something, buddy. They found out that even a good woman can't take the most impotent of them all, and that's where Viral comes in handy. Oh, fact, that's say, debatable. <laughs> I know that a lot of pro wrestlers, a lot of athletes, a lot of guys running up in the office, always eating the fast food. They, you know, impotency problems are related to nutritional problems. And if you aren't taking care of your innards, your outside is going to go flat on you. I mean, no help at all, my friend. So the best thing to do is to get Viral, and your diet will be completely 100% intact. In other words, if I take Viral, I can perform like I did 25 years ago? You'll be heavyweight champion at your house again. I'll tell you, pal. After this show, I'm going to go out and get a whole truckload. <laughs> After the show, you run to the phone and dial 800-441-7626. 1-800-441-7626. A guy called me the other day. He said he had got, he actually purchased Viral, and it was working for him and his rabbits. All his rabbits. It worked for all the rabbits. Well, that he maybe he's one of the rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Visa, MasterCard accepted, as well as checks, money orders, chickens, anything you want to give them. 
The COD also, the toll-free number again, and this is legitimate now, 1-800-441-7626. If the lines are busy, hang up and try again, 1-800-441-7626. That is Vero, my friends. Get with it. It's a natural method of coping. And 810 in the morning, I'm the dominant Quinn show. I never get any rest. I want to thank whoever it was. John, where are you, John? John, uh, John and her girlfriends are sitting here tonight. They sent me a ring of kielbasa, buddy. And some horseradish. That's good stuff. I'm going to eat that. That's better than virile. This stuff here, <laughs> your body wouldn't dare lie down on you after you eat this stuff, believe me. Let's take another call. Get in here on 96.5. Hey, Rob. How are you? Uh, first of all, you were talking about boxers versus wrestlers that have matches that they've had in the past. Yes. Uh, I thought of another one. Uh, I have a pretty good size uh, muffling magazine collection. And uh, I was reading through them uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the uh, more memorable ones was Andre the Giant of Rutgers, Chase Davis. Andre the Giant wrestled who? Chuck. Her? Who? Chuck Wepner. Oh, Chuck Wepner. Well, Chuck Wepner, the Bayonne Bleeder. Right. Uh, what's Chuck doing these days? I, I seen him in Atlantic City this summer. He looked great. And how did how did uh, the uh, how did the match go? And Andre, Andre beat him. Sure did. And you said you saw the match, sir? No, I have a magazine collection. I was reading through it the other day. And, uh, first, that match. Uh, the first match that was ever um, made between boxer versus wrestler was a former fighter by the name of King Levinsky. And he went against a guy named Ray Steele in the wrestling game. And that match took place in St. Louis. The whole match won exactly 52 seconds. All right. And uh, King Levinsky had a broken arm. That was the end of the match. All right. Thank you so much for calling. Plenty of people want to talk to the one and only, the only man to ever hold both wrestling heavyweight belts, Buddy Rogers. Good evening. You're on 96.5. Yeah, I'd like to talk to Buddy, please. Go ahead. Um, Buddy Rogers, um, what do you think of uh, Bruno Sementino as a wrestler? Well, Bruno had to be exceptionally good in order to hold the title as long as he did. Plus the fact that... Uh, I think he beat a guy called Buddy Rogers for the title, so he had to be really good. Thank you for calling. All right, there's a lot of guys in your profession that stand out. Who do you think was the biggest name to ever don a wrestling, a wrestling uh, uh, garb, so to speak? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my conception, and I can go back to 1940. I had my first professional match in 1940 at the old Garden Pier that just burnt down Atlantic City. And I think the greatest wrestler I've ever seen in my life was Andre the Giant. Here's a man that's been active for 10 solid years and never lost a match. And every year, every year is credited with drawing five million fans. How would you like to have a little stock in this guy? 
I'd love to have some stock in anything right now. <laughs> the last stock that I had was in the Titanic, and that's the way my life's been going, too. Ah. <laughs> Let's take some more calls. Good crowd here tonight at the Rivet. Buddy Rogers, our guest, Joe Namath, waiting in the wings. Good evening. Welcome to 96.5. How's it going, Robert? It's Mario. How are you doing, Mario? All right. How are you doing? Fine. Uh, Buddy, first of all, I'd like to say I love Jimmy Stockett. I Thank just you. love him. Uh, you got good taste, pal. <laughs> you were saying that, uh, that you didn't think Jimmy was good enough to wrestle Bob Backlund yet. I didn't say that. Well, I mean, like, uh... I didn't say, Jimmy, it's all up to me, and I I can usually tell when a guy is ready for a title shot, and when I think that time is right, I will look forward to a match between Jimmy and Backlund. Well, would that mean the same thing as maybe a match if Rocky don't get it, uh, if Rocky don't beat Morocco, would that mean the same as a match with the Magnificent Morocco for the Intercontinental belt? Well, I look at it this way. I believe that Rocky stands a tremendous chance to beat Morocco in the Spectrum the next show. started. Um, at that particular time, I was the only one that held both titles, and uh, the reason for that was because one champion just couldn't service all the places that he was needed in. All right, thank you for calling. Buddy Fats, you're a gentleman, you're a class act, and I hope that Snooker wins it all and you get a guy like a Johnson a lot of money. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, everybody. Kenny Mann, my main man, back at the studio has news next here on the talk station. Joe Namath, Marvin Hagler. There it is, some more great classic audio from April of 1983. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Buddy Rogers and Rocky Johnson with Rod Luck on the radio. I want to thank a few people here. Of course, Lou Kippelman for all the stellar work that he did to make that audio presentable for the air. And I also want to thank a old-time friend of the show, Richard Vychik for sending that audio in way back. And I think I can even thank Jamie Ward, because I think Jamie Ward may have been the person to send it to Richard way back in the 1980s. So thank you to everyone who helped that be part of the show here today. And Jerry, you're still with me, right? Yes, sir. You never know with this show. You never know who's on the line or who's dropping by or who's on the hotline. <laughs> you never know what's going on. Before we go to our next segment with Cowboy Scott Casey, one of the rare people in the wrestling business from that era that you never encountered, correct? I, I met him in WWE. F in uh, 87, I think it was, but I, I mean, we didn't know each other. I mean, just met him like quick and that's it. Well, before we go to this interview with Cowboy Scott Casey, Jerry, I know that obviously you plug every week your GoFundMe, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy to help you with all your medical issues and all your bills. But there's something else happening. It's about to happen that will really be a big help to you. You want to talk about it? Sure. It's uh, May 18th in Tempe, Arizona. Navajo Warrior, Steve Isles, and his IZW, Impact Zone Wrestling, 
all his crew uh, worked for me for like 20 years. Um, and he was always the most faithful guy ever. And I rented this ring from him. And this is how faithful he was. One time in San Diego, his ring truck broke down. And he actually had a tow truck taking me the rest of the way to the uh, building. So he wouldn't let me down. So a tow truck came wow. pulling up to set the ring up with us. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, he was always there for me. And all his guys were fantastic and girls and guys. And then Honky Tonk Man's actually donated his uh, time for the show to the Hall of Famer now. I mean, people can say whatever they want, but to me, he's always been the greatest guy. He's helped me tons of times, even this year. I mean, every time I'm in a jam, I can count on Honky Tonk Man, too. So, yeah, it's May 18th, Tempe, Arizona, and it's going to be a great show there, and I really appreciate them doing this more than anything. It really surprised me and emotional, everything else. So, really, really, really nice thing. Well, once again, you can get more information about that. I know it's on social media. You can go to Jerry's Facebook page, and we'll share it also. But once again, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy if you enjoy Jerry on the show. And if you don't, fuck you. But if you enjoy Jerry on the show, that's your way of helping him out and making sure he gets by each and every day a little bit easier than the one before it. He deserves it. He is our friend. So help him out. But let's now go to this next segment. And that is with Cowboy Scott Casey. He just put out a book. It is our book of the week. We'll tell you about it on the other side. Let's now go to this conversation with Cowboy Scott Casey. I am very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast a man that wrestling fans think fondly about. Also, specifically, fans in the Southwest. They look at him, and he's one of the biggest stars they ever had in the Southwest. And now he's back with a brand new book, One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. And I'm very happy to have him on the line right now. Cowboy Scott Casey, welcome to the Super Podcast. Ryan, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being on your show. And uh, my partner and friend, Nick Masio, he's the one that, he gets the ball running on all of these things that go on, in the, except for what I did in my career. But, I mean, as far as writing the book, I, I can't give any more credit to anybody except uh, Nick. And uh, I'm just glad to be here. And the book is filled with a lot of fun stories. Quite frankly, I'm kind of surprised that you had time to write it because I just figure that you're always with your cowboy hat on at the end of the bar waiting for some rich woman to come in and go to the bar, and then you roll up to her, and next thing you know, you're in business, because that is the story, right? You left wrestling to become a very, very well-paid gigolo. Is this correct? No. (laughs) (laughs) I chased a lot of skirts. I got some, and some ran away, but I never got a dime off any of them. It was, you know, it was just being a young man and raging hormones and having a good time, but no, I was not a gigolo. <laughs> it's one of those things I think people wanted to believe, too, because if you go back and you think of that era of wrestling, the wrestler, Cowboy Scott Casey, looks like he would probably fit into that mold better than most wrestlers. You know, it's not the gigolo Joe LaDuke. Like, no one's saying that, you know? But people say yeah. it about Scott Casey, they kind of visualize, well, I guess he left wrestling. I don't know where he went. It makes sense. He must have done that. No, just because... Back then, I was good-looking, and like I used to say, the women would throw their underwear at me. I laugh about that now, but, I mean, I was graced with some nice looks. And as the years went by, they went south and I went north, so to speak. But, 
I never was one to be shy around the girls, and uh, I, I can say that with a straight face. But uh, it's like I, I'll back up again, be repetitive, and say, no, I was not a gigolo. <laughs> you know, on the topic of the girls, let me circle back to your book. Once again, One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. And once again, actually, I don't know if I gave the link already. It's available at CowboyScottCasey.com. But in the book, there was something that I thought was interesting. You said the best girls were in Dallas. Was that a, well, tough, was that a tough decision to come to and do you stick to it? Yeah, I, I'm going to stick to it. Uh, being from the South, the Southern women were always warm and receptive and uh, just a pleasure to be around. You know, I, I can't say enough about the women from the South. As a matter of fact, uh, my girlfriend now is from the South. And uh, she she is so country, you, you get a kick out of her. She's sitting there pointing at me, shaking her finger and all this. But uh, just had a great time doing it, you know. So I don't know where, where you want to go with that. But. <laughs> well, let's go. I got someplace I want to go. And that is talking about something that has been a very, very popular topic here on this show. We haven't talked about it in a little while because we haven't had a firsthand guest in a while to talk to. We've talked to someone who worked on the film crew. We've talked to people involved with the Maryland independent film scene. We've talked to so many people about Santo Gold and Blood Circus, the legendary movie that only saw a release of, I think, one night, or maybe it was more than one night. It's been a while since I looked at it, and then disappeared forever with threats to be re-released over many, many years, and it has not happened still. You were a part of it, and I know actually from looking at the behind-the-scenes footage, which I have, you were really more involved with it than the average wrestler. From what I saw, it was really you and Eric Embry really were stepping up and looking through the script with Santo Gold. But tell me about what you remember about the involvement of Santo Gold with Southwest Wrestling and Blood Circus. Well, I was on the circuit in uh, South Texas, well, in, in San Antonio, and uh I guess Joe got a call from this guy, and he said he, he's making a movie, and he was nuts about the wrestlers down there and would love to have some of us up there for this movie called Blood Circus. So, I, you know, Joe said, you're going to make X amount of dollars and uh, for a couple of weeks. I said, great, let's do it. So we went up there, and my old buddy Ox Baker, I don't know whether you know who Ox is or not, but he is, you talk about a character. Yeah. He was in the movie with me, and he was also in the movie uh, Escape from New York with uh, Kurt Russell. And That's right. Uh, yeah, and he always liked to brag and say in this voice, he went, you know, this guy, Kurt Russell, the big star. I said, yeah. He said, well, he never pinned me. And I thought about it for a minute. Yeah, well, in the movie, Kurt hits him with a club, boom, and he falls on the ropes and just <laughs> hangs there and stares off into the distance. But That's true. we had a lot of fun doing it. You know, I mean, there was making a movie, there's a lot, a lot of work. There's a lot of uh, things that you have to be repetitive with, and you have to keep on and on and on and doing it until somebody says, okay, that's a take, you know. But uh, uh, it's, <laughs> it, it was fun. I mean, I, there was one scene where I hit the the wall there, went through it, and Ox was on the other side and, and caromed off of him. I mean, they did all sorts of goofy, crazy stuff like that. And it was a lot of fun, you know. But uh, I didn't think it was ever going to get published, to be honest with you. And uh, I found out that it was. But And, you know, 
my great pulling power, it only went one day or whatever, like you said. And <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it was funny. Uh, but that was my little claim to fame on the silver screen. <laughs> well, if I could ask you a couple more questions about it, because it is something that's really become of big interest to many of the listeners and myself. One, do you know who played the mummy? I think, if my memory serves me right, it was Bobby Duncan, big guy. Yeah, he played football for the Chicago Bears for a while. You talk about a big man. He was like six foot four or five and weighed about 300 pounds. And I don't know how long he played ball, but, I mean, he was good at it. But he was a hell of a worker or a wrestler, whatever you want to call him nowadays. And uh, pleasure to be around. Great guy. Did Santo Gold interact with you much, the actual star and writer and uh, schemester behind Blood Circus? Not really. Uh, he was there for all the takes and things like that. But as far as really getting to know him, no, I didn't really get to know him that well. He uh kind of strange. You know, he sat off by himself sometimes and talked to himself and go over the script or how he wanted to do it. And uh, outside of that, I really didn't get to know him that well, but I was gl- I-, I was glad to take his money because he wanted to spend it. So you know how that goes, you know. <laughs> Were you there for the performance when he had this giant band and he performed the song, of course, entitled Santo Gold? No, no, we had already left. We had flown back to uh, Texas by that time. Yeah, how does that work? Because you guys were all coming from the Southwest and this was taped in Baltimore. Did the entire crew fly up together? Yep. Yes, we did. I guess we got a group rate. I don't know. But, I mean, yeah, we all went up together and uh, did our little scenes or whatever he wanted, and uh, that was it, you know. You never heard any stories about him trying to have any further involvement in Southwest, did you, either financially or as a backer or whatever it may be? If he did, it was between him and Joe Blanchard. But uh, as far as I know, no. Once we left there, after doing our little spiel with the wrestling, uh, you know, in the movie, I never heard from him, never saw him again, anything like that. I, as a matter of fact, I didn't know if, if they'd ever completed the, the movie or not, you know. But So <laughs> that's just the way it was. It's kind of strange, but like I said, I was there to take his money if he wanted to spend it and do what they asked of me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, let's go back to the beginning because we've talked a little bit about your involvement with Southwest and, of course, Southwest is associated with San Antonio. But if we're going back to the beginning. It's a different Texas town we're going to talk about. How did you first break into wrestling? What are your first memories of wrestling? My first memories of wrestling were when I was a little boy and my dad would take me. We lived in a little town called Borger, Texas. It was up in the northeast corner of the state. And we would go, you know, in little towns like that, when you get something of of this magnitude as far as being on TV and exciting, everybody went. So we went, and uh, and I was just mesmerized by it. As far as breaking in, I used to do hair. When I'd say do hair, I did men, women, whatever. I I had a degree in it. And uh, Bobby Duncan, as a matter of fact, the man who played the mummy, uh, his wife was one of my clients, and I was cutting her hair. And uh, I was enthralled with wrestling, and I would talk to her about it. Well, she tells Bobby that I'm telling, asking her, how do you get into wrestling? 
Well, and, you know, being young guys, he probably thought I was trying to hit on his wife, and <laughs> that was the furthest thing from my mind. But she was a real sweet lady, very pretty, and uh, I she introduced me to Bobby, and I, I, I set the record straight. I said, Bob, all I want to do is learn how to, to wrestle. And uh, he got me with Dick Murdoch, Duke Myers, Terry Funk, and Dory Funk Jr. Now, that is a group right there. And I was very fortunate to be able to uh, get with these guys. And, you know, and they took me down to the ring, and they would just literally beat the you-know-what out of me. And I just kept coming back. So I I guess they all got together and said, well, I guess we're going to have to break him into the business because he won't quit. And, uh, you know, when you want something that bad, you know, you're not going to give up on it just because people are, are rough on you. And uh, I did. I, I worked and worked. And, uh, you know, I go into the the ring. It, let me say the first time you ever step into a wrestling ring, it looks so big from the outside. But when you get in that ring and it's either 18 by 18 or 20 by 20, it gets real small. You, I mean, you have to get used to the fact that I'm going to be bouncing around. And I'm weighing 230 or 250 or whatever, and the guy I'm wrestling is either as heavy or heavier than me, and it makes the ring just, I mean, it, it, it just felt real small. And then you finally get used to the fact that it that's what's happening and that's the way it's going to work and things like that. But, uh it was fun. I mean, it, it, it was the guys. Once I got in it, and they told me the ins and outs of it and everything like that. And uh, I started out in Amarillo, Texas, and that's the home of the Funks. And uh, Dory Funk Sr., God rest his soul, was a great guy, a hell of a prankster, and he would just go on and on about pranks and doing silly stuff. And uh, I'll never forget the night I actually got into the ring and I was the referee and I was with uh, Dory Funk Sr. and Cyclone Negro. Now, Cyclone Negro, if you don't know who he was, he was like, I don't know, 6'1", weighed about 260. And they say that he boxed against a professional boxer and he went, uh, oh, Pat, uh, Floyd Patterson, that's it. Went 10 rounds with him. So you knew he had to be tough if he could do that. But anyway, they're in there, and they're kibitzing, and they know that I'm I'm a rookie and greener than you know what. And uh, they uh, had their match, and, you know, and everybody knows, you know, the guys cut themselves and bleed. Well, Dory Jr. had, our senior had a uh, blade on his finger, and every time he would hit Cyclone, Blood was spring out all over the place, and the seniors laughing and cycling and cycles. He's from Caracas, Venezuela, so he's talking Spanish, and he's giving him hell like that. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do? And I thought, just get out of the way, <laughs> let them have their fun. And it was funny. I mean, it it really was, but it it, it was quite a uh, experience to be in there with two guys of their magnitude. I mean, they were just never missed a beat, never missed a bump, you know, and uh, never fin- never missed the finish in the in the match. So I really enjoyed being with them. You bring up the blade. I was surprised to read in your book. I'm always surprised when I hear about anyone who felt comfortable carrying it in their mouth. 
How do you feel comfortable doing that? I, I don't get it. I understand I having will. it taped to your fingers or putting it in your trunks, but keeping it in your mouth, I can't wrap my head around wrestling a match while it's in your mouth the whole time. How do you do that? Well, Forrest Gump said it best. Stupid is or stupid does, and that was me. <laughs> it's the only way I could figure out. I could not picture it on my finger or in my trunks. All I could do is just... And I, and I learned... I want to say it was Les or somebody like that that taught Thatcher that taught me how to do that, and it, I, it, you get to the point where it just felt comfortable doing it, and I wasn't worried about swallowing it. I wasn't worried about anything. All I was worried about was making a good match and and hoping the people come back and see us again, you know. And uh, it just it and like you said, you can't wrap your head around it until you actually get in there and do the damn thing, and it works for you. Well, you know, if it works for you, then go for it, then do it, you know, and that's the way it was for me, you know, and and there was a bunch of us from West Texas that did that, you know, I'm talking (laughs) Dusty Rhodes, uh, Ted DiBiase, uh, Jesus, the Bobby Duncan, the Funks, uh, and speaking of Funks, I hope that uh, on a serious note, that people will say a little prayer for Terry his wife passed away yeah. uh, about, I don't know, two or three weeks ago or something like that. And I talked to Terry all the time, and uh, he's just devastated, you know. And uh, I call him all the time, and and like I, I told him one time, you know, because we were pretty close friends. I said, you know, Terry, there's not, not a damn thing I can say or do or make or wish or anything that will make your life any better. I said, it's just going to take time. I said, I know Vicky was the world to you, and uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. So if anybody's got a little ounce of religion in them, pray for Terry, and life goes on, unfortunately. All the listeners of this show love Terry Funk, so I'm sure that won't be a problem. Everyone, I'm sure, is already sending out positive vibes. But uh, when it comes to West Texas, Do you feel a lot of pride when you're in the wrestling industry and you're not in Texas, let's say? Let's say you're in Florida. Let's say you're in Mid-Atlantic. Do you feel a lot of pride as coming from West Texas, from coming from Amarillo? Because there are so many guys in the business who are superstars in the business that came from there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's like I said, these guys all taught me so many things. And another place that taught me a lot of things was uh, the Carolinas. This was back before... The WWF was ever there, and uh, I, you, you had stars like Johnny Valentine, Tim Woods, Johnny Walker, Johnny Weaver, uh, you know, old, old-timers that just, you know, you, you couldn't help but admire their their take on the wrestling and how they did things, you know. It's just a, a quick story with uh, Lou Fez, who was world champion for a long time. I'm out there one day, and I see him. He's out there at the first match, peeking through the curtains. And I said, Lou, what on earth are you doing? I said, you were world champion like seven or eight times. He said, Scott, you always learn something from somebody. You can always steal something from somebody to help your repertoire or, or help you make you a better person as far as a wrestler goes. But... uh you know, back to West Texas, it came so natural for these guys. And I guess they were all a little nuts, you know. <laughs> but uh, we just, we all got along, you know. And and I, I'll never forget one time 
when I first started, there was an old timer by the name of Moose Murawski, six foot three, three hundred and something pounds, and he said, Scott. You're going to make 2500 this week. I said, man, $2,500? He said, no, miles. Amarillo has got <laughs> the most brutal, brutal territories as far as mileage goes. Picture this. You leave Amarillo. You drive up to Colorado Springs, wrestle there, hop back in your car, drive over to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Then you spend the night. The next day, you go down to El Paso. Then you go over to San Angelo. And then you go back up to Amarillo. It, uh, I'm, Brian, I'm telling you, I felt like I've been rode hard and put up wet. That's an old West Texas saying. But, I mean, it just, it was tough, you know. And I, I never forget a moose saying, I mean, he only had all this energy and everything. He's twice my size, and he can outmaneuver me in the ring. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm taking pelicans. For you out there that don't know what a pelican is, it's speed. <laughs> you know, these guys were hopped up all the time because you drive three or 400 miles, you get in the ring, you got to perform. They don't care that you've driven that far. They don't care how you feel. They just want to see what you can do. And if you can, you, what can you show me tonight? And, and did you entertain me? You damn right you better have, or else you're not going to be on the card. And I think that's another thing that the guys from West Texas all uh, did. I mean, they busted their ass. And I mean sincerely in that ring. I don't care, Brian, if it was 25 people, 2,500, or 25,000. It's like Wahoo McDaniels. I'm throwing names at you right now, but I mean, you know, these were all my friends. And I, they like Wahoo used to say, says, they don't pay to see sick wrestlers. Get your ass out there and perform. And uh, I can tell you another quick story. I'm wrestling way back when they had two out of three fall matches with the world champion, Dory Funk Jr. at the time. We're in there. We lock up the very first move. Now, Dory's bigger than I am. He's like 6'3", something like that, or 6'2". And we lock up with what they call a collar and elbow. And when we locked up, his right arm came down and caught my little finger on my left hand, and my finger just kind of fell over to the side. It was just it quit working. And I'm toughening it out, and I'm getting back. And, and I win the first round. We'll go back to the dressing room. This was how we were doing it, anything to make a buck. Okay, we're going to see what he can do in the next two rounds. I get back there, and I'm hollering, I'm crying, I'm, you know what, cussing out. It's hard not to cuss when you're an old fart like me, but, I mean, we, <laughs> That's all right. Anyway, Wahoo told me, he said, kid, they don't pay to see sick wrestlers. He said, tape that finger up and get your ass back out there. Now, nowadays, they've got doctors running around with those guys up in the WWE. But back then, they didn't. You just had to tough it out, you know. And, uh... I never forgot that 40 years later, he said, and for all of you that are faint of heart or don't like cussing, I'm sorry, but he told me that I could find sympathy alphabetically in the dictionary, Brian, between shit and syphilis. <laughs> Look it up. 
That's a great line. That's really a great line. Years ago, he told me that. And my hand, my arm, <laughs> it, the pain was going up my shoulder, down my side. And, uh, oh, but I did it. And I never, ever forgot. He was one tough man. Since you opened this door talking about Wahoo, there's another Wahoo story you tell in your book. Once again, the book, One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey, available at CowboyScottCasey.com. This story that you told in the book about Wahoo, I think was the biggest laugh I had while reading your book. I, I just, I started laughing out loud thinking about it. Well, would you mind, I, you I, probably know where I'm going, I'm guessing. Would you mind telling me? Honest to God, it's the good Lord above. It happened. And <laughs> had a theory in life. He was, he was probably six foot tall, but he weighed about 280. I mean, he gained weight like crazy. And uh, his theory in life was, if a little bit's good, Brian, a whole bunch is great. <laughs> we go to, after the TV show, which usually ran 10, 11, 12 hours sometimes, because we're shooting these, out these uh, shows, because eventually in the next two weeks or three weeks or whatever, we're going to be there doing this our thing. So anyway, we get there. And after the matches, we go to this place called Diamond Gyms. It's it's a bar. I don't even know if it's still there on Blanco Road. And uh, they had this eight-foot-tall white polar bear that revolved around an honest-to-God real polar bear. And Wahoo'd get drunk, drunk and he'd say, I'm going to skin that Wahoo. <laughs> <laughs> funny, the funniest man when he was – and even when he was serious, he could be funny. But anyway – we go after the matches to this bar, Diamond Gems, and, you know, we're all getting ass-faced, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, Wahoo's not there. And I'm looking around, and I'm with Mill Mascaris and Tom Jones, and uh, two really great stars. And I thought, now, how the hell am I getting back to the condo? Because I live there with Wahoo. And so we had a couple of fans give us a ride back. We pull in the driveway, and as I'm talking to you, Brian, the car was running. He had a black Cadillac with Wahoo on the license plate. The car was running. The doors were open. The lights were on. And I'm going, oh, no, something's wrong. The front door is open. <laughs> in the house, and I nearly stepped into a pile of, well, how do you put it, you know, waste. He had, there was three piles of foam on the floor. And I'm going, at, I'm hollering, Wahoo, he's not answering. And then I hear the shower, and I think, well, maybe he's in the shower. Because there was three piles of foam, and he had had to relieve himself on all three of them. That's about as nice as I can get with that. But anyway, <laughs> go in the shower room, I mean, you go in the bathroom, and you know the showers have the glass doors in them, you, you can open them up. And yeah. Anyway, his shower had water about a foot and a half deep, and there must have been three, $400 in it floating in there, and his pants were down. But Wahoo's <laughs> not in his pants. I'm hollering. So I, now here's a guy that's six foot and about 280, 290, and I hear him hollering, oh! I walk into the drip. <laughs> How do you get a six-foot man, 290 pounds, under your bed? He's curled up like, he, tight as a knot. And he's dating this gal named Sandy. And 
the only reason I tell this now is because Wahoo's passed away, because otherwise he'd probably beat the you-know-what out of me for telling the story. But anyway, <laughs> I call Sandy, and she comes over, and here's where, if a little bit's good, then a whole bunch is great comes in. He goes, I can't take it. And Sandy said, what'd you do? He said, oh, I'm trying to lose some GD weight. So I went, what? <laughs> he had taken six phenomen, black stiffs. <laughs> he had taken two LASIK shots, water pill shots that make you urinate. And I thought, are you out of here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you really are. Because he figured, well, I'll lose all this weight, and I can, I can lose 20 or 30 pounds. And Sandy said, you like to have killed yourself. You know that, don't you? And I'm laughing my ass off, and he's looking at me. He said, if I could get up, he said, I'd beat the you-know-what out of the ass. No, you wouldn't, because you can't get up. Brian, it was the funniest, funniest thing, you know. And that was the way his life was. You know, he was, if a little bit's good, then a whole bunch is great. And I never forgot that. And that was 40 years ago, something like that, you know. I mean, it's just... The stories just go on and on. We may have 45 minutes to an hour doing this. I could keep you up all night long and drinking beer and have you delirious. I mean, some of these things these guys did were just unreal. Well, Southwest, I'm guessing that was the most fun you had in your career. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. We had more fun there. And uh, I I won all the belts. I was the world champion. I was this and that, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm patting myself on the back right now. But, well, hell, I just turned 72. And believe me, <laughs> all you have, when they say all you have are your memories, they're right. Because after a while, time is a diminishing asset. And I think I quoted that in my book. I said, because once it's gone, it's gone. I remember when I was up in uh, New York in the WWF, and uh, I had gone up there to do some uh, autograph signing stuff, and I went to the matches, and uh, here was Hogan, here was Randy Savage, all the big stars then. And I told him, I said, you know, boys, you're making all the big money. God bless you, I, you know. And like a guy told me one time, he said, it's not what you make, Scott. It's what you save. I wish the hell I'd have taken that to heart, but I didn't. I had a little setback with a heart attack, and uh, that took care of that. But anyway, I, I told him, I said, I don't care how bad you feel. I don't care if your wife wants to divorce you. I don't care if you've broken your arm or leg or whatever. I said, enjoy Every minute of it, even the bad things, I said, because once you you have a window in time that you go through in this business. Once you go through it, you can't come back. I don't care who you think you are and how big and strong you think you are, but once you go through it, it's over. It's all, it's gone. And, you know, Vince gave me my walking papers after three years up there, and, uh, and Brian, I trained like a madman. I would go work six days a week, an hour and a half to two hours at a time for 20 years. I never gave it up. He gave me my walking papers, and I told him, I said, he, he said, I said, well, Vince, do I have a job with you in 1990 or not? He said, no. He said, go down to Atlanta and come back in a year later. I'm 42 years old at this time, and I said to him, I said, you know, Vince, I can accept failure when given a chance to fail, and you guys never did. 
Now, be realistic. Maybe they didn't like the way I looked. Maybe they did. Somebody had a, you know what, on for me for some reason or another. But uh, I never got the chance that I thought I was deserved. You know, I, I set records in Texas and all that. And when I say this, it's fact. I'm not trying to blow my own horn or anything like that. But I, I, I told him. I said. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I wanted to jump over the table and strangle him because I was devoted to it. It's like I told somebody one time, I said, you ever have a job that you can't wait till you get up the next day because you're going to do it again and they're going to pay you and enjoy it that much? I did. I had a great job doing it, but I miss it. You know, I mean, like I said, I, I, I worked six Days a week, worked out six days a week, and and then I would uh, go to work that night in the ring, and uh, like I wasn't the biggest guy. I had big arms, big chest, but I was like five eleven, six foot, like that. And uh, they had guys that had my dimensions that were six two and six three. I mean, they had they have had some tremendous, tremendous talent up there, and uh, it just just the way it was, you know. So. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling around here, so if I get off the beaten track, throw me back on it, okay? No, it, it's great, and you know, it got me thinking when you were talking before about setting some records, some attendance records in Texas. You know, I do a show at Ron Fuller each week, and we jokingly talk about his territory, Southeastern, being the forgotten territory. It was a very yeah. successful territory. Everybody had a good livelihood who worked there, but it wasn't in the magazines. There aren't as many videos as some other places. It's kind of a forgotten territory. Do you think Southwest is similar to that? Because, you know, in reading your book and, and listening to you go through your favorite feuds of all time, yeah. and it's Mansfield, and, and that's a great program. And we're talking about record-drawing programs in Texas. Correct me if I'm wrong, that was your biggest one, was you and Eddie Mansfield. Um, we set a record there at the Hemisphere Arena. I, I don't even know if the Hemisphere Arena is there or not anymore. But anyway, we set records at... at you better be on your toes if you think you're going to break that record. I mean, we and Eddie and I talk, and uh, when this is all over, if you want to, I don't know whether you've ever talked with Eddie or not, but I'll give you his phone number. And uh, great guy, you know, and he was a little, I hadn't seen him in probably 30 years. And I used to go, I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I, I would um, go to what they, every third month on the last Friday of the third month we would uh, go to what they call the legends Brian Blair had it and, you know, a lot of a bunch of the old timers who were still kicking and uh, the bunch of young hopefuls were there and it was just God it's fun getting old don't do it Brian I swear you, you get these senior moments all of a sudden <laughs> but anyway we had a great time there and uh, it Eddie oh yeah I was tell you about Eddie. Eddie, I talked to him on the phone one day, and he was kind of apprehensive about going because he had spilled the beans about wrestling years ago to some big TV show or something. And I said, Eddie, that was 30 freaking years ago. Don't worry about it. The guys would love to see you. And finally, I talked him into coming to the, to the Legends thing. And Brian was there, and everybody greeted him real warm and things like that. And now I can't get him to shut up. He'll call me all the time. <laughs> just <laughs> and all that. But, I mean, he appreciated what I did for him. I said, look, Eddie, I said, you do what you did. You had your reasons behind it. So be it. 
It's over. It's gone, you know. And half the guys you were talking about are dead anyway. So what difference does it make? But uh, he's a great guy, too. He really is. And uh, Let me ask you about Eddie. Let me ask you about working with him because he was your biggest feud in Southwest. You set that record. Right. You know, his career was kind of cut short, and the 2020 expose obviously stopped it dead in its track. He was never going to get a big push anywhere else ever again. But for those who didn't get to see much Eddie Mansfield, just how good was he in the ring to work against? Smooth as silk. I mean, and, uh, you know, for people that don't really know the business that well, yes, we talk to each other in the ring. You can't, uh, you know, and nowadays they have it choreographed the whole damn match. Back when we were doing it, it was like catches catch can is what they called it. Talk to each other, you know, snatch a headlock, the guy go, I'll shoot you off, give you a tackle, drop down, hip toss, reverse a hip toss, arm drag me. We were talking like crazy, you know, but we did it, hopefully, where the people wouldn't see it. But, I mean, he was really smooth, and, and uh, he was a, it was a pleasure to be around, and even more so now, even if he does talk my ear off half the time, but he was great guy. The other one from Southwest that obviously everyone points to because of the controversy, although how much it played into the WWF taking over the USA Network spot may be overblown, but so many people still point to you and Bobby Jaggers and the infamous manure, I guess to use a nice word, incident on TV where you dumped the bucket of manure over his TV. It aired on the USA Network. Talk a little bit about working with Bobby Jaggers and this this notorious angle, was it real manure, and did you guys know it would cause any problems? Bobby and I had a feud going on. You can only criticize somebody so many different ways and talk about them and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I used to raise, honest to God, I re- once I got the cowboy gimmick with Joe Blanchard, he said, uh, you need to get into it. Well, hell, I, I rented 60 acres of land on the south uh, east side of the San Antonio, and I used to board horses. And I met a guy from uh, Atoka, Oklahoma. His name is Jim Howard, and he taught me all about horses. I shooed them. I did. I, we, if you know what a come along is, it's a device that'll help you. Some of the mares would have trouble delivering, and we'd reach in there and help them bring them out. But anyway, Bobby actually came up with this gimmick about the horse manure. And folks, may I die right now if we didn't do this. I took, it was like a 20-gallon bucket, and we filled it with horse manure, and some of the guys relieved themselves in there. Honest to God, I swear to God this happened, you know. (laughs) And we did this interview, and Steve Stack is the announcer, and he's talking. And I say something about Bobby, and Bobby cups me with his right hand in my left ear, and I still can't hear out of it today. I wear a hearing aid because of it, but it was his idea to do this. We had this 20-gallon bucket. And once he did that, he turned around and started ranting and raving to the people. I picked up this bucket, and it, oh, Brian, oh, pitiful the way it smelled. But anyway, I dumped it over his head, and he worked with this bucket. By the time all that was out, his eyes were beet red. You know, the year, (laughs) a whole bit. But honest to God, it was... (laughs) 
but uh, we made a good living with it. You know, it's just, you know, back then it was, what can you do next to entertain me? Because most of the people had seen just about anything and everything. But this one lit up the airways all over the country, as far as I know. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing it and made a few shekels at it at the time. But it was all true, yes. Did Steve Stack know you were going to do it, and what was his reaction? Because it goes on his pants, doesn't it? Yeah, he he tried to get away from him, but when you have all that much crap and, you know, urine and all that, <laughs> and it's spurred all over the place, and he had to go back and change his pants. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was gross. But it was fun, you know. We, like I said, you gotta you gotta wake these people up some way, cause like you, they've seen everything, just about. And this was one thing they had never seen before. Another guy I do shows with is Jim Cornette, and we're always surprised that all these years later we still hear from so many listeners who want to know about the Green Jacket. <laughs> what do you remember about working with Jimmy in the Midnight Express and? Do you still have the green jacket? Is this something that you could uh, turn over at this time? No, we, uh, I, I, they sent it to the cleaners and cleaned it up. But, I mean, it was <laughs> one of my horses. I wiped his rear end after he relieved himself. And <laughs> You know, like I said before, and I'll say it again, you got to do something to make them stand up and say, wow, I want to go see these guys wrestle. This was great. Honest to God, because we were there to entertain, to make money, and we did everything in the world to do it. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it would, you know, it peter out somewhere along the line. But when you do stuff like we did, you know, the hair match, the the horses, the manure, and all that stuff, it's just we just had. And Wahoo was the booker, so he came up with a lot of this stuff too. And uh, <laughs> funny guy, but uh, it was fun. Looking at your time in world class, what was that like for you? Because they were really successful. They were on fire at that time. And all things considered, it was a really small crew. It was the Von Erichs and a couple other guys. And if you were working in a tag team match, you may be working in two singles matches as well. What was that like, 85 in world class? Well, it was like going to the Oscars and not even being nominated. <laughs> and that kind of sounds kind of funny, but... Everything was on the Von Erichs. Everything revolved around them. And they uh, just kept it that way. You know, I mean, that was their their territory. And the old man, uh, Fritz, uh, if he liked you, he'd do some things for you. But And they liked me, but they just did not want me to get over with the crowd that much. And, uh, okay, so be it. All right. It's like uh, Nelson Royal said to me one time. He said, uh, ride that horse till it drops and grab you another one. Start all over again. And that's what we did, you know. So, But uh, the boys, I, how can I be polite and say this? They love their drugs, obviously, you know. And uh, they. Uh, it's a shame things turned out the way they were, but, you know, they were so into each other that, oh, he killed himself. I guess I'm going to have to do that, too. You know, and, and that's sad to say, but that's the way it was. You know, they just, I don't know how you put it, you know, except to me, I think they were nuts, you know. But, I mean, 
Somebody once said that God won't forgive you for killing yourself. Well, there's three or four of them there that he won't forgive, you know, because, I mean, these guys, why would you shoot yourself? Why would you take pills? Why would you do all these crazy things, you know, because your brothers did? Maybe that, you know, I mean, I don't understand, Brian. I really don't. But they always have a legacy. Uh, They were great draw. Kerry was a great draw. And he looked magnificent. Even after he tore his foot off, he still looked magnificent out there. And uh, But you never know how some of these things are going to play out, you know. Jim Cornette has said to me several times that he always felt while he was there, he never saw the genius Booker in Ken Mantell. He thought Ken Mantell was more of a babysitter for the brothers. What did you think of Ken Mantell as a Booker? I thought he was a good Booker. Honest guy. Uh, as far as you had, I guess, tread lightly around the, the Von Erichs because you insult one, you've insulted the whole family, you know? So I just kept my mouth shut. Okay, they want you to do this or that or blah, blah, blah. And uh, like I said, Nelson Royal said, ride that horse till it drops and grab you another one. So that's what I would do. You know, we'd do our little takes and things but the boys were the big stars and hey it's their ball it's their ballpark they can do whatever the hell they want to do you know but uh i think jimmy was right when he said you know that they just babysit everybody to go step back real quick i did want to ask you about australia because you were over there at the end of 72 early 73 And that's when there was a lot of things going on in America, specifically in Georgia. That's when the Georgia wrestling war broke out. And eventually Jim Barnett would sell his Australian company and buy Lester Welch's stock in the Georgia company. And then eventually buy Ann Gunkel's stock in all South. And Jim Barnett would end up owning Georgia. What were you hearing about it, if anything? I mean, you were a young guy. You were really early into your career, but you're in Australia. Is there any scuttlebutt? What are you hearing about what's going on back in the States? You know, and to be perfectly honest with you, I never heard anything. I mean, I was, if some of the guys were talking, they weren't talking to me about it. I was just amazed being from West Texas to know that when it's 20 degrees here in our country, it's 120 over there. I mean, you know, I I had no idea. You know, finally I got the realization, Scott, you're on the other side of the world. This is the way it's going to go. But like I said, as far as uh, the promotions and what they were doing with it, we never had, I never heard anything about it, simply because we were over there doing our thing. You know, Spiros Arion, Bob Roop, Dennis McCord, me, Dewey Robertson, you know, and... Uh, How popular was Arion with the Australian fans? Oh, like a million bucks. I mean, the guy was great. I worked with him, and uh, he was very light, very easy to work with. But you had to put him over. He was their champion. So, okay, that's what they did. That's what I'm going to do, you know. So, But he was a nice guy. A lot of fun to be around. Because you got to see really all three of the big stars there, right? You got to see Mario Milano, Dominic Danucci, and Arion while you were there. It's so funny you mentioned Mario Milano one day. We were living in the Texas Tavern Hotel right there in Sydney. And Mario says, Scott, my boy, everybody... Mimic. He says, Scott, my boy, he says, I want to take you to see a little bird watching. And I'm thinking, what? I don't have any binoculars. What the hell? He said, no, you idiot. I'm talking about women. Okay. 
there was a uh, a nudist colony they had. <laughs> I said, we're not going in there, are we? He said, do you want to? I said, no. I said, I'll look at it from afar. But, he, you know, but uh, he was fun to be around. He'd smoke his cigar and he'd have a couple of drinks and very mild-mannered big guy and uh, fun being around. But you learn fun. You learn all these things from these guys, you know, and, but that's what they call women over there. They call them birds. And uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but that's it. So <laughs> there we were, bird watching. How did you like working for Jim Barnett? Jim was a different breed of cat. Now, I'm from West Texas, and we didn't have that many gay people around. Or if we did, they weren't flaunting their sexuality, okay? And he would look at me. I'm... I shouldn't say out of hell with it. I'm taking a shower, and he walks past one day, and he goes, oh, my God, that's worth at least $100. And I looked at him, and I said, what? Honest to God, gave me a, he handed me $100, and he said, that's wonderful. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, Jim was a different breed of cat. He just didn't keep his sexuality to himself. He didn't care. You know, he had plenty of money. He didn't care what you thought. You didn't like what he said. Well, to hell with you. You know, so that's the way it went. But <laughs> I hadn't thought about that in years either. I'll probably get a lot of hell over that, but I don't care. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how much that would be worth now with inflation. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. You can put that on your business cards if you really were a gigolo. Jim yeah. Barnett said $100 in 1972. Talk a little bit about Florida, because obviously you had a couple runs in there. And as you point out in your book, at one point you were there and Eddie was really hands-on. And at another point, Eddie was hands-off. What was it like to work there when Eddie was hands-on versus when Eddie was hands-off? He had a tremendous knowledge of the business. He could watch the matches and he could know which direction he would want you to go. I mean, I was amazed, you know, and uh, there again, you talk about guys committing suicide. You know, he did. His son did. Mike's son did. And I, I thought, what is the matter with these people in this world? You know, you, none of us going to make it out alive. And why the hell would you want to hurry it up? You know, but that's just the way it was. And, but he was a master. He was a genius at, at coming up with angles. And Dusty Rhodes helped him a lot, too. Can't say enough about Dusty. What a character. God bless his soul. And you got to work with Dusty. You got to team up with Dusty at the height of Dusty Mania in Florida when he really lit things up. Oh, all I had to do was stand in there and look good, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, the tag match would bing, bang, boom, and they beat me up, man. I'd give him the hot tag, and he'd come in there with that jelly roll body is and whip everybody. And people went out of their mind. It was so funny. You know, and I thought, how does he do that? And it, it, he reminded me of a Southern Baptist preacher. I can tell just his eyes would get real big. He'd grin real big. And he'd have that charisma that the people just love. You know, let's do something to make a dollar. Well, Dusty knew how to make a dollar. Honest to God, he was great at it. And uh, you can't blame him for that, no matter what he looked like. You know, I mean, he was, he was a big guy, don't get me wrong. But... Uh, as far as working out, I don't know whether he ever worked out or not, but he damn sure knew what he was doing in that ring. You can hear a lot more 
about Dusty and many other guys you worked with, as well as many other tales throughout your wrestling career in your new book. Once again, One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey, available at CowboyScottCasey.com. As we begin to wrap things up, anything you want to say to the listeners out there who are, one, happy to hear you on the show, but two, maybe considering buying your book? Well, I put my heart and soul into it, you know. I mean, they didn't, it's just like the first time I was on, I, I, dro- I drove from West Texas down to Florida. Try that when you've never done it before, in a Volkswagen. And my car went out on me. And uh, a trucker stopped and picked me up, hauled me into town. And uh, this mechanic that loved wrestling. And if it wasn't for him, I'd probably be washing dishes in uh, Decatur, uh, Decatur, Texas, you know, somewhere or something. But uh, it was uh, it was an up and a, ha- a down thing. I mean, it, it none of it ever went real smooth all the time. And like I said before, uh, when I talked to Hulk and, and, and uh, Randy Savage, no matter how you feel about it, enjoy it. You are one of the few, few people that can actually say, hey, I was in the ring. I did this and that. I don't care how you feel about wrestling, but there are so many people that love it nowadays. Just go crazy over it. And uh, I enjoyed it, and I'm very proud that I I got to do it. And I hope you folks enjoy my book. And, uh, Brian, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Give me a holler anytime, and I can kibitz about anything. You name it. There he is, Cowboy Scott Casey, author of this week's Book of the Week. Book of the Week. Oh, Jerry, I didn't know you were still here. I'm always here, Brian, man. All you got to do is pick up your phone, and I'm there. Well, that's a tough thing, is getting me to pick up the phone. But it is time for our Book of the Week. And this week's Book of the Week is, as we just mentioned, One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. This is available exclusively right now at CowboyScottCasey.com. You could also go there and get an autographed copy. As Scott said at the beginning of the interview, Nick Massey was someone who worked with him, a longtime listener, or as Scott called him, Nick Massio. I guess maybe that's his new name, like Lasto, Nick Massio. But this book is filled with stories like you just heard in a previous segment, anecdotes, tales about various people. So if you enjoyed that segment, if you enjoyed hearing from Cowboy Scott Casey, you should check out this book. Once again, it's at CowboyScottCasey.com. It is our book of the week, One Last Ride, The Tale of Cowboy Scott Casey. But for all your other needs, whether it's books, DVDs, music, does anyone buy DVDs anymore? Blu-ray, I guess I should throw that in there, video games, and everything else. I buy so much stuff on Amazon that I can't even think of it. And I go there and I look at it. I'm like, oh my God, they do have Sesame Street stuff for the kids. Whatever it may be, you can go to Amazon. And if you're going to go to Amazon, use tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon for all your Amazon purchases and all your Amazon needs. By using that link, you support this show. You don't do anything differently than you would normally do. You don't spend any more money than you would normally spend. But we get a little bit of love and support from those fine, fine people over at Amazon. It's a great way to support this show without spending anything more than you would normally spend or doing anything different than you would normally do. So if you enjoy the super podcast, the greatest wrestling podcast of all time, then please use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows. And let's face it, most shows, especially outside of the Arcadian Vanguard network and shows aligned with Arcadian Vanguard, most shows are dog shit. 
So you have to ask yourself, do I support dog shit? Do I want to walk around and have people think of me and dog shit in the same sentence? Or do I want to support the best? Do I want to support the greatest wrestling podcast and a network of the finest wrestling podcasts out there? That's a choice you need to make. You have to decide where you stand. Do you stand on the side of banality? Do you stand on the side of mediocrity? Or do you stand on the side of greatness? That's your decision, but I think when it comes down to it and you think about it for more than one second, the answer will be quite obvious. The answer will be clear. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Support the Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. And with that, let's now go to our final segment this week on the show. I was very happy to have a long conversation with a great guy, someone I, every time I talk to, I really enjoy talking to him, and that is Jody Simon. You may know him as Joe Malenko, of course, the son of the great Malenko, and he has such an incredible story. He was involved with so much stuff, and we're going to talk a lot about that here today, whether it's Carl Gotch or Knoxville and so much more. Let's go to this segment right now with Jody Simon. I am very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast a man that many of you may remember as Joe Malenko. But we know him better as Jody Simon, the son of the great Malenko and a great friend of professional wrestling. Jody, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. So when you said son of, I was, you, you kind of took a little pause there. I was worried where you were going. And also, just, <laughs> just as, a, as a matter of housekeeping, you probably, with me on, you probably ought to get rid of the word super and just call it a podcast. Well, we'll find out. We'll see how this goes. I mean, in the next few minutes, maybe a real... I can tell you already. <laughs> Well, we'll see. Uh, you know, before we get going with anything else, there's a few things we want to talk about today. But I wanted to talk to you specifically about something that recently happened. And, you know, so much wrestling history has been either lost or erased or in some cases paved over, I guess. But you recently spearheaded something pretty cool to honor and really keep the legacy alive of the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory in Tampa. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, it's... um. It's a well-known fact by a bunch of people locally and maybe out and beyond from here, just because it's been talked about a lot over the last couple of years. Um, about two years ago, I always hate saying, um, I hate when people say, um, so <laughs> I'm going to try not to say, um, okay. um, <laughs> about <laughs> however long ago it was, see, maybe three years ago now, a gentleman by the name of Jack Ross, who was heading up the Jewish community center here in town that had just purchased the old Fort Homer Hesterly Armory approached me and said, my understanding is from a couple guys in town that your dad was a wrestler and he was the only Jewish professional wrestler and we'd like to do something to recognize his stint at the old armory because it you know, it was important to this town that the armory was what it was. It was the house of wrestling for years and years and years. Every Tuesday night, Gordon Soldi said it best. So... I then turned to Jack Ross and said, I don't think you understand the full breadth and depth of what wrestling meant to Tampa and how the armory was the house that wrestling built, even though it had a, a, a much more elaborate history beyond wrestling. So we talked and I said, how about we do like a wall? Maybe we can do memorabilia. Maybe we can do recognition of the people who have gone, you know, who are no longer with us. He thought that was a great idea, and he said, "Okay, fine, uh, that'll be a half a million dollars." And um, <laughs> after I picked myself up, after I picked myself up off the floor, um, we came up with two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that really wasn't to buy the wall; it was just part of the 
original effort to get funds to build the building, which was going to take 20 some odd million dollars, I think was the, was the total amount. Um, so there's the um again. So, <laughs> so that's, that's where we went. And I, you know, I pursued it here in town to see if I could raise money. We did a fan fest, which was the first of the fan fest. Now Barry Rose does fan fest here in town, but the first one that happened was based on doing a fundraiser for the wall. We had everybody and their mother in town, all the old timers. Everybody did it for free except Dory Funk. And um <laughs> You mean Marty Funk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Dory Dory has Dory has blonde hair and kind of uh he's become buxomy over the last few years. <laughs> uh if yeah, I I picture him now pretty much as a guy with a bunch of strings hanging from the ceiling and so <laughs> we had we had this event. The interesting thing about the event was that that was the day that we got word that Dusty died. Oh wow! It was June. It was June of two years ago, I guess, or three years ago now. Yeah, uh, I, I still have the I still have a voicemail from him. I've kept it from the day before the event where we were talking. And anyway, um, so that's what happened. We had this big event. Everybody got together. All the people showed up. We had a really great crowd. Because Dusty passed away, we had every media outlet was on site because we had all the boys there being able to talk about the business and Fort Homer Hesley and and Dusty's influence on wrestling on a national level so that was pretty neat and we raised you know we raised some money raised enough to get things going it literally took from that point on till just a few months ago to get this thing put up it became a little bit less than i wanted it to be just because i thought we could have done a lot more and really made it a true wall of fame it became more of a, a memoriam to all those people who were great in the past and i recognize a couple guys who are still around Steve Kern's not gone yet. <laughs> Jerry Briscoe isn't gone yet. Thank God. So um, that's it. And it's, you know, it sits at the JCC. You walk in, it's kind of on a back wall, but from the registration desk, you can see it. And it, again, commemorates that building as the building that wrestling pretty much built and was so important to this community because there was nothing else. We talk about the fact that, you know, there were no bucks or were no, um, there were no other major sports efforts in this town except highlight at the fronton and wrestling was it. So everybody loved it. Uh, the wall sits there now as a as a remembrance. And for me, it was important because I I put a little thing down at the bottom that you know it was it was in an effort to truly remember my my father, you know Larry Simon. And that's it. Uh, first time I walked. So first time I walked in. Quick little story because I told you before I have seventy three of them. This is one out of seventy three. <laughs> so I so I walked in and a friend of mine had done a piece of artwork and it's fairly substantial. I mean, it's like the size of a, you know, probably about five feet by four feet or something like that. And what he had done was he had taken pieces of the building as the building was demolished. He took pieces of it and he placed it in a, you know, in a very artsy way on this, um, on this backdrop. And then he sprayed it all white and on the different pieces, he had like a longitude latitude and he would put a name of a famous celebrity or, or um, you know, person of fame at the time who visited this building, who participated in something at this building. So I hadn't seen it yet. I walked in to talk to Jack Ross and he said, Hey, let me show you what your guy, you know, what your guy did. And I, I look at this thing. It's phenomenal. Really, you know, got me all choked up even before I saw what I saw. And then I started looking a little bit closer. Well, you know, there was one little piece of the building and it said John F. Kennedy on it because JFK gave a speech there before he moved on to Dallas, and we all know what happened there. 
um, Buddy Holly, Reverend Martin Luther King. These were the names on this wall. And then all of a sudden I go over just a little bit and I see Boris Malenko. And I thought, I thought my dad's in pretty good company. And of course I had to walk away and Jack's like, what's wrong? I'm like, leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Get away from me. I'm not crying. (laughs) I got dust. It's real dusty. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that's my, uh, that's my wall story. And it's up there for people to see. So if anybody's ever in town and they want to go over there, you got you to gotta call them and let them know you want to come take a peek. But Yeah, that was um, going to be my next question. Is it something where if a listener is in the Tampa area, they can just go visit it? How can someone go and see what you were able to accomplish with this wall? Well, you can't just drop in because it's pretty secure. It's a pretty secure facility based on the world we live in, <laughs> world we live in nowadays. And, uh, you know, the protective mechanisms needing to be in place for, for some of our Jewish community members. So you have to call. Um, but people have called in the past and have gotten in. So it's, you know, it's not that difficult. You just have to let them know, Hey, I want to come see this wall. This is an important building to me. And do you mind if I come and, you know, nine out of 10 times, unless it's you, nine out of 10 times, they're going to say, sure. Unless it's you. <laughs> unless it's you. <laughs> um, so the listeners who may not know too much of the history, obviously Tampa wrestling every week, Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. This JCC, is it a complete rebuild? Did they tear down the entire building and rebuild it? Did they build on the part of it? Exactly what is left, if anything, other than your friend's sculpture from the original Fort Homer Hesterly Armory? So what they did that was really neat, and it, and, it, and it was a great thing that they did. They preserved the exterior of this building, and they made it look brand new. So when you come up to the JCC now, it is, it is as if you are transported back in time to when they first built Fort Homer Hesley Armory. It's you know it's it's perfectly intact on the outside. It's pristine white. You know they did the. I mean it, it's phenomenal. So they maintain the integrity of this building on the outside. On the inside they gutted it. It is not anything that it used to be on the inside. I mean for those of us who grew up in this building with our dads or or going there as fans or whatever, which I sort of did a little bit of both. You know you remember where things are. I mean I knew exactly. I mean, I know exactly where everything was. Guys like Ted Webb, who used to sell Coke there, he knows, you know, we all know where everything was, but if you didn't and somebody said, hey, um, go into this building and take a look around, they would, you know, they would have no clue. It's, it's, they did a, they did a great job on this place. It's got some, it's got some really good conference areas. They do a lot of group things there. Um, got a great workout facility, full indoor basketball court, outdoor Olympic pool. So if anybody wants to join a really nice club, the JCC, even though it's a Jewish community center, it is uh, open to the public if you're local. If you're not local and you just want to go in, you need to call him. Obviously, Dusty left you that message, and he died on the day you did the Fan Fest and the fundraising event. Was he originally intending to attend? No, he wasn't going to be able to make it. So that wasn't that wasn't an issue. He, he wasn't going to be able to be there, which, which was kind of upsetting, but then it was hard to be upset with a guy who longer after the fact. And, and they're really... Yeah, I mean, I, I say this every all the time. It, it was a bittersweet deal. You know, it was it was terrible that Dusty passed away. It was what really drove the message home that day as to what the whole impetus was for this wall and why we needed to do this. Because not only was wrestling so important to this area, and we had so many greats that truly paved the way on a national level, even on an international level, based out of Tampa that so many of these guys were no longer with us. So we needed to do something to kind of remember them. And that was an important part of this. And because Dusty passed away, it drove that message home loud and clear 
um, you know, just to give you an idea too. When so we had a we had a little gathering at the wall with uh, some local press when it got put up, and uh, Nicole Alonso Gossett, Mike's daughter, Mike Graham's daughter, Eddie Graham's granddaughter, uh, was supposed to meet us there. She came in, she saw the wall, she turned around, she left. She couldn't she couldn't even talk um, because it was so important to her, and it hit her so hard that she had this place now that remembers her family that memorializes her dad and her grandfather. So it's just a good thing. And I'm glad it happened. And it was a result of a lot of people's efforts. Tampa's so different today than it was 40 years ago, let alone 50 or 60 years ago. Are there still a lot of people in the community uh, that you find that remember Dusty and your father and Eddie Graham, even beyond the wrestling with someone like Eddie, the things they did in the community? There are still a lot of people who talk about that and remember that locally? I think, well, I think what's happened is, is more people remember Dusty than remember my dad, As, you know, especially, it's, it depends on when you follow things and how old you are, obviously, but, you know, there's there's still a lot of people who remember the, the Graham-Malenko feud, which was, you know, arguably, or maybe even inarguably, the greatest feud in all of professional wrestling, but, uh, you know, Dusty, Dusty was the 70s, so if anybody grew up and they were focused in on wrestling in the 70s, they didn't even know who my dad was. Or they may be caught the tail end of my dad's career here in town. But everybody knows who Dusty Rhodes is because his reach and his um, notoriety went much further than Tampa because of what he did in other, you know, in other organizations after the fact. And then, of course, his, you know, then of course his kids. You know, you, you bring up your father's feud with Eddie Graham. That is one of the most legendary feuds in wrestling history, certainly the most legendary in Florida history. And unfortunately... Unless somehow the WWE goes through the vault and finds some stuff, there isn't a lot of footage from when it was really hot and heavy. And I'm curious. Nobody's, nobody's seen any footage at all of my dad versus Eddie. Yeah. That I'm aware of. And one of the angles that people still talk about, it's so legendary, and other people have tried to do it. I know Ox Baker later tried to repeat it, where your father's teeth were knocked out and Eddie stomped on him. Do you remember that? Were you watching when that happened? Yeah, of course. That was. Yeah, that was one of the hottest deals of the time. My mom had to my mom had to blenderize all my dad's foods after that. <laughs> <laughs> was that a fun time? I think he, was that a fun time uh, for your dad? It was great. I mean, look. So for my dad, and I say this all the time, my dad loved the business. My dad loved the business so much that he loved the business that. <laughs> You know, not to get real personal here, but he loved the business at the cost of everything, at the cost of his family, at the cost of everything. The business was everything to him. As I say that, though, he was he was so he was so matter of fact about his own role in the business and his abilities in the ring that yeah, I don't I don't think there's anybody that I've ever run into that had a more humble nature who was as talented as he was in the things that he did. Uh, you know, to this day, I mean, I. Yeah, people would say, "Hey, Jody, you were a great worker. You were this, you were that." And I'd, I'd look at him and go, "You know, compared to my dad, man, I, you know, my timing sucked compared to my dad. My dad's timing was perfect. He just, you know, he had a he had a credibility to him in the ring. You know, given given he had some cutesy little things that he would do, almost comic. Rick Flair, you know, Rick Flair was telling me a story once. I have it on video where he said, "You know, my dad had the amazing ability to make him laugh in the beginning, and then want to kill him later on in the match." And so. It was a time where everything was so hot for him that it was it was everything to him, and the boys were everything to him. You know, his best friends, you know, Eduardo Perez here in town, um, Jacob Groby, who 
you know, uh, Lord Charles Montague, Hans Mortier, you know, Jake was his best friend, Bob Orton Sr. I mean, my dad was very lucky. He had a, he had like three really good friends in his life. He used to tell me all the time, he says, you'd be lucky, man, if you have one good friend. Um, he was blessed with three. And so he, he thrived on the business. It was everything he knew. That's what he lived for. What was it like for you as a kid when your father is the top heel, the hated heel in Florida, feuding with Eddie Graham, and you have to go to school? Well, we kept it. We kept it. Uh, you know, we kept it somewhat clandestine the first couple of years. We didn't make it known that my dad was who my dad was uh, until a buddy of mine in the second year I was in grade school before I went to high school. He came up to me. He said, "Hey, my mom works for Delta, and she saw this name when Malenko went through, and that's your last name. And is this your dad?" <laughs> I went, "Damn it." <laughs> Foiled again. <laughs> Steve Wright. Steve Wright was a kid's name. In fact, I, we were supposed to get together recently after 40-some-odd years. Um, yeah, he's the, one, he's the one whose mom caught me. But, but, but it, it's not like anybody ever came at me because my dad was a heel. Because you know, my dad was a heel that everybody loved. It was, it was amazing, especially, in, especially in, in some of the other communities of Tampa that certain people didn't want to go into. My dad, my dad was... He just had this, he had this way about him, and he was fun to watch in the ring. Even though people wanted to kill him, he was still fun to watch. And that's one of the reasons why he turned babyface. It, it was just, he was so loved in this area, it just kind of became a natural thing for him to become a babyface. And my dad would always tell you that he didn't change his style of work at all. I mean, he was still, he was a, you know, he was a hard, he was a hard baby. He was a hard baby. He was a hard babyface. <laughs> he, he was still a heel at heart, but the the tide of, feelings toward him turned just because he became so beloved in this community, even though he really wouldn't talk to non-wrestlers that much outside of the business. You know, a lot of guys still talk about your dad in terms of his, like you said, his naturalness in the ring, his ability to have great timing, and also his interviews, which were standout promos for his entire career. Did he ever tell you where that came from? Obviously, he started up here in Newark. He's from New Jersey. But what were his big influences in terms of his in-ring style as well as his interview style? I tell you, we didn't, you know, we didn't really talk about where he pulled things from as much as me just witnessing him around the country in different regions, you know, different territories, and who he was hanging with at the time. You know, my dad's interview style was, I mean, it really was his own. It was, you know, maybe it was a conglomeration of everything that he had seen. I don't think he pulled off of any one person individually. He never said to me, hey, this guy was great and I really wanted to emulate him or something. But my dad was very my dad was very um dedicated to making sure that what he did, he did well when it came to being at the mic. So my dad had a legal pad. And you know, the sad thing about my dad was he you know, he had a high school education. He wasn't you know, he wasn't well written, but he made his way through things. I used to look at his handwriting and I'd go, Oh my God, this I you know, I'd I'd wanna say, no, this is somebody else's dad. But he would you know, he put everything. He put everything down on paper, and he would map out what he was going to say, and then he would rehearse it, kind of, and then he would, you know, change it up a little bit. And by the time he got in front of Gordon and or alongside of Gordon, he knew where he was going to be at. So he was he was very detailed and very meticulous about what he was going to say and how he was going to say it. And he had his character, and he had it well, you know, well thought out. And he was good. He was just good at what he did. But he worked at it. It wasn't just that he went on. You know, this wasn't off the cuff. I mean, I, it may have been even neater had it been off the cuff. Then you could have said, man, he was brilliant. He still was good, but he, you know, he mapped this stuff out before he got in front of somebody. 
Uh, Terry Funk once came up to me and said, I just want to let you know that a lot of what I've mimicked in my own career was, this was in a small gym in Japan once, and it was one of the great moments for me because for a guy like Terry, who I looked at as, you know, a, a top-notch pro, came to me and let me know what a phenomenal influence my dad was on him and his career and how he handled himself both in and out of the ring, on the mic and in the ring. So, yeah, pretty neat stuff. You mentioned earlier that you traveled around with your father. I wanted to ask you a little bit about what went down in Knoxville in 1979, but when you say you traveled around with your father, for instance, when he was in Mid-Atlantic, you were one of the referees in Mid-Atlantic, correct? Yeah, I was a referee. I wrestled a little bit. I didn't wrestle much. So I got on the mat with a lot of guys. The fun- so the funniest thing about Mid-Atlantic was that um, you know, here I am, the referee, predominantly the referee. I, I think I worked a couple matches, but predominantly the referee. I was maybe a buck 80, a buck 85 or something like that. But I was training with Carl at the time, so I was probably in the better sh- – I don't know if I was in the best shape of my life, but I was right there. And so what the Crockett's did was the Crockett's used me, literally used me, <laughs> and abused me. <laughs> and they said – so anybody that wanted to get in the business, they would say, well, you're going to go down to the auditorium, and you're going to work out with this guy. And I'll tell you what, we're, even, we're going to put you with the referee. So I would go down, I would go down, and I'd work – you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go against these guys. Well, I'd put them through – yeah, I do the typical thing, which guys do. I put them through a little bit of a workout. Nine out of ten, these guys would blow up before we even got in the ring. Then we get in the ring, and you know, most of these guys really couldn't do much of anything. And, and I was, I was going at them, you know, sort of legit shoot style back then, which was just submission style wrestling. I wasn't trying to work pro against them. And almost every single guy I did this with looked at me and said, "I'm out." Yeah, (laughs) but I did it different than most guys because here here was my philosophy at the time and still is to this day. Everybody has a everybody has a right to earn a buck. Everybody has a right to go for what they ever want, what they want to go for. We've had a lot of guys in this business who, you know, arguably, inarguably, whatever, deserve to or didn't deserve to be in the business, but they were in the business. So why wasn't Joe Blow given an opportunity, or why wasn't he at least afforded an opportunity to try and get into the business? Because he deserved it as much as some of the guys who were working for 10 years who never got anywhere or who, or who looked like crap. So I always approached every guy that met me at this place and got in the ring with me as somebody who, you know, deserved a shot. I, I, never, I never beat the hell out of anybody. I mean, I, I, you know, I made sure that I, and I'm not bragging, this isn't me bragging, it's just a statement of fact. I made sure that they knew that I was, you know, a formidable guy. And that they really couldn't get past me. If they couldn't get past the referee, they didn't stand a chance. And every single guy I worked against in the ring ended up just going, "Hey, I'm out of here. Thanks, you know, thanks for the opportunity." And all, and it always ended up on a pretty decent note. I would go back. I would go back to the uh, Mid Atlantic office, and they would ask me constantly, "Oh, did you, you know, did you beat the crap out of that guy? Did you destroy him?" And I'm like, "No, I, I didn't. I'm not going to do that. That's not my style." Um, I always said though, to make them happy, I should have killed somebody. I should have put him in the back of my car, drove to the office, dragged him in, laid him on Crocker's desk and said, is this good enough for you, sons of bitches? (laughs) You know, it's interesting, too, because you talk about your philosophy there. And obviously, one of the things and it's it's a bit of a dark cloud on Florida wrestling is the snake pit and some of the things that went on there. But from the best of my knowledge, your father was never involved with that. And certainly that was not really something that Carl Gotch would have been involved with, would be the idea of getting guys in there and really maiming them to it's not even teach them a lesson i'm not exactly sure what the purposes of that is it was um you you gotta i always have to i've always have to walk that thin line between saying things that are fact and disparaging people who are no longer with us so i'm I'm not going to go any further than to say 
there were influences back back in that day to push the envelope of hurting people just to make sure that people did not come back. And I never agreed with that. My dad didn't agree with it either. Uh, there, was, there was a way to do it back then. There was a way to do it when I did it where you could get to a point with a guy and 99.9% of the time they were going to go, man, I can't, you know, yeah, you just destroyed me. I need to go find a job at McDonald's or something. There was only one guy, there was only one guy that I ever went at hard with and I left him in the middle of the ring unconscious. And I did that because he was, <laughs> he was an ex-con. He had just gotten out of prison recently and he had an attitude and a half. And that was up in, that was up in Jacksonville after some matches. That was the only guy I ever did that with. And it was just because of him. It had nothing to do with me thinking that that was a way to show this guy something or deal with him a certain way. It was kind of like, okay, well, if you're going to be that way, let me, let me get a little tough with you. When you go to a new place and you're a young guy and you're refereeing and working some shows and you start meeting the boys, guys you never met before, does the way they approach you change when they find out that you train with Carl Gotch? Well, I had, I mean, I had a, and, and much, much, uh, very much undeserved, I had a reputation just because of my association with Carl. Um, but also, I was my dad's son, so, you know, and they all knew that. I, I knew a lot of guys from before. By the time I got out to the territories doing my own thing, I knew everybody. It, it, it's, it's a close, it, it always was and still is to some degree a close-knit community. There's, there's only so many people out there doing this full-time or there was only so many people out there doing this full time, making a living at it and being able to survive. So it wasn't that you ran into too many people that you didn't know or that didn't know somebody that you knew. So when I went up to Charlotte, I, you know, I already knew a lot of people. They knew who I was because of my dad. They knew who I was because of Carl. A lot of guys would train with me. Uh, Bob, um, not Bob, um, Blackjack Mulligan. One day I'm, you know, I, <laughs> first time I ever got in the ring to referee him, I look up and I'm like, holy crap, you're Big um, later on, when he found out that I trained with Carl, he said, "Hey, I, you know, I've got a kid in high school. I was wondering, could you go work out with this guy, um, with with you know, with my son?" And I said, "Sure, I'd be more than happy to." So um, I show up at this high school gym. There's a mat out, and here comes Barry, and he was a long, tall drink of water. <laughs> wow! So you worked out with Barry Windham when he was in high school? Yeah, I think he. I think he. He may have. He may have been in his last year of high school, or he may have just gone out. But his dad approached me about coming, you know, working with him to see if I could you know, help him out. And maybe everybody wanted to learn a little submission at the time. That was like a big thing. I used to tell people constantly, like, you don't want to, if you want to, if you want to get in the business, you don't need to learn this stuff. You actually probably don't want to learn this stuff. Carl, Carl was a great guy. He was like a second dad to me. I, I, I truly, I mean, I loved him. His, his own worst enemy was himself. You know, he, he had a reputation that he thrived on. But that reputation, because of how tough he truly was, it prohibited him from going real far here in the states. I mean, he did he did some okay stuff. It, it wasn't it was only until he it wasn't until he got in Japan where he was truly recognized for what he was was you know just this phenomenal um, submission style wrestler who not too many people could handle. I mean, he even went to the you know, even when I think it's a judo, uh, judoko or uh, you know a couple places there where. You know, you had six, seventh, eighth degree dons of judo and jujitsu and stuff. And, you know, he went through these guys and destroyed them. They, they told him he couldn't come back. Did the Buddy Rogers incident follow him around? You know, when you talk about difficulties he had, although he had a good career and obviously he's a legend in Japan. He's the god of wrestling in Japan and he would hold the WWWF tag team title. So he did a lot of things. Yeah, with Renee. But did the Buddy Rogers incident with him and Bill Miller hurt him at all in America, do you think? 
I, I think it was I think it was a hundred incidents like that. I mean, Carl, you know, Carl had this thing where he would tell tell me constantly, he said, you know, the the truth hurts, the the truth only hurts a fool, but the world's full of fools. <laughs> and what I always wanted to say to him, but I wasn't in the place to say to him because I was a student and I was, you know, as a student, you didn't talk to your coach. You just listened and did what he told you to do and you followed his mentorship. So what I never said to Carl was, you know, that's fine and dandy, but sometimes the truth hurts just because it hurts. You don't have to necessarily be, you know, you walk up to a guy who's five foot two and he's 283 pounds. And the truth is, is he's fat. But there's really no need to walk up to him and say, hey, fat ass. <laughs> <laughs> right. But Carl saw it that way. Carl said, look, I'm just speaking the truth. Well, yeah, you are, but it's hurtful stuff. And people don't, you know, people don't necessarily want the truth, but they also don't want to be hurt. You know, I mean, it would be easier to walk up to a guy and say, hey, you know, if you want to get in the business, you're a little overweight. Let me show you some stuff you can do. You know, maybe this will help you out. You know, there's a there's a much more diplomatic way to handle yourself. Carl wasn't a diplomat by any means. He was a truthful guy, and the truth did hurt people, and not just because they were fools, but because he was brutal sometimes, and it hurt him here in the states. You know, people didn't want to deal with it. You got to be everything's political, right? You got to you know you got to be politically sensitive. I mean, now we're now we've gone over the freaking deep end, but even back then, so that's my Carl got stuff. Kevin Sullivan once told me a story. This must have been maybe the early 80s when things weren't so good between various sides in Florida. And I guess the office, they were doing something where they were either doing promos about you and your brother and your dad, or it was something where, you know, there was a little bit of animosity at the time. And what Kevin, oh, said, yeah. what Kevin said was Carl Gotch one day walked into the sportatorium and Eddie and Duke and everyone disappeared. <laughs> and Carl just casually walked in, walked up to the office, and Kevin said, hi, Carl. But everyone disappeared. They, whatever he was going to say or whatever it was, they didn't want any part of it, so they got out of there. Well, and especially because they knew that my dad and Carl were best of friends, um, so it, it wasn't a good place for them to be at the time. Carl Carl wasn't a guy to mess with, and they knew that, and everybody just bowed out. Um, yeah, back back then we were running opposition. We we got involved in a lot of opposition stuff back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we were running opposition with Global Wrestling Alliance. We had a local thing for a while against Eddie and Mike. We even challenged we even challenged Eddie and Mike to a uh, <laughs> to a to a tag match. My dad and I against Eddie and Mike, and it was at Curtis Hickson Hall, which was a facility. Um, it's no longer here. And so <laughs> the funniest thing is, is we had no crowd. <laughs> I mean, I think there were like three, the, the only people there were the boys and maybe like three people and a couple people who were in janitorial staff. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the night, at the end of the night, they gave the, you know, they gave the count, uh, they counted Eddie and Mike out of the ring. And I just remember sitting there looking around going, there's nobody here. <laughs> but we ought to just all go, we ought to really all just go. And Mike and Eddie were we're smart for not showing up because not because we would have kicked their shit out of them, but because they would have been there for nobody. <laughs> <laughs> we should have been there. <laughs> you know, I keep saying I want to go to Knoxville and I'll get there in a second, but something you said makes me want to ask your opinion. So many guys, Bob Roop, Dale Lewis, Adrian Adonis later on, various guys have done the challenge where you get in the ring and you say, if a fan out of the crowd can get in here and last whatever it is a minute with me, They'll get a thousand dollars. That's just a variation of this that they've done in various territories. Sure. Well, that's old circus stuff, right? Yeah. Are you a fan of that kind yeah. of thing, or someone who is a shooter, someone who is trained to be able to handle himself with submissions? 
Do you think it's foolish to do that kind of thing where you welcome fans in and you never know what's going to happen? What are your thoughts on that kind of angle, that kind well, I of think thing? You know, I don't know if I use the term foolish, but I don't think it's well thought out on multiple fronts. I think one one is that, you know, especially in certain times, um, you know, liability that presents itself, even if somebody signs a waiver, liability that presents itself is pretty significant. Then you have the issue of, uh, here's here's the worst part. The issue is, is there there's some tough, there's some tough MFers out there. So I don't care how tough you think you are. There is somebody who can probably kick your ass. So you risk, you risk maybe losing your career, maybe losing your life. You, you don't know what you're getting in the ring with. Tim Woods lost the finger. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. Um, so he gave somebody the finger, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tim was a great guy, by the way. I mean, I, I thought the world of him. Anyway, that neither here nor there. So, and then, you know, the other thing is, so you beat this guy. You beat somebody who comes up. What do you, what have you just proved? I mean, what, what does that do for you? What does that do for the business? Does it add any, even back then, did that add any more legitimacy to pro wrestling? No, it never did. I mean, people already knew that what they, they knew. It, it was believable already. They didn't need to be told anymore. I always tell the story of people coming up to my dad constantly and saying, hey, it's wrestling fake. And my dad would look at him and go, yeah, just like that. And you should have seen the look on these people's faces. They were like, I mean, it was incredulous. They were like, and then they start backtracking. They were like, well, I mean, not fake, right? I mean, it's not, it's not really fake. It's just not, I never, <laughs> and, my, and my dad just thought that was the funniest thing that these people would do that. And then all of a sudden he'd call them on it and they, you know, they, cause they didn't want to believe. So, I mean, you could, you know, if, if Bob Roop and I, I love Bob to death and I consider him a good friend, you know, Bob Roop got in the ring and beat the hell out of somebody. It's not like anyone, anybody at that point would go, Oh yeah, wrestling's real or Bob. Yeah. Bob is, Bob is even tougher than I thought. The guy went to freaking Olympics. He, you know, he yelled national champion. I mean, he was a he was a legit you know he was a legit, a legit great wrestler. He wasn't going to improve that he wasn't going to improve that view of himself by beating the crap out of some guy who got in the ring to earn a thousand bucks or whatever. Anyway, I'm talking in circles here, but no, I was not a fan. <laughs> well, let's get to Knoxville because we've mentioned it a few times already, and we just talked about Bob Roop. Your father obviously was there. I think your father maybe got there in '78. But in the summer of 79, when everything went down, where were you? Were you living in the apartment complex with everyone else? What were you doing and where were you? I lived with my dad. I was in my dad's apartment. And your father was in the same complex with Roop and Garvin? Yeah, everybody was in the same in the same uh, group of apartments, sure. Uh, Garvin, Ronnie was right downstairs. You could down, go down the stairs. You was right off the stairs. I forget where Bob was at, but, you know, everybody was there. And and it was a talent pool no, it was a talent pool par excellence, man. It was it was some really heavy hitters in the business all come together to challenge in that territory. Let's talk about Knoxville. What did you think of it? What did you think of the area when you first moved there? What did you think of the wrestling there? Well, I, I kind of went, you know, like I did in most of my life, in most of my life in the business, I went in and out of the ring. I, you know, I, I had other interests in life. My dad always told me, you make sure you have that backstop um, that protects you, that, you know, that protective whatever. So for me, it was a career in pharmacy. So I was, I was in and out. Uh, I didn't live there, live there, but I was there quite a bit. And when I was there, I loved the territory was great. Um, Cullaway, Cullaway, I think, Chalawe, Chalawe Park. Yeah. Um, and again, that, the, the talent was so phenomenal. The, the, you know, the opportunity to be in the ring with uh, Randy, you know, with 
Macho or or uh, or Lanny or you know, I never worked against Ronnie, but I worked against Bob. I worked against Randy. I worked against um, you know Bob Orton Jr. at the time, who dropped a couple elbows on me, and I almost shit myself. <laughs> 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 yeah, it was just it was just a tremendous talent pool, and it was great. It was a great learning experience, a great opportunity to get the, get out there and hone your craft with the guys who were the best in the business. Do you remember when the talk started about the idea of trying to take the territory? Just from, you know, I was, I was peripheral to a lot of the, you know, the central discussions because those discussions were going on between Ron Wright up there and my dad and Bob and, you know, that crew. So I was, I was off to the side. I wasn't privy to the conversations. I was privy to the movement to make that happen. And then once, you know, once it happened, then I was brought in as, you know, one of the part of the talent pool. I was part of the untalent pool, but I was part of the <laughs> untalented talent pool. And then um, it went from there. But, you know, like a lot of these. <laughs> so yeah, you have to look at this as just a, a microcosm of what went on in this business for years and years and years. People always trying to buck the system because the system didn't work for the boys. It never worked for the boys in, in days gone by. Uh, I'm too far removed to know whether it does now or it doesn't. But back then, everything was on your own dime. You made, you know, you sort of made enough money to get by, but every every cent beyond that went to taking care of your own expenses. No, you were responsible for your own health care. You know, if my dad got hurt, he was hurt and he was screwed. Nobody was, you know, Vince is pretty good about taking care of guys, but nobody had to back then. Nobody did. You know, it's not, and even, and even if you were on top and you were the guy responsible for driving the territory, nobody said, Hey, label, that was, you know, my dad's nickname label. Hey, label, you're going to be out for a couple of weeks. You just hurt your knee. We got you covered. Nobody said that. They were like, label, you'll be out for a couple of weeks. We'll see you when you get back, you know, Godspeed and hopefully you can pay for all this shit. It's, it sucked. And, and you had no, there were no protective mechanisms for you at all. You know, you, you you were a contract player who had no contract. It sucked. And and what happened in, you know, in days gone by from the Kentucky deal all the way on back from the, I'm sorry, from the Tennessee deal, Knoxville all the way on back was the guys would gather together and they would discuss this. And then all of a sudden, everybody would get phone calls saying, hey, if you have another meeting like this, you're going to be blackballed. So because guys were scared of not ever being able to wrestle again, you know, they would maybe have one conversation about trying to figure out how to either unionize or at least draw some strength as a collective to go back to the promoters and say, okay, we're not going to put up with this crap anymore. You're going to take care of us. You know, every promoter who had an airplane, every promoter who had an airplane and a boat and multiple houses and lived the life of Riley and did all the things that they did and supporting local charities and stuff like that. How do you think they did that? They did that on the backs of the boys who were working for 50 bucks or a hundred bucks a night barely making ends meet. None of these territories paid great. You know, there were a few guys who did real well, but very select few. A lot has been said about Dick Slater's role in informing about what you guys or what your father and Roop and Garvin and Ron Wright and Orton were planning. Do you remember anything about the heat with Slater and Roop or Slater with anyone else? Because uh, he was there, he was in Knoxville, and I don't think it's been disputed. He was the person that let Eddie know, let Ron Fuller know what was going on. What do you remember about any heat between Slater and everyone else? Um, I remember that some people wanted to kill him. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're talking, again, you're talking about people's livelihoods. 
You know, this was this was a major this was major shot across the bow for these talented guys against a promotion that was well seated and funded to a much better degree. So for anybody to jeopardize that, um, I'm surprised nothing serious happened and not to sound ominous. Obviously, Jody, this Plan B video emerged. It had been lost to time for so many years, and then all of a sudden it emerged, and it shows those five main characters from Knoxville exposing the business. Had you ever seen this before? Did you know about this? What are your thoughts upon seeing it? Tell me whatever thoughts you have about Plan B. So I remember snippets of it. Um, I did know about it, but had forgotten about it until it resurfaced. I had never seen the I never I had never seen the video in its entirety. At the time, it was it was a it was a major it was a major deal for anybody uh, in this business to even consider some kind of expose. It, it was unheard of. It was truly a it was truly a desperate measure by guys who were saying, "Okay, if you don't leave us alone and allow us to make a living and do what we need to do, then we're going to blow this whole thing up." It's a shame that it had to get to that. I, you know, I, hindsight, you know, we we got there anyway. <laughs> you know, thank you, Vince. But it doesn't take away, you know, and as I say, all that crap. It doesn't take away from the fact that these guys were talented. They were dedicated. They busted their ass. They destroyed their bodies. So. You know, so be it. I think they saw that as the only way to have something in their pocket that gave them some kind of leverage with the, you know, with that with that existing promotion up there. And it didn't. <laughs> and they got stooged on and it fell apart, which was a shame. You know, because they were drawing some decent crowds at times. You know, not too long after that, they made the deal with the Pafos to become partners in the promotion out of Lexington. Ron Garvin got 20%. Orton and Roop each got 10%. I know Rip Rogers, I believe, had 10% at the time. Your father leaves around this time. He goes back to Florida. He doesn't go with them up to Kentucky. Do you know why? Well, he had, I mean, he had been gone, you know, because my dad loved the business as much as he did. He was on the road a lot. And he had already been gone quite a bit of time. So it was time for him to get home. Uh, when he did come home, you know, one of the one of the bittersweet moments was he was in the armory and he wrestled a match, and it was sort of this big thing that my dad, you know, Gray Malenko returns to Tampa, and I think Eddie at the time paid him like a hundred bucks, which that was what caused my dad to then turn around and look up into the Carolinas and eventually head up there and stay up there for quite a bit of time. So you're talking a little bit earlier than Knoxville, actually, when. That's around the time Dusty started heating up. The great Malenko as a babyface returns, and Eddie only gave him a hundred bucks payoff. Yeah, at the at the armory that night. Yeah, I lose track. I, I lose track of the timeline. It all sort of. <laughs> and the older I get, the more it blurs together. So I'm not sure of the sequencing of things, but you know, I know, I know, I know that he had to come back here because it was time for him to come back to his family. And then he ended up shifting back up to the Carolinas anyway. He was up there for like three and a half years, I think, all total. I, I barely saw him. You know, I had to, that's one of the reasons I went up there to work and, you know, referee and work a little bit because at least it kept me, kept me around my dad. I know you don't want to go too deep into this, so we won't, but I am just curious. The eventual animosity between your father and Eddie, was it something that developed quickly or was it something that had been simmering for a while? Uh, it had been simmering for a while. You know, I, I it wasn't. It wasn't very visible to the general populace here around Tampa. 
Um, it was an underlying thing that we all knew about. You know, my dad was vocal about it to me and to, you know, to my mom and, you know, his, his closest friends. Um, Eddie obviously knew about it. I don't think Eddie had as much animosity towards my dad as my dad had toward Eddie. But it was based on, wow. you know, it was based on a lot of different things. They were, you know, they were cordial when they ran up around each other and they had to, you know, they, they, they made each other, they made each other money in the day. You know, so you, they sort of had to stand on that a little bit. Um, I went to, so when I was a kid, this was early on in the height of things, I went to Eddie Graham's All-American Youth Camp that he had out in Odessa. He had a phenomenal staff out there. John Heath was my first wrestling coach. I think I was like seven or eight years old. Oh, wow. Um, Frank Zane, one of the world-class bodybuilders who, I, yeah. I don't know if he ever won the Olympia, but he, you know, phenomenal body. He was the archery coach at the time. It was just a great place. You know, I do have to say that Eddie always treated me really well as a kid. You know, I mean, I I got up on his horse. He would always be nice to me. He was, a, you know, he was a good guy to me. But, but again, you know, business related stuff that became a difficult thing between my dad and him. Now, when we went when we went um, rogue here in Florida in the early days, the first time we did it, you know, my dad got a call from Eddie and pretty much said, they pretty much said, just Larry, please you know, stop this stuff. Don't, you know, don't do this. And my dad's like, yeah, well, no, I'm going to continue. But going back to what I said before, unless you're well-funded and you really got a lot of stuff behind you, it's hard to get a promotion, you know, get a, get a counter promotion up and running and have it be successful. And um, we, we never were. Um, we did it. You know, we had some houses here and there that were good. We had great guys working, but it never went too far. That's what I was going to ask you next. What are the big lessons that you learn running opposition? And what, if anything, would you change? Obviously, you said you weren't as successful as you would have hoped. But are there things you could have changed to fix that? Or is it just the very nature of running opposition to an established company that you run into these difficulties you can't get past? It's an inherent set of things that you just can't get past. Unless unless you're extremely well-funded. Um Maybe just maybe if you have enough money, you can make your way through stuff. But I mean, it even goes it even goes down to the level of the venues. I mean, you know, if you if you're going against a major promotion, that major promotion has venues locked in. Those are the prime venues. You know, where do you go? Well, you go to secondary spots and those aren't as much of a draw to people in that area. And maybe, you know, they may be they may be decrepit old buildings or they may be off to the side somewhere, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, when you're dealing with well-seated promotions, you're dealing with people who have a lock on a lot of stuff around their around their region, around their territory, and you have to fight that. And that's a that's a difficult battle out of the gate. Getting you know getting good talent, that's the one thing that Knoxville had going for it, which I haven't seen. I I had never seen that before, where you had that many top-tier guys come together to you know to form their own deal. You know, most of the time you're grabbing guys who are just starting, undercard guys, not saying that they, they're not any good, but, you know, they just don't have the name recognition. Now you're having to build them up. By the time you build them up and you're getting in these lousy, you know, venues, maybe you're working in a tent in Waimama, you know, you, then you run out of money. By the time these guys start getting a name for themselves and people start knowing who they are, you don't have any money left. It's, it's, it's a, it, it was a battle. It continues to be a battle. Not too many independents out there are thriving. You know, they just kind of get by, right? They run a show here and there. Their people have a place to work and have a good time. But it's not like the crowds are truly standing room only and they're making money hand over fist. You mentioned that you worked at Randy Savage during that period of time in Knoxville. That's before most people ever heard of him or got to see him. 
What did you think upon yeah. upon working with him? Did you right away sense that this was an amazing talent? What were your thoughts? Well, I knew. I mean, I I knew Randy for a long time before that because my dad and Angelo were good friends. So it's not like you know, it's not like I didn't know that he was a talented guy. He was a he was a talented guy. Um, probably, you know, if I had to give if I had to give the major you know talent kudos to anybody, it was it was Bobby Orton. He just just a just. A, you know, back in the Florida Territory, when the two guys started, Bobby and uh, and Dick Slater, being the two of them, it was a toss-up who was the most innately talented pro wrestler from the get-go. They both just had a great way about him in the ring, just an ease of use, just a you know a look and feel, a solidness without being too solid. Unless, of course, they were dropping out. El- you know, like, like I, I told you before, where Bob <laughs> dropped an elbow on me, I went oh. And then he got up and he dropped another one. I'm like, stop. <laughs> I thought you were good. Is that how the Poffos got involved with the war in Knoxville? Was it your father's relationship with Angelo? I think, I mean, there was a, it was a collective relationship between all these guys. I don't think it was my dad and Angelo as much as it was just everybody. Yeah. You know, everybody knew each other. They gathered the right town together. They just didn't, yeah, you know, they still didn't have what it took to, to garner the territory. Jody, this has been a lot of fun today, and I'm going to have to insist that you come back on the show very soon so we could do more to talk Carl Gotch, your father, Japan, and various other things. But before we let you go, Passover is approaching as we record this right now. Do you have a good story about your father you could share with us? Of course, one of the greatest Jewish wrestlers of all time, the great Malenko, Larry Simon. A good Larry Simon, great Malenko story to end this segment. Huh. Oh, boy. That's that's pressure. (laughs) Um... I, <laughs> I mean, I've got a lot of stories about my dad. I don't know how good they are. So it was, <laughs> I was just telling somebody the other day. So my dad, you know, my dad did a lot of things when, when he got out of the business or towards the end of his career. And this is, this goes off of what he told me. He said, you know, Jody, you need to have a career that you fall back on. He really had nothing. It was wrestling. So he did, he did personal training for a while. And he, and he person he was personally training like the who's who of Tampa. And nobody even knew that. Um, that was one thing, but he also did collections, uh, and I'll leave it at the word collections. Okay. So he had a couple guys that he that would use him to go collect. Well, my dad had, you know, my dad had this stable of guys. I, I don't know if you're aware of, and and I do say this proudly and with some, you know, with some braggadocio behind it. So we had a lot of guys come through our school, and a lot of these guys did really well. Some of these guys were very big. So my dad would go collect. <laughs> quote unquote, right? I'm making the rabbit ears right now. My dad would go collect and he would have these guys behind him and they wouldn't say anything. So my dad would knock on the door, you know, uh, Bob, I need to talk to you. Bob come out. He goes, Hey, you know, Phil sent me over here. You owe a few bucks to him. Can we get, you know, can we get something? Can we get some kind of payment towards our money? And they would look behind my dad and they would see that and they go, Oh, okay. So the last, so my dad did that for a while, and I looked at him, and I would say, Dad, you know, one day, man, one day. So some guy approached him and said, Hey, I've got this furniture shop, and my partner took all the equipment. They were doing, they were doing all this uh, outdoor furniture kind of stuff, and he had all these uh, sewing equipment things in this warehouse. So he wanted us to go get the equipment. My dad's like, Okay, we'll go get the equipment. So he got a box truck, and uh, we show up. And we go in, and now, again, we got all these big guys. We walk in, and there's a lot of young ladies sitting, sewing and stuff like that. And if I would have yelled immigration, everybody would have scattered for the exits. But <laughs> <laughs> we go in, we start picking up the machinery, and we start walking it out. 
Well, all of a sudden there's this guy and he runs past us and he runs into a little little room off the side. And before we know it, he comes running out and we hear pop, 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 pop. Oh, shit. That was the last... That was the last collection job my dad ever made. <laughs> yeah, he, he wasn't, we, we, we bat out. The funniest thing about that whole deal was a cop show up. Everybody's there, and my dad and I, and I forget somebody else, I can't remember who it was, we were kind of off to the side. The guy had fired into the box truck. I think he got somebody in the leg, just a little flesh wound or something. So we, we walk off. We walk around the cops off to the side of the property, and then we leave, and we didn't know what, we didn't even know what happened after that. Um, and my dad then begged off the collection business. So that's that's a that's a Larry Simon Fakakta uh, crazy scheme story, and he had a lot of those. <laughs> Anything to make a buck. Boom! There it is, Jody Simon, a great guest and a really great guy, and hopefully we'll be having him back on the show again very very soon. Someone who I very much enjoy talking to. And again, if you're down there in Tampa, hit up the JCC, make an appointment, and go see Wrestling History. Go see the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. See where Wrestling History took place for so many years, for an entire generation, or maybe even more than that, in the Tampa area. But as we move on with the show, as we get ready to wrap up the show, a few notes here at the end of the show. I want to send out some thanks to a few different people. First, I want to thank Chris Zaha. Chris sent in some really, really cool WWA programs from Chicago from the late 1960s that I believe he got from his father. I really do appreciate that. I do collect programs, and I actually do have a pretty extensive collection of Chicago programs going back to the late 1940s. I did not have any of these. So, Chris, thank you very much. You are a gentleman and a scholar. I also want to thank Chuck Langerman, a longtime listener and a good guy. A lot of fans on the East Coast may remember Chuck's name. He was always around, that seems like. I remember Bob Barnett used to always mention Chuck. And Chuck sent in a collection of Wrestling Flyer newsletter interviews. I believe it was John Clark's third collection after he had decided to stop the Wrestling Flyer newsletter. It had interviews with Sabu, Missy Hyatt, Dave Meltzer, and a few others. Chuck, thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. I also want to thank John Cosper. You'll be hearing John on the show very, very soon to talk about his Black Panther biography, which is something that anyone who cares about history should pick up a copy of. John just sent me, I opened a mail the other day, there were trading cards. He has a Dr. D. David Schultz trading card and a Black Panther trading card. And based on the numbering of the cards, I'm guessing there are more in this set. So thank you very much, John. And anyone interested in those, I guess you should hit up John at eatsleepwrestle.com or he's on social media. He's all over the place. He's a very nice guy. I also want to thank a few other people. Dan Leonard actually just sent me a couple issues of his latest zines, and he always puts out really cool stuff, and he's one of the few people out there printing up zines still, printing them up professionally, sending them out. Of course, Betty Paginated, a long-standing zine that's been out for, I want to say, at least 25 years now. And a new one, I've never seen this one before, Boobs and Blood. That's right, Boobs and Blood. If you want copies of these, hit up Dan. He's on Facebook, and uh, he, I know he's on Twitter, too, and he's a really good guy. He's down there in Australia. And we will also get the link and find the link for anyone in the Mothership group who wants it. And I'm sorry, I don't have the link available right now. I'm actually holding physical copies of this, so I don't have a link right now to give anyone, but we'll pass along that info as soon as we have it. also want to mention a listener of ours, Ben Rich. Ben Rich just sat in the second row on SmackDown wearing the 605 Super Podcast t-shirt for the entire show. He was on camera the entire night, and so many people sent me clips and screen caps, and thank you to everyone, and of course, thank you to Ben. Ben, welcome to the Listener Hall of Fame. I want to thank a couple other people. Lou Kippelman, of course, who does such an amazing job with Breaking Kayfabe with Boundred and Barry. 
with Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin. And of course, he's been doing some bang up work on Kentucky Fried Wrestling lately with Scott Bowden and Howard Baum. Lou is our superstar producer here in-house at Arcadian Vanguard. And we really, really love the guy. So thank you, Lou. And I also want to thank one other person, Jace Nakarado. Of course, Jace is our director of show research. That doesn't mean I send him out there and say, Jace, tell me all the results of Vern Gagne. No, it's actually show research. Whenever I have a question about something we've done on the previous hundred something episodes of the Super Podcast, I ask Jace, and usually he has the answer within seconds. Of course, he manages our show wiki page, tinyurl.com slash superpodwiki. And he is our community director here at the Super Podcast and Arcadian Vanguard. Did a bang up job of getting everyone there to Cauliflower Alley and making sure everyone had a good time. Thank you, Jace Nakarado. As we wrap things up, want to remind you, you can follow the Super Podcast on Twitter at 605pod. You can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast on Twitter at Super Podcast. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast. It's the best place to get show updates, see the artwork, and so much more, facebook.com slash superpodcast. You can also follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard, and get every single episode of every single Arcadian Vanguard show as soon as it comes out. It gets posted up there, as well as all videos, and we're going to be having a lot more videos in the coming months and a lot more projects. So stay tuned. It's a good time. It's a very, very good time. The jump aboard the Arcadian Vanguard Facebook page and, of course, Arcadian Vanguard on Twitter. We mentioned it earlier. If you want to support this show, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon is the best way. You go to Amazon. You type in that link. Anything you add to your cart after that point, we get a little bit of love and support, a little bit of credit from those fine people at Amazon. And you don't do anything more or anything differently than you would normally do tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. I mentioned Ben Rich sitting ringside in a 605 Super Podcast t-shirt. You can get your own right now. You can get Super Podcast t-shirts in various colors. You can get Mothership t-shirts in various colors and so much more. Hey, it's baseball season. It's a good time for the Mothership baseball shirt. We also have stickers, magnets, and there's always some extra surprises thrown into every single package. And we have some more stuff coming very, very soon. The official online store tinyurl.com slash superpod store or an easy way to get there go to the facebook page you'll see a link at the top that says shop now and it'll take you right there if you appreciate what we're doing here on the show and you want to make a donation because you realize holy shit this is one fucking production there's a couple ways you can do so you can make a one-time donation on paypal the link paypal.me slash superpodcast you can also make an ongoing monthly donation on patreon patreon.com slash superpodcast. Unlike other shows, you're not guaranteed anything by joining our Patreon. You're not guaranteed anything whatsoever. You may get stuff, but I promise nothing. But it's a great way to support the show. Once again, paypal.me slash superpodcast and patreon.com slash superpodcast. Want to mention one more time, the 605 Super Podcast is sponsored by our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsor Records, R-A-M-S-E, you are going to ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com and the promo code 605 at checkout for a 20% discount on all purchases. And don't forget Amethyst Kia. You're going to be hearing a lot, a lot from her. She's part of a new collaboration called Our Native Daughters. Their album Songs of Our Native Daughters is out now on Smithsonian Folkways, a fine, fine label. And you're going to be hearing a lot more of her. She wrote the song Black Myself, which is track one on that record. Check her out. She's on YouTube, Spotify, and soon everywhere else. Amethyst Kia, 
and of course, Ram Sore Records and Management. Also want to mention that if you have anything you'd like to send into the show, whether it's old Chicago programs, wrestling flyer newsletters, or whatever it may be, the address, the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, the mothership! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all the fine guests that were on this week's show, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Hi, wrestling fans. This is John Arezzi. 30 years ago, I launched one of the most talked about insider radio shows in the history of pro wrestling. Pro Wrestling Spotlight was one of the first shows to tear the curtain down, covering the business in a way that had not been done before. Well, 30 years later, get ready for Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now, co-hosted by yours truly and the great Brian Last on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Episodes are coming soon, so subscribe now. And subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcast. And get ready to relive your Matt memories.